You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Tomorrow, in a world gone mad. <laughs> the only law will be a renegade squad of suicidal cops. He's my prisoner, and he's not walking out that door. And the open road will be controlled by gangs of glory roaders. Max is a cop, one of the best. Where does they're out to get you? Scoot jockeys? Yeah, no man trash. Mm. Well, I'll add it to my thread collection. You made the news again. Who was he? Just another glory roader, I guess. Toe Cutter is a glory roader, one of the most sadistic. Anything I say, anything you say, what a wonderful philosophy you have. Take him away. <gasps> I want my baby. You've not got a sense of humor. Please don't hurt my baby. You've got a pretty face, though. Both want the other dead. But only one can have his way. Mad Max. You don't want to make Max mad. Because when Max gets mad, he gets evil. American International presents Mad Max, the maximum force of the future. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Ben Buckingham. Tell me about Mel Gibson's dick and balls! Also with us in the booth is Mr. Mike Thompson. You want to get out of here? Talk to me. This week, we are discussing the Mad Max series. Kicking off with Mad Max in 1979, the series is directed by George Miller. It's one of the most unusual series around in that the way it has changed over the years, subtly shifting gears and genres and actors over a 36-year period. Of course, we're going to be spoiling all of these movies, so if you haven't seen them, you have been warned. Ben, when was the first time you saw Mad Max, and what did you think? I'm pretty sure I actually saw them backwards. I think I saw Thunderdome first, then Mad Max 2, then the original Mad Max. I vaguely remember liking Thunderdome a lot when I was a kid, but I don't think I saw it any later than like 11 or 12 years old and then didn't see it for 20 years. I loved the second one when I was, I think I saw that when I was about 14 on video and bought a copy of it and watched it like once every couple of months. And then the first one I would have seen probably when I was about 15, 16. We'll get into how it was treated by some people here in Australia, but my parents always felt that it was quite a nasty film. And so they didn't let me see it as early as I saw some far nastier films. (laughs) I think it was confusing (laughs) maybe confusing is not quite the right word my memory of it is kind of like it just happened to me and i didn't really know how to process it i didn't not enjoy it i didn't enjoy it it just kind of 
hit me like a wave. And coming back to it now, I'm like, yeah, I think that was actually that was a that was the Mad Max experience. <laughs> How about you, Mike? Same question. I also watched them out of order. Uh, I became kind of like obsessed with the Road Warrior uh, b- before ever having seen it. For some reason, there was I, I really like the poster, the you know the one with Wes's arm and uh, Max's arm, and then the truck right between the two of them. So I bought the soundtrack to the Road Warrior first before I'd ever seen it, and that soundtrack also had like this sort of. Uh, effects track to it so you could so it was like the the ending chase of the movie but just the sound so you could hear all the car crashes and the yelling and everything like that so that was my big lead into then i finally got to watch the movie because we didn't have a we didn't have a vcr back then and so i had to wait until it was uh it was on nbc and 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 i had to take a nap so that i could stay up that late because that's how my parents were and and then finally got to see uh the road warrior and it was for me it was everything that i had wanted it to be and then after that i got my own copy of that and and i think i watched that for a long time probably like at least the end probably like once a week then I think I, then I saw Thunderdome. That was the because because I was all excited for it then because I could finally see one of these in the theater. And then I think Channel Fifty aired Mad Max, and then we had a VCR so I could record it. <laughs> and then I watched that version for the longest time too. Um, so it was a while until I got to see them completely, you know, unedited. And then it was an even longer while before I finally got to see Mad Max sound the way it was supposed to sound. <laughs> When I finally saw Mad Max, it was it was sort of surprising to me that it was sort of surprising to me that there was a world that there, there was actually society in it, like civilization, because I didn't expect that after having seen the Road Warrior so many times. I didn't realize that they were going to show as much that there was as much of that in his in his life, because I knew he had lost his family from the beginning of the of that movie, but I didn't know that there was going to be as much as much of the world together as it was such as it was. I also did not have a quote unquote pure experience when it comes to the Mad Max series. I don't remember if I saw Mad Max before I saw beyond Thunderdome, but I definitely saw it after the road warrior. And so like you, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be very post-apocalyptic. I already had my preconceived notions. And yeah, when it was like, what would they say? Like, sometime in the future at the beginning and it's like okay well this seems like it could be tomorrow or next tuesday but or maybe now maybe now i also saw that horribly dubbed version first i might have seen that on channel 50 as well i don't think i recorded it though and i wasn't impressed i really was not impressed and it was very confusing to me It, it really just had a hard time following it I finally tracked down the Australian dub. They used to sell it through Video Search Miami. Watch that, and I still didn't like it. I would say it probably wasn't until maybe two weeks ago that I finally started to click with the movie. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why it took so long for me to finally start to enjoy it. It just seemed to be going all over the place, even though at the end of the day, it's pretty much like a revenge thriller it's a fairly straightforward story for me i think i had the opposite reaction i was sort of enthralled with with that 
world that they made just as soon as like you know that that little thing comes up at the beginning like sometime in the future and then you see the you know the hall of justice and and i was like so this is sort of like this in-between post-apocalyptic time you know where it's like okay society is sort of dying i think you know and i, I don't know from for me as a kid that was that was very uh <laughs> that was very I, I just really wanted that whole world you wanted the world to burn yeah some men aren't looking for anything logical like money they can't be bought bullied reasoned or negotiated with some men just want to watch the world burn the first Mad Max was shot here in Melbourne where I live and uh, the, like the diner that uh, the goose is eating at was like three kilometers from my childhood home. So he didn't spend much time around Little River, which is further over on the other side of the city and that's where they shot a lot of the road stuff. But where they did a bit where I knew where I lived and it all looks like that. And some of the spots in Melbourne still kind of look like that. It is a really weird post-apocalyptic film for myself it really doesn't look that different to what i'm used to and i wondered how it felt for you for a foreign audience who wasn't familiar with it just being daggy old 70s melbourne which was you know everything still closed on a sunday and you know all that kind of thing it felt like this was the western side of of america you know, like, cause I don't, at the time, like I had no real understanding of what that was like, like not California, but sort of like that in between spot, so just like these big giant open plains. The first movie doesn't have as much of the wasteland aspect to it. You know, there's actually like plants and stuff like that. And that it's like the people have sort of died out, but, but nature hasn't exactly been, you know, ravaged yet. So for me, it felt, it felt very real. Like I, I, I felt like I, felt, I think at the time I felt like if I just drive like maybe 150 miles, I'll find this place. <laughs> yeah, it did have a very Western feel to me as well. Like something like, a, I don't know, in Arizona or something where it's just like, OK, I'm sure that there are, you know, it felt like diner in the middle of nowhere, junkyard in the middle of nowhere. I never really got a sense of how these things were related as far as what the landscape you know, the, 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 the geography of the place was, but that's okay. And I liked that bit of confusion as far as like, I couldn't draw you a map now and say, this is where that diner is. This is where that junkyard is. This is where Max and his wife and, and child go to hang out with the old lady and the, the weird dude. You know, I, I have no sense of space as far as that goes. Yeah, I, I don't either because I actually know where most of the places are. So I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's not next door to that. <laughs> but I, I, watching it again this time, I actually started to think that the first film is deeper down the hole of the apocalypse than – I'm wondering if this pocket, like the police force in it, is almost like a cult that is holding itself together with this order and these rules, but there really isn't much else left. And it's just like there's like maybe almost everybody has already bailed out of the city. And then maybe there's only like a couple of hundred people living in there. And they're kind of, you know, almost like in the zombie films where they go back to doing what they did when they were alive. That there's just these little pockets of people who are pretending that the world is still holding on in some form, which is much like what is in the later films, but really just off screen. The apocalypse is already well into what we see in the second, third and fourth film. That's a really good point, because when it comes to the Hall of Justice, 
I got a real like assault on precinct 13 slash Rio Bravo feel for it. Everything else is closed in that area. We have given up, but the hall of justice, the police station is still open and these guys are just clinging on. It feels like if Fifi McAfee had a need, there's no one he could actually call and say like, we need reinforcements or, you know, there's a problem over here. It feels like that is the, the lone outpost. The one sort of superior that you see to him is the, the, the toffee guy in the, the samurai uh, practice fighting outfit. And he just seems like, you know, he could just be some nutter. That's all he does all day is pretend he's a samurai while running the police force, quotation marks. And also that, that character is quite interesting because it's the only, at that time in Australia, like you'll see, I don't, you probably, might, probably didn't notice, but there is a photo of the queen on the wall. Which back then, you know, every single government building had the painting of the queen on the wall and it's off kilter and almost falling out. But the only sort of it at that time, Australia was still very much pulling itself out from under the thumb of England. And so having that character also have the sort of toffee English accent is like, oh, this is the last hangover of that old system that's just like completely useless now and just entertaining itself. That guy was exactly who I was thinking of as soon as he said cult. <laughs> mm, yeah. Fifi's the muscle who keeps it going and actually makes it look like it's a system, and he's just the weirdo who oversees it, Jim Jones style. <laughs> Though they still have fucking bureaucrats. The ones that end up taking uh, Johnny the Boy out of prison are still the same horrible bureaucrats that you expect any place. And that's the one thing where I'm just like, okay, these guys are still around. You know, the, like like cockroaches and lawyers will be the only people still left after the apocalypse. Uh, the, the last people left standing in Australia will be bureaucrats. I guarantee it. They swarm and multiply here. I do really appreciate the audio texture of the film, all of the constant chatter that's going on on the police radio and those weird little messages, again, with the cult thing, you know, like, oh, Fifi McAfee says you should do this. And just all these like weird things, like you expect radio chatter in a police movie, but this seems to be this ever-present thing. And then that really plays into it well when the Knight Rider has the police car and he has this whole streaming thing of just all of this verbal garbage just pouring all over the place and he becomes the wallpaper for a good little chunk of the beginning of this movie we will talk about this as we go through these films but george miller definitely has some things that he likes to do and these seeds are are here and they go all the way up to fury road so this whole thing of this night rider character in this police car and we don't know how he necessarily got the police car. We don't see that necessarily, but him there in this big first chase, he's there talking about the toe cutter and the toe cutter. He sees me, he sees me. And I'm just thinking like, oh, it's kind of like that whole witness me thing that we're going to see in Fury Road, where when you do something really cool, you're just like, witness me. You know, we're going to have these themes that go throughout these four films. Do you see me, toe cutter? Do you see me, man? <laughs> I am the night rider. <laughs> I'm a fuel injected suicide machine. I am a rocker. I'm a roller. I'm a I'm a night rider, baby. George Miller is like he knows his stuff, he knows his film history. 
watching that again, I, all I could think of was um, Samuel Beckett's only film called Film with uh, Buster Keaton. And I've never actually managed to find a copy of it. It does supposedly exist, but I've got a book of it. And basically the point of, this, of, of Samuel Beckett's film is Buster Keaton going around and just being seen and being seen and it's this existentialist nightmare of constantly being forced to exist by being seen. And so finally locks himself up in his room and still sees himself reflected in the mirror or something like that. And so it's like to be witnessed is to be alive and to exist. And for the French, that was some sort of existential nightmare. But in this future, it's like it's it's the, the, these bad guys have taken it on as being a way to continue having power or something. I'm not quite sure, but I, that's immediately what it made me think of. I'm latching on a lot to the to the to the whole idea of of the cult aspect of it now. Now that now that Ben's pointed that out, and thinking about how these are sort of in all of these movies to a certain extent, there are these sort of like rival cults and rival factions who are all forming in the face of Armageddon or in the face of a crumbling society and how they. But how, <laughs> how just like the bureaucrat, bureaucratic aspect, it still has to remain consistent with the way mankind operates, and that's that we're not going to get along. <laughs> you know, one of us has to have power over the other, and like yeah, Max to me is the thing that's always sort of in the middle of that, whether he wants to be or not. Yeah, if, if we didn't manage to sort it out during peacetime, we're sure as hell not going to sort it out when everything falls apart. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that cult is also it's it's a lot of it is warring ideologies the different ways of how do you form societies how do you form civilizations and you know you have sort of like later on we have this sort of barter town system and then you know we have these patriarchal society in the in fury road and in this first one it's it's just the ropey dumb australian just kind of the different <laughs> aspects of toxic male australian culture just slamming into each other <laughs> You talked about the way that people are being seen and being witnessed and the whole idea of being seen in order to exist. And I like the way that we are kind of conjuring up Max by seeing different pieces and parts of him first before we actually get to see the whole. Any any good iconic character has the pieces and parts, you know, like Columbo's got the, the trench coat, he's got the cigar. So Max is the car. He's the sunglasses. He's these things in this movie. And we finally get him and we don't really get him even saying a line for a little bit here. Is he the only policeman who doesn't have a partner in his car? Is his partner goose, but goose only rides a motorcycle. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Goose is meant to be his partner, but they, they duo rather than being the same vehicle. Which makes sense because the other cops just seem to fight about who gets to drive. For me, it establishes how Max is kind of always alone, even though he, yes, he has his wife and, and, and his kid, but he's like, this is sort of, to me, it's just opening up how he's fated to be just Max <laughs> and everybody else is, is there, but he is still, he's like this, he's always this sort of solitary thing. Even when he's helping people, he's helping them apart from them. Yeah. And he is the one guy who's kind of waiting out on the road someplace. The other cops aren't able to catch the night rider and they finally bring in Max. He's like the, the power backup kind of person. And yeah, I, I love that whole chase that happens in here. And this whole idea of this um, supercharged car, which 
it feels like Fifi knows that that is the thing that's going to make Max Max. And that's the one, you know, missing piece of the puzzle is this super V8. So he arranges so that Max can end up getting that car. Apparently that, uh, that car was Byron Kennedy's dream car when he was 16 years old. Uh, Byron Kennedy being producer and was a sound engineer and, you know, like, just about everybody had about 10 roles of this film because it was super low budget and nobody really knew what they were doing. But yeah, Byron Kennedy was a massive, massive petrol head and he basically had dreamed this car his entire life. And so he was like, I, I, this is the car. This is the car that Max will have. It's one of the making of features. They tell a story about having the car parked in the street in Carlton, which is an inner suburb of Melbourne, and these two little elderly ladies walked past and they looked in the rearview mirror and saw them just stroking the back of it and going, ooh. And they're like, (laughs) well, if even the elderly ladies are going for the car, then we're on the right track. (laughs) (laughs) I have to uh, say that when we're introduced to Max's family, I had a really good laugh because there's this sound uh, saxophone on the soundtrack. And then when we cut to his wife actually playing the saxophone <laughs> so it's it's diegetic music and not non-diegetic music it's it's like the harmonica and the killer it totally reminded me of that <laughs> and every time it just cracks me up especially because she's like a, a a slightly smaller stature female and then she's got this big saxophone i'm glad it wasn't like a you know a bass saxophone <laughs> i like that they are there, the the wife and child are there, though they are pretty much just dead meat. You know, we're just waiting for them to die. And we have these moments that we're signaling that this is going to happen. That amazing part during that opening chase when the little kid is out on the road and we think for sure it's going to get hit. And then the cars zoom past it. That's a nice fake out because then we're going to get that again later on where the cars don't zoom past and some really bad things happen. I think for me, the other reason why I have... I had a hard time with the time and location when it comes to this is even though they are supposedly driving futuristic motorcycles, whenever I see a motorcycle gang in a film, I tend to put it back in like the late sixties, early seventies. And this being put out in 79, it just kind of feels like, okay, this is another bikey movie and the biker gang. This gang is so terrific. And Hugh Keysburn as toe cutter. My God, what a performance this guy gives. He has to be the most underrated actor in Australian history. I've seen him in quite a few really obscure things lately. And he is always the absolute best thing in the film. And he just like, you know, and he, he gets to bring it twice in the series and just knock it out of the ballpark. I saw him in the, this movie, uh, I think it was called Sleeping Beauty a few years ago. And it was one of those things, my, my wife and I were watching it, and as soon, as soon as he showed up, I was like, that's the toe cutter. And I was like, how do you know? I go, because I look at his eyes. <laughs> like, it's just, there's no questions, but I immediately, you know, I immediately go to IMDb and I'm like, she's like, well, that's impressive. I go, like, I go that's not me. That's all him. <laughs> like, he's that's so like, powerful. Every time I watch Man from Hong Kong, I'm like, why the hell is this dude the main character? Give it to Hugh Keysburn. He's the <laughs> best actor and best character in this film. Oh, and he is so great in that. It doesn't isn't he the one that gives like the kick towards the camera? 
<laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I love that. Weird, daggy hippie cop just in the middle of it all, and he's just ah, oh, he's so amazing in it. Yeah, I could just watch a whole series of movies with uh with his character and then the Roger Ward character just going out and solving crimes, doing whatever. It's just like perfect. <laughs> Go for it. The sort of the weird broken future thing. It, it's there's two things that reminded me of. Definitely Clockwork Orange. Like, there's a lot of Clockwork Orange vibes in this film, even when they go into the the little disco tech kind of thing with Goose and the dancer feels a bit bit like when they get in the, the milk bar. Yeah. Um, but I always remember as a kid, like, Dad telling me about a Clockwork Orange and saying that when he saw that in the theaters, it was the first time he'd seen a sci-fi film where the future just looked really crap. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like the elevator doesn't work and everything in the street just covered in rubbish and everyone's just going to hide in their nice apartments. And I think that's that. This this is definitely that same kind of vibe. But I'm also I've never seen the film, but I read the book of Damnation Alley years ago, and I know that that, that opening uh, chase sequence, you see the sign "Anarchy Road," and it's like, well, <laughs> there's so many ways you can read that sign. <laughs> we are definitely heading down Anarchy Road right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it it also reminded me of Damnation Alley, where it's just like this blasted world with the lone hero trying to trying to get across to save everyone. I can't believe you haven't seen that movie. It's really hard to find in Australia. I don't know if it ever got much of a release here. But yeah, but I'm pretty sure isn't that's a motorbike one as well, isn't it? Or is he no. got a souped up car, but he's a no. motorbike oh, dude? It's not he's even a car, man. It is the the crawler. He does have a motorcycle though at the beginning, though, right? With yeah. the scorpions. <laughs> like I guess, like I said, I've only read the book, and I can't. I try to remember from that. <laughs> The car or the vehicle in that, I should say, it actually has like a life of its own. Like it might even have its own Wikipedia page because it has ended up showing up in all these different things. And of course, to me, my, I think it ends up showing up in the opening credits of Action Family by Chris Elliott. It goes all over the place. And yeah, it's, um, I mean, all I can say is poor Paul Winfield. He has a really horrific death in that movie. Worse than having a creature put in his ear. I don't know if you uh, know this, but the the biker gang, uh, most uh, as I said, it was a Melbourne uh, shot film in here in Victoria, which is way down the bottom. Um, and a lot of the crew was from here. Uh, Mel Gibson and Goose were both members of the National Institute of Dramatic Arts, and they were graduating that year, so they were fresh out of acting school. But I think the vast majority of the biker gang are actors from Sydney. And apparently they were like, oh, it's going to cost heaps to fly them down and we really don't have much money. So someone suggested shipping the bikes up to Sydney, which can't have been much cheaper, but they did it via train. So I guess back then it probably was. And then they all drove the bikes down as a gang, which is about these days it's like a – 15 18 hour drive with all the new highways and freeways so it's a pretty pretty big drive to do and so yeah so the whole biker gang kind of the way the film started was them method acting their way from sydney to (laughs) melbourne as a gang in 1978 australia 
rocking up in country towns, not looking quite like they did, <laughs> but it didn't matter because this Australia was still, yeah, that kind of place where it's like, nah, you could tell the lot. They said every every town they pulled up in, they felt the loathing and they felt how unwelcome they were and they just lapped it up and just like channeled it and held onto it to, to, to feed into these characters. And I think the film, like you absolutely get that. Like it, it feels like this really close knit group that's been causing mayhem forever. I was waiting for you to say that that they were actually a real biker gang that they, that they found. <laughs> well, like, apparently, they feel they, so completely they, legitimate. They they kept the method acting going on through the entire thing, um, and some of the actors said it was partly because you didn't really know what you were going to be shooting that day. So you just stayed in costume and got, and were ready to do whatever. But they really, because they'd kind of close knit on their own, isolated from everybody else. When they got to Melbourne, they kept it up and treated all the cop actors as the bronze and would like really act intimidating towards them. And apparently they even wrote a letter in blood threatening to kill them and left it in their, the house that the, <laughs> they were like Val Gibson and everybody was staying at. And like, like Steve Bisley and all the Aussies, like they were kind of like, oh yeah, it was, it was a bit weird, but you know, we dealt with it. And apparently it really freaked Val Gibson out. Like he was really worried that they were going to jump him and punch his head in. <laughs> But yeah, they stayed really full on in, in full method acting the entire time, the gang, and they were just like terrorizing everyone. They never, never did any real violence, but it, it sounds like they certainly keep it, caught the, uh, kept the crew and uh, the cast on edge. I love that introduction of Toe Cutter and the gang and them going to the train station to pick up the body of the Knight Rider, which is so once upon a time in the West to me, uh, as far as like, hey, here we are and we're going to pick up our friend. But in this case, the friend is not somebody that they're going to kill, but somebody that who's already dead. And that crazy, I guess it's like a bird of prey noise that happens when they show the coffin. And that noise comes back later on in the film as well. And it's just really sets you on edge whenever that gets played. That must be your friend over there. I didn't leave much of him. Must have cut his heart out, eh? Yeah. That's what I meant. And there are definitely some people that stand out in the in the gang. I mean, Johnny the Boy is one who definitely stands out. And then Bubba Zanetti, who's got this blonde hair and very short crop, almost like a Caesar cut. And then he has this like dead expression in his face that he keeps at all times. And I just really appreciate Bubba Zanetti. I think he might be one of my favorite Toe Cutter gang members. Johnny the boy has done it again. This time it's a scrubber. He's never gonna learn. But we are going to teach him, Baba. You are going back for him. No way. Not me, not for him. But it's not for him. It's for me, Baba. <laughs> His character, in my opinion, suffers the most from the dub. Johnny the boy's still at the wreck. Stoned again. He's never gonna learn. But we are going to teach him, Bubba. 
You are going back for him. No way. Not me, not for him. But it's not for him. It's for me, Papa. <laughs> because the voice they use for him in that is so, like, over the top. And I was used to that for so many years. And then watching the watching the you know the, the the right audio i just felt so i was so frustrated because i was just like his performance is even stronger with his real voice it's so much more it's so much more understated and threatening and and just like and he seems like even more in like he's like sort of like the the quiet sociopath of this group you know everybody else is so is so blown up but he's the one who's there's you, you, for me it just feels like there's so much going on underneath the surface and it's probably all bad <laughs> it's, it's so funny to say real voice because he's putting on a silly european accent <laughs> <laughs> that makes it even better to me <laughs> and it, you know it makes me every time i look at him and it's just john philip law if he lived on donuts <laughs> I've I've never seen the and I I never will I will never listen to the American dub I just like I see I I heard bits and pieces I think I watched the trailer once and we're just like oh dear God no <laughs> it's one of those things like as a kid that's just the way I thought it was for the longest yeah. and then and then and that was all I had and so but then later on realizing no it's not like this and then finally seeing it, it's just like oh my God. <laughs> It's like I've been robbed of this for so many years. Oh, that would be that would be so frustrating because I I found that I, I have a much stronger memory of watching films as a, a child of the sounds, and so I, I'll watch a film that I haven't seen since I was like nine, and I'll hear the sounds, and the sounds will be like I remember that sound. I remember not not even just the music, like actual just the way things sound in it. And so if I had that with Mad Max, where I, my memory was of this thing, I don't know if I'd ever be able to enjoy it. <laughs> it it's been a long process of undoing that. Yeah. But just it's the way he says, our friend, in the, in, the, in the dubbed version when they're going to pick up the body, it's just like, it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> and then you, and you hear the, the, the right one, it's like, yeah, that, that makes it, it's, yeah, it's, it, 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 you're absolutely right, though, having grown up with that, and especially like, that kind of dialogue with the dialogue and the sounds, it just, it makes that, it leaves such a lasting impression that, yeah, you have to, I mean, the only way through, the only way, the only way is through. And that was to, to watch it over and over again correctly. And these days it is difficult to find that dubbed version of it. And it, it, so Good. I'm like looking at, yeah, before it was super hard to find the Australian version and now it's super hard to find the American dub. Cause I for sure want to drop in some sound clips here of how awful this stuff is. <laughs> My guts get out of there. Condolini put her against the post. We have a problem here. She is not what she seems. Bobo Zanetti has it on good authority. She's sent by the bronze, full of treachery. The bronze, kill our pride. 
I mean, I bet there's somebody out there right now going, no, that's the best version, but they are. <laughs> yeah, definitely the nostalgia goggles can, can cloud your vision on stuff like that. One of the, the things I found really interesting looking at the behind-the-scenes stuff was how the film actually came to be. I don't know if everybody knows, but it is actually directed by Dr. George Miller. He mm-hmm. is an actual medical doctor. And the film kind of – I've never been able to find it, but he and Byron Kennedy made a film – uh, was it uh, Violence in the Cinema Part 1? Which I've been wanting to see forever. I've never been able to find that. I actually just found out that I could have gone and watched it at an archive in Melbourne that closed down at the end of last year. And I'm like, anyway, I'm there one day. Um, and so they'd already made this film that was basically like a, a kind of almost documentary detailing of how violence in cinema is enacted. And wanting to make a feature film... It came about from a Miller talking to a journalist, a reporter who would follow police around to car accidents and would get the reports. And the way that he would talk about these quite horrific accidents with this sort of detached experience of them and Miller's own experience of working in the casualty ward and seeing these people come in just completely shredded. And, you know, this is 70s Australian with these massive muscle cars and not great roads, and these things would have just been like meat blenders. And so this sort of combination led him to wanting to make something that dealt with the, in his words, what if it happened to you? Because all these people were like, oh, you know, nah, nah, I drive my car everywhere, it's fine kind of thing. It's like, but what if it happened to you? And so originally the character of Max was actually written as a journalist. And I actually find that really interesting because um, it's – it puts the character at a lot more distance than the police officer. It really separates them out. And I kind of feel like that's where what we were talking about earlier with Max being very alone in the film comes from. Because we tend to think of sort of reporters and journalists as being these sort of lone wolves and they're very much more disconnected. And I feel like that kind of carries through. But I think that I'm glad they made him a cop. I think it does make the film richer in a lot of other ways. But I feel like the that journalistic aspect with distance from what is occurring but being reported on is very much the Australian experience because we're this, you know, little outliers of Western culture in the East and we constantly experience all this stream of violence and chaos and war and all this stuff that comes in from Europe and from America and yet, oh, no, that stuff doesn't happen here doesn't happen to us oh that wouldn't happen here oh no this isn't you know it's this real detached experience we have of this culture that we're constantly experiencing and i feel like that's 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 bound up in what max was doing is with the with what miller was doing with the mad max film as well of really kind of trying to slam home what if it happened to you? Well, this is what it would be like. <laughs> this was a couple – I was born in 83, so the first one was a couple of years before I was born. But I have memories of what 80s Australia Australia was like, and it was still pretty <laughs> backwards compared to the rest of the world. But I, I think that the, something that you would have had experience of is um, the kind of cinema that we were making at that time. Uh, and, you know, the things like Picnic at Hanging Rock and Sunday Too Far Away, things like that. Um, where we, we, uh, the film industry in Australia has pretty much always been funded by the government primarily. Um, there's very few films get made in Australia that get a general release that don't have government funding of some variety. And this means jumping through a lot of hoops. Um, the 
Australian government, even though they've done an incredible job of helping develop the industry and they've helped make some amazing films, can tend to be pretty narrow in their focus. And at that particular time in the, the mid-70s, uh, to get the funding through the Australian Film Commission, they were... Uh, I think there was, was it the, uh, Miller, Miller in one of the making of said, uh, that, that they were almost exclusively funding period films, films that were specifically about the Australian experience, which is really incredibly ironic now because like we look back at those films and we realize that, oh, these films were actually trying to build a national identity. They were trying to, it was a, as I said, it was a period when we were separating more from England, becoming more ourselves. And these films became a way, because they were almost all period pieces, and they were all about nation building. And it was like, you know, the great Aussie battler and this kind of, you know, all these, you know, actors like Jack Thompson coming through. And, and it's just so much about putting, trying to put a version of the Australian identity on screen that is very, um, mythological and while it has uh you know definite connections to our history it is obviously like a little propagandistic (laughs) and the great irony is that they would they absolutely just would not put money into mad max and yet this is the film now that feels more like it connects with aspects of australian identity because we still have a massive car culture we still have a problem with crazy males going and doing stupid shit like this. And we still have a lot of these, you know, clothes, you know, everywhere in the world does. But you look at Mad Max now and you put it next to something like Picnic and Hanging Rock and it's like, well, that one of those films feels really Australian and the other one feels like a hangover from England. Well, this one dotted lines to me so much to two other Australian films, which are The Cars That Ate Paris, that whole idea of the the town that is besieged by these crazies who go out at night with their super nutty cars. And there's one car in particular in the cars that ate Paris that will show up again to me anyway, in Fury road. I, I, I don't see why there's any doubt that though, that that is an homage to the cars that ate Paris, as far as these VWs that have all these spikes all over them. And then another one is another film that Roger Ward and Hugh Keysburn were in, which is uh, Stone. I mean, the whole idea of this bikey gang terrorizing the place, and there's a scene that happens in the town in there that reminds me uh, a lot of, of uh, what happens in Mad Max. To kind of add on to what you were saying, I mean, Australia, you guys had made films and stuff, but the film industry was really kind of kicking off in the late 60s early 70s and we've talked on the show before about uh you know things like wake and fright and uh, some of these other films where it really was kind of a, a nascent industry and and really took off and then i'm more interested in more of the exploitation kind of stuff as opposed to the more art house kind of stuff and that nation building thing that you're talking about but it's funny that there's those two things that are going on side by side how it really kicked off was sexploitation. <laughs> it was like Felicity and the Stork, which were all sex comedies. And, you know, like uh, Felicity is like the Australian version of Emmanuel. 
Um, and these were the films that made mega bucks and actually did start the Australian industry and gave people the experience they needed, the adventures of Barry McKenzie. And so the, the government funded that they referred to like as the AFC films, Australian Film Commission films were kind of like a pushback of being like, Oh no, oh no, this isn't us. This is, you know, we, 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 this is just, just terrible and lowbrow. This is not who we are. This is who we are. Put up for these museum pieces that already felt old when they were released. Mad Max even has like a, a, I don't know if it's deliberately a reference to it, but it feels like a little jumping off point from sexploitation because you do have uh, at the beginning where the chase is kicking off and the two, uh, what are, I what were their names, uh, Spoon or something, and the two dopey cops, uh, they one of them's looking through binoculars at a couple having sex just right. in the middle right. of a field. And it's like that's such an Aussie sexploitation moment and they just kind of run off naked and it's like, yep, little tip of the hat to the sexploitation that came beforehand. Yeah, trust me, I am very familiar with Felicity. I mean, <laughs> very familiar. <laughs> the Cars and Eight Paris uh, connection is, is really interesting because uh, – that's another film that sets up Australian culture as the divide between civilized and uncivilized and good and bad is very, very uh, weak. That it's like, yeah, that there's, 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 a, there's a lot of crossover between who's good and who's bad and it's, there really isn't any heroes. Well, yeah, that whole town, it runs off of corruption, the whole town of Paris in there. And, yeah, we've got uh, the gangs that go out at night, but they're just the kids of the people who are running the place, and the people who are running the place are completely complicit as well. So there's going to be Yeah, exactly. And that to me also feels very post-apocalyptic as well, as far as like we have this industry that just relies on wrecking cars and then taking things from those and then bartering, doing whatever we need to do, scavenging off of these cars and these people, and we'll do whatever it needs to to take to survive. And it feels to me like the world outside of Paris could easily be crumbling just as much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a mechanized carnivorous society. So I don't necessarily want to go through everything beat by beat when it comes here, because otherwise we'll be here for about five hours. Again, I just want to sing the praises of the toe cutter. That whole thing, when uh, one of his uh, henchmen, Kundalini, gets his arm ripped off, and uh, <laughs> he tells Max's wife that Kundalini wants his arm back. I mean, that whole scene, and when there's when the old woman pulls the gun on him, and I'll his reaction you. to that gun, oh my god. That there is Kundalini. And Kundalini wants his hand back. I want my baby. Tell you what, I'll swap you. Please, give me my baby. Jesse, 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 you've not got a sense of humor. Pretty face, though. Awful pretty, awful pretty. I suppose you don't need a sense of humor with a pretty face. The only trouble is, though, Missy, if you should. What do you want from me? Don't change the subject. Oh, I was right there. Ah! Ah, Old lady. Stand back. Stay back. Woman. Stay back. 
I love when they get into the the town. Uh, we see the film's called We Luke, We Jerusalem, W E E Space Jerusalem. I love it when they get into the town and it, it, Johnny the boy's got to keep his hair out of his eyes and he's walking along with his head back and Johnny's always trying to push his hair down. He's just like, ah, oh, ah, oh. it's just like, it's just these incredible moments that he brings. And apparently, uh, yeah, Hugh Keith Burton comes from a Shakespearean background and he would improvise a lot of this stuff on set. Um, the bit when they go, they're chasing after to Jesse Max's wife. Uh, and they pull up to the, the garage rat with the, 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 and he just starts chattering at him. And apparently Hugh Keys Burr just couldn't remember when he was meant to speak. And this like guy just keeps chattering at him. And so he just improvised, just reaching out and grabbing his nose and just holding it <laughs> like that. And then just started saying all the lines anyway. <laughs> and he wasn't, it's so perfect. And it just like feels like, yeah, that's, that's the, that's it. That's the scene done. <laughs> Well, it fits into the sort of lunacy of all their interactions. Like, like even when he, when they're, when they're out on the beach and, uh, and they've got the mannequin and he just, you know, suddenly he's just like, she's, you know, she's, she's not what she seems. <laughs> I just, it always feels to me like there is like this bizarre inner logic to how this gang operates that they all understand and we're just sort of, witnessing it you know like like you're saying when he's brushing the hair out of his eyes like yeah that's that's an understanding he has to do that <laughs> that's part of him being here there's the, the bit where he takes johnny boy the johnny the boy into the water mm. and that again was also improvised because when they were shooting there the the only good light was out in the water so they had to this scene that was just written as just a dialogue scene he and johnny with a boy wading out into the water and, and like Hugh Keysburn to Hogarth has this shotgun and completely improvised, just grabs Johnny the boy and shoves the shotgun into his mouth. And there was like a later interview with the actor who plays Johnny the boy and he's like, yeah, it kind of cut my mouth a bit. <laughs> I don't know, I wasn't really expecting it, but, you know, it really worked. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah. This this film um this film had a lot of happy accidents. <laughs> uh, nobody died despite the myths, but yeah, this improvisation uh, was often in a more uncontrolled way than in most films, and uh, yeah, very specifically when vehicles were flying through the air with rockets strapped to them and such. <laughs> Lots of improvisation by the vehicles and gravity. Yeah, it's very ironic that the worst accident in the film took place off screen with the whole Grant Page and the original leading lady getting all banged up and Grant Page breaking his leg and all these things off screen. You know, that's on the way to the set kind of thing, as opposed yeah. to in front of the camera. Yeah, and not even his fault, just the truck driver just taking a turn where he wasn't expecting with the light in his eyes and bam. Right. Down they go. They were lucky nobody was killed. But yeah, Grant, anybody who's seen Not Quite Hollywood will know who Grant Page is. He's the stunt guy that they spend a fair chunk of that film talking about. He's the guy who was like the greatest Australian lunatic stuntman, if not the world's greatest lunatic stuntman ever to live. He's, uh, he's done just about every most famous stunt in an Australian film was Grant Page. He did all of the Brian Trenchard Smith films. The, the amazing um, dream sequence in Mad Dog Morgan where the guy's on fire leaping off the cliff, that's Grant Page. 
he was infamous for just annihilating his body and yet would just bounce straight back and get on with it. And yeah, he was he he was in hospital for twenty four hours after this serious bike accident with broken legs, internal injuries, piss and blood. And he only but the only reason he was in there as long as twenty four hours is because that's how long he legally had to stay. Then he checked himself out and went straight back to the set. Now, unfortunately, he was mainly the stunt coordinator, so he could take a little bit of a backseat. But he still he was he was on the set, piss and blood. <laughs> I touched before about how. Overall, these four movies that we're talking about today switch genres and kind of change as we go along from one to the other. And we've made mention about how The Road Warrior is going to be much more post-apocalyptic than this one necessarily is. But even within Mad Max, there are these shifting genres. You know, I've made mention a couple times of different westerns like Rio Bravo and Once Upon a Time in the West. And then there's a scene later on in the film where they're chasing the wife through the forest. And I'm getting visions of like, I don't know, Last House on the Left or like some sort of like a slasher film. So it's like even within here, we have this subgenres that we're exploring. It almost turns into like a romantic movie, too, when he gives up being a cop and they go off and they, they are just sort of happy together on the road. And we're done with this other life for for this moment. And so, yeah, the, the way in which it continues to shift that way, I like how jarring that felt, you know, even watching it as a kid. Like, what kind of movie is this? I mean, I know how it's going to end, but but the way in which we're getting there is so different. Yeah, because once Max goes on his kill crazy rampage, that's not until the last, what, 15 minutes of the movie? If even that, it happens so quickly. It's just like as soon as he switches on, it's like bam, 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 just knocking him down. Yeah, as opposed to something like, I don't know, a death wish or something where it's just like, okay, this is going to be the rest of the film. Like that's the inciting incident in the first act. And then the rest of the movie is Paul Kersey, you know, taking his revenge on people or, or just anybody who gets in his way. In this one, yeah, it's like, okay, he builds, he builds, he builds, he builds, he gets pushed too far, and then bam, that's it. Last five, yeah, ten minutes of the film, he's just got to take care of everybody. And that's the thing, like, the way we're introduced to him, where we're not really seeing him at first, and how his car is the interceptor, but everybody else's pursuit. And so, and when he goes up against the Knight Rider, how it wrecks the Knight Rider when he loses the game of chicken. And it's sort of like, we're setting him, we're, we're even from the beginning, though, we're setting him up as this sort of unstoppable force and then the rest of the movie kind of shows him as this this family man and this kind of easygoing guy but it but even at the very beginning they're telling you like nope this is who he really could be because this is who in my opinion this is who he really is and then the last part of the movie it's just like okay he's lost everything (laughs) and except for the car and which he's finally just like you were saying, he's finally just embraced it. It's this is the last piece he needed to be that guy that was suggested at the very beginning of the movie. And then he becomes that guy, like you said, just for the last 10 minutes. I think that definitely comes from the relationship between Byron Kennedy and George Miller. Um, it's a real shame people don't talk more about Byron Kennedy, but it's because he did unfortunately die in a helicopter accident in 1983. I think it was during preparation for Thunderdome or yeah, maybe during right. shooting. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he like, but whenever you go back into any of the things like they talk about, it was Kennedy Miller. These were Kennedy Miller productions. These two were like yin and yang and just perfect together. Um, and there were, George talks about, uh, it might not have been George Miller. In one of the making of, they talk about, someone talked about how when it came to editing it, 
George was always looking for the softness, the weakness, you know, these moments where Max's humanity was showing through. And Byron Kennedy was like, no, he's invincible. He's unstoppable. You know, he's this man that just will stop at nothing and can do anything. And I think that, as you said, it's that's the film. Like this film is this tussle between these two sides of his identity of trying to become one or the other. And I think in that way, actually, there's another style of film, another genre of film that this ties to, and that's the old delinquent films, you know, very much something like Rebel Without a Cause or The Wild One, that I feel like there's a lot of that in it because those films are the same thing of the bad boy who's torn between civilized versus gang's life and everything like that. Max is in a bit of a different position to how it plays out in those, but it still continues those same kind of um, dichotomies. Yeah, and this whole idea of denying who you are, you know, that we do see Max as this badass at the beginning, and then he's a badass at the end, and it almost feels like he's kind of trying to deny that aspect of him. Fifi McAfee knows that that is inside of him, and he's trying to bring him out. You know, he keeps talking about, we need to give people their heroes back. It's just like, when he says, go out, grow yourself a beard. You know, like, like just, just go do that thing and get it out of the way, and then get back here and get to work. Go take your sabbatical. Go listen to your Michael McDonald on the beach down in Florida. <laughs> and then get back here. You and your here. wife and have a nice time, but for, for real. <laughs> right. And that inevitability of who he is and his fate is going to come up huge in The Road Warrior. The first two films, to me, they feel like the nightmares of a man. Like, that's what powers those films, is the, the nightmares of the of just the man on his own. I think the third film goes, we'll get to that, but in a whole different direction. The fourth film kind of comes back to being more about a nightmare of humanity. It's more about the group. But these first two films are very much about this nightmares of a broken individual. And I think that those landscapes, those huge open landscapes and those roads, it's like they're just there's, – they're, these people are just shearing off from society and there's nothing to catch hold of anymore and they just fly off the hook. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Fifi McAfee himself, Roger Ward. I'm very curious how you decided to get into the entertainment business. Oh, as a kid, I was always an entertainer as a kid, you know, like a young... I did my first play when I was 12, but I've been entertaining my neighbours for years, you know, so I was always a bit of a show-off kid, you know. So, And I did my first stage play when I was 12, so it was long before television came... Uh, to Australia and uh, feature films weren't being done here until a couple of more years later. But I, I did stage work for many years and radio, uh, showing my age. But uh, that's all that's all we had, you know, stage or radio, which I did. And then I went away when I was 20 to uh, Tahiti to write a book. And uh, when I came back, the film industry started a little bit here. So I started to get into the films and television had come as well. So I got into television and films then and still did theatre, but uh, not too much theatre because the money wasn't there. I was in the business to make money and, uh, and uh, you know, theatre didn't pay a great deal, whereas television and film, as you know, pays a lot more. So that's why I moved into that area more than theatre. What were some of those early roles like for you? Very easy, uh, mostly thugs, mostly heavies, coppers, all that sort of thing. I did a few American films where I was very pleased that the Americans kept coming back and they'd give me a call and say, hey, Roger, we got another film. You know, come in and have a chat. And there was no bullshit about it. I mean, they just said, listen, you can play the cop. He's got 21 days. 
you can pay the heavy. He's got 30 days. I say, oh, I'll take the heavy. You know, no crap, no bullshit or auditioning and all that. They just knew who you were, what you could do, and they just, you know, went, went along with it. But nowadays, thank God I'm not starting off today with a kid today. I mean, you know, cutthroat now. But in, in those days, it was easy and damn good fun and good money. Tell me more about the book that you wrote. The DVD of that is just coming out. I've actually got a copy of it now. First one off the press has not been released yet, but the DVD is a exceptional quality in respect of the background of the film. I was never happy with the film that they made from the book. I, I wrote the book in Tahiti, and uh, when I came back, I sold the film rights to an American producer-director who played around for about three years. He couldn't get the money, and finally, after three years, he got the finance but the film that he made wasn't the film that I wanted to be made. And uh, I can understand what he, why, because the book was about 700 pages long. And, of course, as you know, a film script is 120 pages. So it had to be cut. But he asked me to do the film script, and I said, look, I can't because I, I just can't cut my, my baby. I can't cut the arms and the legs off these characters in the, in the book. So he just outlined every page that he wanted me to make a film play of, and it happened to be the homosexual parts in the book. The book covers every area of sociological, uh, like women, young man, uh, older woman, young man, heterosexual relationship, homosexual relationship, and just a general sociological novel. But he, he wanted to make a film about homosexuality because he thought that was where the money was. And, and, and actually, that's where the money was because we had queues of people waiting to see the film. Uh, and it was showing at 26 weeks. Some theatres was holding it for six months, you know. So everybody wanted to see it. But when they did see it, they were disappointed because it wasn't a good film. I was angry about that, even though I made money. I was angry that what I spent 10 years writing had ended up, you know, this piece of trash film. So the DVD is out now, or will, will be released in a couple of weeks. And I've demanded that the novel is included as an e-book on the DVD so that the people who, yeah, they can see the film and then they can read the novel and see what it should have been. You know what I mean? So, so it makes me feel a lot better. And there's some lovely stuff in the extras interviewing the director 40 years later and he's living in Rome by now and on the edge of senility. And uh, the things he says in the interview is just outrageous. He claims he wrote the book and luckily the interviewers knew the background and they said, but, you know, we believe Roger. Oh, yeah, yeah, Roger, help me, you know. And, you know, it's just crazy. And it's really interesting historical stuff. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really worthwhile effort to get hold of that DVD when it comes out because it's got some interesting stuff in there. Did you do much writing for films apart from that as well? Yeah, well, I, I sold another. I wrote another novel called Reflex was set in, uh, well, originally Vietnam, and then I changed it to Iraq. But I sold the film rights to that as well. Before it was published, it hasn't even been published yet. But the, again, the director took upon himself to change the dialogue and change everything, and I ended up taking my name off of it, and it ended, ended up with a credit from Story by Roger Ward and film played by the director. Uh, I took my name off because I was embarrassed again with the content and didn't want my name associated to it. But I, I got a lot of money from that. They paid me a lot of money for the film rights. But I, again, I wasn't happy with the end result. 
but I'm now working on the, on the same novel, and I've written a trilogy, actually. That's the first in the trilogy. I'll finish the second, and I'm on the third. And I will then publish three together, like as, as, as a trilogy. But, um, I, yeah, I write a lot. Uh, not only that one, I've written television series, and uh, also That's Incredible. You used to have a show called That's Incredible. You remember that one? It was a, an American show called That's Incredible. I don't know if you know, it was like a reality show. Yeah, yeah, with, uh, oh, God, I'm trying to remember, John Davidson? It could, it could be, that's the host, was it? Is that the host? I you think mean? so. It was like a man, a woman, and maybe another guy? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, all sorts of outrageous, all, uh, all outrageous incidents. Well, I did all the Australian-New Zealand segments for that. I wrote the New Zealand and uh, Australian segments for that one with a partner of mine. And, uh, you know, other things I wrote for Crawford Productions down here. It's a uh, television uh, production house. I used to write for them. I was a script editor for them as well. So I do a lot of writing, yeah. yeah. I had no idea that you were involved with That's Incredible. That's hilarious. Yeah, I used to love that show. Yeah, yeah. They used to do a double feature of that and real people back-to-back every whatever night it was. All right. Yeah, well, there weren't many segments that coming out of this country in New Zealand, maybe five, six, but as I say, I was involved in those, writing them and co-producing them, yeah, from the sound, you know. I know that Stone was a huge hit, and I was very curious how you got involved in that film. It's because there weren't many actors around in Sydney uh, at that stage, like in the uh, late uh, 60s late 60s, early 70s, there's only about 20 or 30 of us that were making a living and we all knew each other, we were all mates and we all drank in the same hotel uh, on a Friday night and Friday nights was a big night, party night and we all got together and laughed and joked and, and cast each other, you know, we're all doing something and said, oh, what are you doing next week? I've got a film coming up, you know. It was just like a casting couch and we used to have a lot of fun there. I was doing a stage play at the time, actually it went for two years the stage play, and I was wearing a dinner suit every night in the stage play. And Sandy Harbutt said, look, I've got this film coming up, you know, biker film. I'd love you to play a part. And I said, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to. So I worked in the day on the film and then at theatre at night. And, and when they did night shoots, I'd, I'd have to go after the theatre, which was about 11 or 12 o'clock, I'd go. So I couldn't be as dirty and... And filthy as the other bikers, you know what I mean? Like I had to be a bit, I couldn't have a permanent earring. I put a false earring in and uh, I couldn't have a beard or a scruffy face because I was playing a suave character at night, you know, in a dinner suit. So I was the cleanest bikey there was. But <laughs> but I used to rush, you know, I'd ride my motorbike to the theatre and get out of my leathers and everything and or denims and then jump in a dinner suit, and then at 11 o'clock I'd get back in my denims and hop on the bike and go out to a night shoot. And uh, so I missed a few night shoots that way. I missed a bit of exposure in the film because of that. But uh, it was quite good to work all day and then go to the theatre at night. Uh, we had some fun on Stone, but it was just a matter of... I knew Sandy as an actor, fellow actor and a friend, and it was just a matter of, you know, would you be in my film? Yeah, sure. That's the way things were working in those days, you know. And the same with the same with the set. When the set was being made, all my friends would say to me, "Oh, can I play a part in the film? Can I play a part?" Yeah, sure, come along. You know, it was just just like that in those days. It's not the bullshit you get these days. It was quite easy and good fun. Had you had much experience riding bikes before that? Yeah, I had my own motorbike from the age of seventeen, 
So I'd only had the boat about one week, and I went on an interstate trip with a guy in the back seat, you know, on the picnic, and, uh, and my brother leading, my brother's three years older, he had had a bike for three years more than me, and we went to Melbourne, which was, uh, I was living in Adelaide at the time, and it was a four or five hundred mile trip, and only had the bike for a week, and off we went with a pillion passenger, but we did come off once on a very windy uh, gravel road, we came off on a very tight bend, but no damage, just a lot of fun, a lot of laughter. But no, I, I, as I say, I've been riding for years, and uh, so there was no problem about riding a bike in the film. I seem to remember seeing at least one scene of you from that movie that didn't end up in the final cut, or at least the cut that's out there now, I should say, because it was longer and then it got shorter, right? Yeah, was that a funeral scene? There was one scene of you sniffing panties. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I thought. I thought you meant that. Yeah, and so you did see the sniffy, you saw the actual sniff, did you? Well, I noticed it's not in the film. Uh, I think they, they cut it out, or Sandy cut it, because he was probably told to cut it. But I did. I think it might be in the, uh, in the DVD, maybe. It must hurt a little bit when your scenes are cut. Yeah, it does, yeah. Especially me. I was playing the bikey perv. You uh, may not have come across as that, but I tried my best to do that. He was the, he was the bikey perv. And the reason I didn't have a girl on the back of my bike, like all the other boys had a girl on the back of their bike, and we, we just grabbed a bunch of models. They weren't actresses, except for one of them. Uh, Suzanne Lloyd was an actress uh, and had been, but the others, a couple of them were, became actresses later, but they were just models at that time. But they didn't give me a girl for the back of my bike because Vince Skill, who played Dr. Death, couldn't ride a motorbike. He, he, he still can't even drive a car to this day. <laughs> so he could. He tried. He tried to ride the motorbike, but nearly killed everybody. Like ran when when ran a bike on a motorbike and you know, knocking down a film crew and God knows what. So they said, "Oh, there's no way you can ride a bike. You go on the back of Rogers." So I was disappointed because you know I wanted to go on the back of my bike, but I ended up with <laughs> Doctor Death on the back of the bike, uh, which really went against the fact that I was a bikey perv. You know, I mean, the bikey perv would surely have a girl on the back of his bike, but. Uh, I love the chemistry between you and Hugh Keysburn in that movie, but especially in The Man from Hong Kong. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Hugh's a lovely guy, a good actor. In Stone, it was the first time I met him, actually, and I remember asking someone about him. I was sitting on the ground, and I said to someone, who was this Hugh Keysburn guy? You know, he's a very good actor, and we're chatting away about him, and casually looked up, and, oh, my God, he's sitting on the fence above us. He <laughs> just listening into the conversation, oh my God, just as well I didn't say anything detrimental, you know, but, but he was sitting there on the fence, on the, on the big fence, and I was sitting on the ground, not knowing he's above me, <laughs> asking all these questions about him, but no, he's a good guy, and uh, then when, when we worked together on uh, Man from Hong Kong, uh, we had a good rapport, yeah, and uh, since then I've done a couple of other films with him, and uh, he's a great mate, I mean, he's, I consider him a friend, you know. And most of the boys are still friends, you know, from the acting world. We're all still friends. But, uh, we don't see each other as much as we used to. How was it working with Jimmy Wang Yu on that? Oh, I, I got on quite well with Jimmy. Uh, a lot of people didn't. I got on so well with him that they may be a uh, bodyguard for him. I was on the film from where to go, no matter whether I was working or not. Uh, as an actor, I was paid to be on the set to look after Jimmy or to protect him or to protect others from Jimmy, you know. Uh, because <laughs> he was a bit of an arsehole, as you've read, probably. Uh, but he treated Brian Franchise-Smith at that time with disrespect. 
Uh, and uh, Brian was a mate of mine long before uh, he was doing shorts and so on. When I first met him, he wasn't doing features and uh, he was a mate of mine and I wasn't having anybody treating him with disrespect the way Jimmy was. And I offered to give Jimmy a bit of a dust up, but Brian said, no, 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 no. I will fight my battles at the box office and I will win, you know, and he did. He, he made a lot of money. But um, Jimmy and, and he seem to be friends now. They, 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 I think they buried the hatchet, those two, and they're quite amiable now. You know, they get on quite well. But he was just an aggressive young uh, Chinese guy and uh, was a director as well. And with Brian's first directorial on a feature, and Jimmy got angry with him because he wasn't doing what Jimmy thought he should be doing got to the stage where he wouldn't even talk to Brian and Brian would say, Jimmy, and Jimmy would just turn his back and walk away and, you know, do his own thing. And that's what, you know, got me angry. But uh, he also, George Lazenby took him in hand, actually. And, you know, Jimmy's a Chinese guy and the Chinese are a little that way, that they're very uh, proud and very aggressive. And Jimmy considered himself a very good art, martial artist. And he thought that George Lazenby was also very good. He studied in Hong Kong. He was, um, he was going to take over from some somebody doing features in Hong Kong, and they taught him how to be a kung fu fighter. And he was very good. But Jimmy didn't know that or thought he was better than he was, and he attacked him in a joking way. He attacked him on the set. Well, George tied him up in knots and ended up giving him a good old Australian headlock and just Jimmy was, oh, excuse me, and, and made Jimmy look like a fool, you know. But George is a very good fighter, and he was then anyway, and Jimmy was tied up in knots. So Jimmy's not that not as good as he thought he was in the martial arts world. Was there any issue at that point shooting that beginning uh, sequence at Ayers Rock? Yeah, uh, we, were allowed, we were allowed to walk up the rock at this time. We were allowed to, but they said, you know, protect it and don't destroy anything. Again, Samo, Samo Hang, Samo, he, he was again Chinese. He, did, he couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Chinese, but he got carried away in the fight scene and picked up a boulder, a real boulder, and threw it at me from above me. He was above me on the slope, and a real boulder came hurtling at me, and I stepped aside, and, of course, it smashed on the rock, and the apparently the waters down below were going to berserk, threatening the you know, drag us off the rock and to stop. We weren't allowed to touch anything or destroy anything, so it did cause a bit of a problem. And now it's closed totally to the public. You can't can't climb it now anymore. But we're lucky to get that. There's, there's like quite historical, those scenes with people running around fighting on the top. It's, you can't do that anymore, yeah. Yeah, that is one hell of a way to start a movie. Yeah, very well done, actually. Yeah, Trenchard Smith's very good in his action stuff. Very good. And he, he, he he's a very good director. He can control controls his boys and we were very close mates and still are but when we were making the film he was always the director and I was always the actor you know it was never matey matey on the set it was it was you know Roger you know do this and but that night you know different matter you know laugh and jokes and drinks so that while you're on set it was all business you know which is the way I like it I, I wouldn't have it any other way but uh, what was your experience like on Mad Dog Morgan I was working in the theater at night again that same theater actually at night, and I got the call to do it, and I said, look, I, I'm actually in a theatre at night, I'll see if I can get some time off, and the theatre gave me a couple of days off, and I went down to Melbourne to do it. It was just a matter of using a whole stack of Australian actors. It was a good good ploy by the producer-director, 
And uh, it was a good ploy by him to do that. He, anybody who had a bit of a profile, he put into it. So he used that in his publicity for the adverts for the film. It said starring, you know, all these names, 20 or 30 names of so-called Australian stars, you know. And uh, it was a good ploy. But that guy that, that played uh, Mad Dog Morgan, um, the, um, the wild American boy. Uh, uh, Dennis Hopper. Oh, yeah, Dennis. He's a, he was a wild boy. He, he got out of hand as well. But they, they didn't seem to care. You know, they took, unlike Brian and Jimmy, um, the director of that one, and Dennis, they seemed to they let him get away with murder. You know, he got away with a lot, which I wouldn't have let him do if I was directing, but he did. He got away with a hell of a lot, including being an arsehole at night. You know, he'd, he'd have a party at his room and invite all the film crew and their girlfriends, and then as the girl stepped into the room, he'd slam the door on the guy and drag the girl in. Yeah, he ended up with about 20 girls in the room and about 20 guys on the balcony. Yeah, well, well, let me in, let me in. You know. <laughs> I, I luckily didn't have a girl. I, I didn't have a girl to take, and, but he wouldn't let me in, so I spent the night looking through the window. But the girls would, <laughs> the girls were equally as uh, uh, responsible because they were loving it. You know, they were all giggling and laughing, and they loved to be locked in a room with that American star, you know and their boyfriends are fuming outside. <laughs> Again, something wouldn't have happened if I had a girl, you know, but they let, they, go, they let him get away with it, you know? Ridiculous. The film scene in Australia in the 1970s, the early 1970s, was just kind of really getting off the ground, and you're there at the forefront of that, and you're working with a lot of first-time directors who would go on to do a whole lot of other stuff. But by the time 1978 comes around, are you still like, okay, yeah, I'll work with this guy, George Miller, that I've never heard of before? Are you like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll take a chance with this dude? There were, there were two George Millers in the town at that time uh, in, in Australia. George Miller in Melbourne was a friend of mine, and uh, he worked for Crawford Productions, who was a major production house down there in Melbourne, and I worked with him as a repertory player in all of their television shows. They had about four or five television shows going at once, and I was one of the repertory players, and I'd also been a writer for them. But George Miller was one of my friends from there, and when my agent rang me and said, oh, George Miller's coming to see you, uh, I immediately thought George Miller from Melbourne. I said, okay, fine. So when he did turn up, he was a stranger. And I said, oh, my God. He said, were you expecting the other George Miller? I said, yes, I was. And uh, I said, come in anyway, because I've got a roast on, because I put a roast on and had a dozen beers for George <laughs> from Melbourne. And George Miller, Dr. George Miller said, oh, no, no, I won't, I won't come in. I just want you to read this script and see if you'll play a part in the film. And uh, I said, well, come in anyway. And he finally came in, but he wouldn't have lunch although he did eventually, and he wouldn't have a drink, although he eventually did, but he stayed there for a couple of three hours, and we discussed, he showed me the script, and I, when I read my character, Fifi, with a shaved head, I said, ah, great, yeah, that, that just turned me, the shaved head, because I've always wanted to shave my head, and I always wanted an excuse to do so, and uh, so as soon as I read that, I said, yeah, I'd love to play this part, that was what turn me, you know, just a bald head, stupid thing I know, but that was what <laughs> it was, I mean, that sort of made the character for me, that he's got a bald head, and I knew the way I'd play him, you know, so I said to George yes, I'll, I'll do it but, you know, I, I need a certain amount of money, and George said, well, I haven't got much of that, and I said, well you know, I told him what I wanted he said, well, I can't pay, I can't pay that sort of money, I said, well, I'm sorry I'd love to play the part, but I just can't not be paid, and I'm not going to work for the money that you will offer me. So 
he just spent another 10, 15 minutes working out some facts and figures on the back of the script. And then he said, yes, I, I can do it. I can, I can pay you. I thought, oh, that's great. Thank you. How many weeks? He said, one. I'll put it off. I'll cram all of your work into one week. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> so, you know, from what could have been a four, four or five week shoot, we had to just cram it all up and, you know, cut, cut, cut and just cram my work in. But at the end of the week, I must say, I, I, I said to myself then, I said, gee, this film could go somewhere. I had a feeling about it. I don't know why. I just had a good feeling. And, and George also must have had a good feeling. And we looked at each other across the set and he, he said to me, well, Fifi, this is your last scene. He, he still calls me Fifi to this day. And he said, this is your last scene. And I said, yeah. And I was just on the verge of saying, look, George, I'll stay. I'll work for points, you know. I'll work for a piece of the action until we get what we want. And, and George was sort of humming and hawing as well. I could see he was thinking the same way. But then I said to myself, listen, you fought for this figure that you put yourself on a pedestal about, and then you're suddenly offering to work for nothing? No, don't. You, you know, you've set your criteria. Stand by it. So I said, yeah, George, okay, yeah, last scene. Mm, pity, but it's all over. So I walked away, and, uh, I, you know, we both sort of thought, mm, can he stay and work in some way of doing it? But in the end, I made the decision to go, and, and that was it. I wish to God I'd stayed on <laughs> for points. You know, it would have been lovely. <laughs> but uh, we became good friends, George and I, after that. And I was with him when he uh, got his first sale of a million dollars um, for Warner Brothers. I was in Melbourne, and uh, we always saw each other when we were in the same town. And uh, I was with him at the Roadshow, the distributors. And uh, they, they got a phone call from Warner Brothers, and they said, George, George, you've just sold to Warner Brothers for a million dollars. And George said, ah. And I said, well, well, I was excited. I'm jumping up and down. And George, he couldn't care less. He was just, oh, mm. right. I think it was because he was so far in debt that a million dollars probably wouldn't have got him out. But I realized that's probably what happened. You know? It's probably one of 15 million, you know, not one. But we, we, we've been friends. We had a bit of an upset along the line. But over Mad Max 2, he often, he wanted me to do Mad Max 2 playing Humongous. But we had a, a game about money. This time this time I said I wanted a certain figure of money and an outrageous figure because I worked for peanuts in the first and George lost his cool and threw me out of his office and we didn't speak for 10 years after that. But we're mates again. But uh, but he, he, as I say, asked me to do the second film and I said, yeah, I'll do it, but I want, I want to be paid really well and he, he wouldn't wear it. So that was it. Yeah, you definitely seem to have the build for the humongous. Yeah, well, a lot of people seem to think it's it is me, and I know Shell, Shell that played the part, um, Shell Nielsen. I worked in a pirate movie with him on the pirate movie after Mad Max Two was made. I was doing the pirate movie, and Shell was on that. And I said to Shell, "I let my um, I've got a confession to tell you." I said, "A lot of people seem to think it's me playing Humongous," and I said, "I got sick and tired of telling people it wasn't me." So when they say to me now. I saw you playing Among Us. I say, oh, yeah, did you enjoy the part? You know, all this. I said, I'm sorry. But that's, he said, oh, that's okay. He said, I told people I played Fifi. He <laughs> 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 <You> got even. <laughs> uh, but I, I saw a show the other day, a couple of weeks ago, for the Mad Max 40th. Uh, it was Mad Max 1, but he he was in Mad Max 2, as you know. But he came, up, he came along and, uh, you know, he's... He's, he's always been a friend of mine ever since the pirate movie. 
nice guy. How did you go about approaching Fifi? Oh, it's just since I read the character, I, I just knew how to play him. I, I just knew he was over the top and uh, uh, an outrageous, over the top leader. You know, like try to influence everybody with his with his um, eagerness or the eagerness to move and get things done. As a matter of fact, uh, that scene I did on the stairway, you and me, Max, were going to give him back the heroes. That one, when, I remember seeing the rushes the next day with Grant Page, who again is a, the stuntman on the film and also a great mate of mine and long before films, uh, Grant was a friend of mine. He he was in the, in the rushes with me and he said to me, oh, mate, you know, you're over the top. Give it a break, you're over the top. But I, I knew that's, that's what it stands out like when you're just looking at rushes on a stand alone. It does look as though you're standing, you know, over the top. But then a few weeks ago at the Mad Max 40th, Grant came to me and he said, hey, I just saw Mad Max on, on television last night or the night before. He said, congratulations, that's great work. And I said, mate, thanks for saying that, but don't you remember during rushes you told me that I was that? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But looking at it now in context, he said, it's not over the top, you know, when you see it in the film itself. But at that stage, he thought I was going overboard, you know. I don't go into the background of the characters. I just see the character, read the character, and I know exactly how I'm going to play them. I mean, I play maybe 50 or 60 different types of people, so they're never the same. Some are similar, but never the same. Um, so that's, I just felt that's the way you should go over the top. And I often think how it would be if someone else had played the part. You know, if they played it low-key like you're just an ordinary guy, would it have had the same impact? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you and yeah, come on, Max, you know, we've got to give him back your heroes. You know, come on, buddy. If we'd done it low-key, it probably would have worked. But uh, I just thought it had to be over the top, you know? I, I just felt that way. I just absolutely love that scene of you watering your houseplants. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was George's idea. The scarf was my idea, the black scarf around the neck, because I knew I had to be bare top. And I always think the bare top is a bit barren, you know, it's always a bit barren. So I thought, I need something. So I said to one of my mate's wives who worked in the industry, the clothing industry, I said, can you get me some black cloth, make a big, long scarf for me, which she did. And that, that was it. And, of course, the leather pants was George's idea, but... People seeing the film after it came out, they said, oh, my God, leather pants, black scarves, you know, come on, gay boy. They thought it was a gay boy, you know. <laughs> so I, I didn't even give that a thought, you know, when I was doing the film. I didn't even think about gayness or what, what looked gay. I just thought, you know, a black scarf would break the, break the body up, the same as I grew the, I grew the moustache for the same reason when they said shave your head. I knew that I looked very barren with a bald head, so I grew the moustache to break the face up, you know what I mean, to put some something in the middle. And the same with the scarf, I did that. So it's just these things that come naturally to your mentality and say, that needs this, it needs that. Well, the same with the interpretation. I just I just say, oh, well, it needs this, and, you know, that's what it needs. And I, I played the boxer once, and I thought he just needed the cauliflower ear, so I built my ear out outrageously with a great big cauliflower ear. You know, just minor things that make a difference you know, to the character and uh, help me with my interpretation, you know, if I look the past, you know. It almost sounds like you go from outside in rather than inside out. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's right. All this bullshit about actors saying, oh, my God, I, I, I 
couldn't sleep for four weeks while I was doing that film. I was just living the character for four weeks. It's a load of bullshit, you know. You, 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 when you're an actor, you've got to, especially on film, you've got to be aware of where your mark is. You've got to be aware of the cameras, where your co-worker is. You know, you've got to be aware of so many things. You can't immerse yourself into the character. You just can't be a zombie. You can't be that character. You've got to know, you know. You've got to work to a point on the spot. You've got to work to here and there, four steps to the right. And, you know, you've got to be a, a technician as well. You just can't be an actor. So you, it's, it's bullshit about these actors saying, oh, God, I lived the part. I just couldn't, you know, my wife couldn't live with me. You know, that's a lot of bullshit as far as I'm concerned. You said that while you were making the movie, you felt like, hey, this might be something. When did you actually realize after it came out, yeah, this is going to be something? Well, I wasn't in town when I came out. I made that film in 77, and I think at the end of 77. I went overseas in 78 February, so I wasn't there for the fanfare. I went over to uh, Europe, and I was wandering around Europe in Copenhagen, and I suddenly saw a, a cutout of me, a, a life-size cutout of me in the foyer. And what the? And it was a Mad Max was showing with the American dub, American voice. So I went into the makeup, uh, to the counter, and I said, excuse me, can, do you, can I come in and see this film? I'm in that film. You know, by then I had hair and no moustache. I looked like a bloody backpacker, which I was. And she said, oh, get out, get out. I said, no, no, I'm in the film. I would like, that's me over there. That poster is me, uh, that cutout figure. You know, can I come in and see the film? She called the manager, and the, and the manager came out. I said, look, that's me. I'm in the film. Can I come in and look at it? Get out or I'll call the police. I thought, oh, my God. So I went. I didn't ever see the film. So it wasn't until about two years later that I realized that the film was, you know, big time. I, I had no idea because I hadn't seen the film and uh, hadn't read the publicity. And it wasn't until then that I knew that it was, you know, on the verge of being something worthwhile. And that was like two years later when George offered me the Maybach too, you know, that's when I knew that things were moving and that's why I asked for an outrageous figure because I knew that he made a stack of money and, uh, and, and I asked for a, a 50 grand, which is not a, an outrageous figure these days, but I said, look, I need 50 grand, George. He said, what? And he jumped in, all oh, this little shy, shy little guy with a bow tie on that came to my door, you know, th two, three years before was no more. He was George Miller, executive producer. He jumped up at his desk and pointed to the door and said, get out, get out of my office. <laughs> God, shy little George Miller suddenly become a, a, an executive. What was, uh, what was Byron Kennedy like on set? I didn't like Byron a great deal. He's aggressive. Uh, although he showed me a lot of respect and his parents as well. He had his parents on set, and his parents knew me from what I'd done in the past, and they treated me with a hell of a lot of respect. And uh, but something about Byron, I didn't like. He was an aggressive, an aggressive attitude, not to me, but to all the others. Like for instance, Johnny the Boy, the bloke who played Johnny the Boy, he uh, he had wore his own suit. He, had, he wore a grey suit, like a proper clothing suit, uh, suit of clothes, and uh, it was his own. It was his own. And uh, one day. He got a sticker, a, a company car or motorbike, whatever it was he was using, with a company bike or company car, and he got a he got a parking sticker. And they said, "Oh, John, uh, Johnny the boy, you've got to pay that parking fine." He said, "No bullshit, it's a, it's a company car or company motorbike or whatever. What you pay the parking fine?" And they said, "You pay it, or we won't give you back your suit." And they confiscated his grey suit. 
which, you know, was a probably a $100, $200 in those days suit. And they kept it, kept it until he paid them the money for the fine, the parking fine, which was probably only $15, you know. So that was, that was Byron. He was quite a tough guy, uh, financially tough, you know. And they made a lot of him. They made a, they made a hero out of him, actually, when he died. Uh, they made a hero out of him, as you're probably aware. And in Fox Studios down here, they've even got a roadway named after him, and they've got awards named after him, you know, the Byron Kennedy Award and all this. But they made him into a, a superstar after his death. But I happen to know, you know, what he was like in real life. I mean, he wrote a few articles for the, for the film and television board, and I was privileged to see what he wrote originally. It was like a five-year-old kid wrote it, you know, and then they had to edit it. They edited it and edited it. They actually commented to me, have a look at this, have a look at the crap. We have a, all the work had got ahead of us to edit this into some reasonable way of speaking. But that went out in the magazines or wherever it went with us, with edited by professionals, and everybody thought Byron wrote it, you know. Oh, what a, what a wonderful, cluey man he is. But in actual fact, it was ghostwritten by other people. But Byron got the credit for all that, you know what I mean? So I was in the position of seeing what he was like in real life. I'm not knocking the man, I'm just stating facts, you know. But they made a hero out of someone that doesn't, that to me, didn't deserve to be a hero. I mean, George Miller's gone on to prove that he is what he is. Given time, Byron may have gone on to prove that he was a great producer, a great director, whatever he is, but he didn't have time to do that. But I just happened to see what he was like in those early days, that's all. When you finally did see Mad Max, did you see that dubbed version first or the regular version? I saw the American version. I was in Jordan in the Middle East doing a film, and we all stopped off at a, a video store, and there it was, Mad Max in the video store. And we spoke to the owner that way. Someone else spoke to the owner, the director of the film, and I, we didn't get thrown out this time. And he <laughs> put it on. <laughs> he put it on in the, in the store, uh, and I cringed because it was the American version. And the voices they used for me was unbelievable bad. I've since met the guy that did the voices. He's a, he was an Englishman who, who was reared in Australia. And I met him when he was about 15 in Australia. And I didn't know. And then he went back to England to live. And then he did the dub. And I thought it was some American. But he was an, he was an Englishman who lived in Australia and did the American dub. Can you believe that in London? So I was cringing when I saw it in, in Jordan, in the Middle East. I said, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. Uh, I was really unhappy. But when I came back to Australia, I finally saw the version, the real version, and I was quite happy with the film. And I've, I've only seen it about four times. Each time I see it, I say, oh, that's been re-edited. Have you re-edited it? No. I said, oh, God, I'm seeing things there that I don't remember. So each time I see it, I see something new. So every time I see it, it's... It's a new film. I'm, you know, it's like it's nice to see because you think, oh my god, this is a bloody good film, uh, and uh, and it is good, good film. Yeah. You were only on the film for a week, and I say only, like in quotes. Did they use everything of you, or were there any scenes of yours that got cut? Nothing was thrown out. Nothing that I shot was chucked out. But there could have been more work there for me. That uh, you know, cut, you know, that I could have done further in the film itself. They didn't, I mean, but none of my work that I remember was cut or thrown out. They used every inch of that I shot, but there could have been some other stuff I've done, I can't remember, but uh, I did have a script at one stage and uh, it, was, it was hidden in the shed and the, and the, co- the cockroaches got to it and ate it. So uh, <laughs> I went down to read it one day and it was all just shreds. So 
Uh, but no, there was. I could have done, continued on and done more work, but no, but nothing that I, everything I did was used, was used yeah, yeah. I really liked the film that you were in, The Chain Reaction. I thought that was a terrific movie. Yeah, yeah. That's the Hugh Key Byrne and, and Goose. What's it, Goose? Uh, yeah, Steve Bisley, yeah, that's right. Steve Bisley, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We call him the Biz, the Biz, we call him. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was a. Uh, and that was they just asked me to do it because George was associate producer on that. Um he just asked us to do it. And you, you probably know that Mel Gibson's in there as well on the floor as a mechanic. Did you notice that? No, I didn't notice that. Oh, in the opening sequence, that's where I'm in, in the opening sequence. Well, under the car a, a mechanic comes out on a on a wheel he's laying on his back and he comes out from under the car and that's Mel Gibson. And so there's Mel yeah, Mel Gibson, Bisley, Hugh Keysburn and me. And so they wanted us all together just to sort of do a little cameo each, you know, that's all. Oh, Bisley didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gibson said, I don't want a credit, you know, I don't want a credit. Uh, but he just did it. But you'll notice that he comes out from under the car on a trolley and on his back. And that's, you'll have a look, you can see it's Gibson. Yeah, yeah that was quite a good film. And uh, Bisley, Bisley went on to do some good stuff, actually. But uh, he's, uh, I did a film with him the other day, uh, maybe a year ago, uh, called Boar. And... Uh, he was uh, he was due to do a longer part, but uh, they they ran out of money and uh, the, the film crew went on strike and God knows what because they ran out of money and so we I, I finished the film without being paid and then because we weren't being paid he took off he um, Disley took off and said oh, I'm I'm not coming back so he he just he just did a, a little spot and now it ends up they kept it in the film and it's, it's a really good cameo but it looks like. Bisley doing a cameo in the film, like just a, a one scene. But in actual fact, he had a lot more to do, but he refused to go back because he, he thought the money wasn't going to be there. And it wasn't there for it wasn't there for 18 months. I took 18 months to get paid. But the producers kept me informed. They said, look, we're, we're doing what we can. And I was I was happy with that. They kept informed, and then they paid me everything they owed me plus. And I was happy. But Bisley lost his cool and said, no, bugger it, I'm not going back. Forget it. And uh, he actually said to me, uh, we went to Japan together, probably three years ago, and um, he said to me, ah, oh, boys, finish, mate, boys. You'll never get your money. It'll never be shown, you know. And he, he was bad-mouthing it, but, that, like, later I got paid and the film has been released. But uh, he's probably sorry now that he didn't stay on. But his cameo is very good. and It's not it's not been wasted. It's a very good little scene. But it does look like he just did a cameo. I know you worked with Brian Trenchard Smith a lot over the years. And of course, I have to ask you about Turkey Shoot because that movie is just bonkers. Yes, well, um, I forget it. Uh, Trenchard must have rang me or something. Uh, he, he, he came to my house for dinner for a man from Hong Kong. He came to my house for dinner and, and, and then announced that he wanted me for that film. Uh, with Turkey Shoot, I think it was just a, just a phone call and said, look, I've got this part for you. It came up the cans, you know. And, uh, at that time, uh, there was an airline strike, and I couldn't fly to Cairns, which is a couple of thousand, three thousand miles from where I am. So uh, I drove to, I drove, took a car and drove up the coast, stopping on the way. And I was about four hundred mile away from from location, still on my way up, when I got a telegram saying, you know, start work tomorrow morning. Where are you? Come on, oh. for God's sake! Oh, what? <laughs> I had to drive four hundred miles, like a hundred mile an hour to get there and of course I had a moustache and I had hair and they, they threw me in a makeup chair and dyed the moustache and 
shaved my head and the next day I'm out there slaying the guards from hell, you know, so it was all sudden. I, you know, I, I thought I had a couple of weeks and suddenly it all happened. So it was a bit of a shock. But um, the first scene I did was the first scene in the film. The first scene I played was the first scene in the film and I wasn't happy with that at all. But looking at it now, it's not so bad. But for a long time after I made that film and I saw the film, I hated that scene. I hit the bloke over the head with a with a with a truncheon, and uh, the camera angle from way down below looking up at me, and I hated it. So I said, "Oh my God, that's terrible." But uh, looking at it now, it's not so bad. I don't mind it. But uh, then, of course, as we went on in the film, I got I, I started to enjoy it, and really did enjoy the film. You know, got, I got into it. I liked it. I'm always surprised in that movie when that like werewolf guy shows up. It's like, where did yeah. this come from? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a guy called. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Trenchard uh, is a bit that way. He loves a bit of fun. He's a very comedic guy and loves a bit of fun in that respect. But he was supposed to be a sort of a freak. And uh, it's played by uh, a guy called Steve Rackman, uh, who's a professional wrestler. And he did a bit of, a bit of acting. He did one film. He played the lead in one film. And he was very good. And when I told him he was good, he thought I was having him on. He thought I was making fun of him. I said, no, honestly, you are very good in the film. He still didn't believe me, but he was good. He was playing the Lord Mayor of a town, and I can't remember the name of the film, but he wore a white suit and all that, and he was very good in it. But he, he considers himself an extra and puts himself down a lot of time, and he's given away the acting now. He did Crocodile Dundee, you may remember. He did Donk. He played Donk in Crocodile Dundee. Well... He's he's living in Melbourne now, but he's retired from both wrestling and acting. And uh, so, but that's who he was. But Trenchard Smith did a good job with that and cutting him in half with the <laughs> with the bulldozer. <laughs> Poor old Steve was paranoid about that. He was really worried about that <laughs> with that bulldozer coming towards him. Well, he said he gave up acting. You definitely have, and it looks like you've got a lot of stuff that you're working on right now. Yeah, yeah, I, I haven't given it up, and I won't give it up. Uh, but I, I'm getting more respect now, funnily enough, than I did in all the years of my acting. The uh, younger, younger actors, young, young directors. I mean, coming up now, uh, they all look at the old films and and they, you know, they contact me uh, direct. Matter of fact, uh, I've got I've got an agent, but I don't think he's got me a job in ten years. And every film I've ever done is, um, you know, direct contact. Well, I give it to my agent to negotiate, but he, for him to actually get it, uh, I don't think anybody goes to the agent anymore. They all come straight to me direct, which is good. Uh, young young guys. Yeah, I'm just looking now. I've got uh, I've got a pre-production called Paid in Blood, another one called We the Survivors, another one called The Shinjuku Five. Uh, they, they're all pre-production, so I haven't started those yet. Another one's waiting to be... We finished it called Death's Waiting Room and The Death Collector, they're both finished, and The Faceless Man's just been finished, and Choir Girl. So they're all done in the last couple of years. And uh, as I say, all by direct contact from young actors, young directors asking me to work, and I love it. You know, I love I love getting the call from the. I'm, I've got two more to do: one in May and one in July. Again, young directors asking me, would I would I do it? I don't like to ask them too much money, but I just can't work. You know, for peanuts. So it's a bit of a you know catch twenty two where I'd love to help the young kids out, but I I just can't work for nothing. You know. And some of them do expect me to work for nothing. I say, I'm sorry, man. There's no way in the world. You know, if I was a dentist, would you come to ask me to pull your teeth for nothing? You know, forget it. You know, I'm an actor. I've got to be paid. 
so I, I you say I said you can pay me this figure. It's a figure I got forty years ago, but I'll work for it now just to help you out. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. You know, so you know, I'm actually working for fees that I got forty years ago just to help these young kids out. You know, maybe the word's out. Maybe that's why they're ringing me. They say, "No, Ward, he's a bloody idiot. He worked for peanuts." You know, maybe that's why they're all ringing me. Maybe, yeah. But uh, I don't mind. You know, it's pocket money. It's good. Well, I know you've done so many things. You've worked on stage. You've been a writer. You've acted in films and on television. So are you still doing all of those things, or have you limited yourself to just the films, or what's going on? Yeah, forget the stage. I don't do stage anymore. Uh, usually when I do a stage play, I think the maximum you can put together a week is probably you know two grand a week or whatever. You'll inevitably tie yourself up for three months for a, film, uh, for a, for a stage play, and then sure enough, a film's going to come along, you know, worth 20, 30, 40 grand, and you just can't do it, you know. So I don't I don't lock myself away on stage anymore. Too many times I've been burnt, you know, where I've been doing a stage play and, and someone comes up and says, ah, are you doing this film? What film? Oh, this film. I, I haven't heard about it. They said, well, you probably will. And they look at the cast page and it says, Johnny, a Roger Ward type character, you know. <laughs> so they're obviously going to ask me to do it, you know. And sure enough, they did ask me. And I try to get time off in the stage play, and no, 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 you can't go. So, you know, you just lose too much money. So I don't do stage anymore for that reason. And also the fact is it's bloody hard work and nerve-wracking, you know, it's quite nerve-wracking. And uh, I throw myself into the, uh, you know, de- I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a dedicated actor. Once I start working, I'm dedicated, and uh, it's, it's very draining, you know, every night for three hours, you, you know, you drain yourself and the but so I don't like this day and age. I don't want to do that. So films and television and writing. I, I, I edit other people's work as well. I rewrite and edit other people's work for, at a fee, you know, and uh, that's quite lucrative. And, and my wife is a journalist as well, and she's a, she studied in London at, at Oxford, and she's extremely good. And so she works with me. I, you know, I get the credit, but she does most of the work. You know, as the, as the editor. <laughs> But I've got to split the money. I've got to give her half. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, at least she gets some of the money. <laughs> she gets a lot, I tell you that. Gets a lot of it. <laughs> Indirectly, yeah. But I do like writing, uh, and, I, and I like editing. I really do like that. And, uh, and I do like the finished product of acting on screen, the finished product. Like I said to one of the young guys the other day, I said, look, when, you know, he asked me to do this film, and he's, we didn't negotiate any money. I said, look, I work on your film for Peanuts, and yet you're doing your film with the same mental stress, the same mental stress of learning lines, of doing the job, as doing a blockbuster, you know. And yet a blockbuster would pay 50, 60 grand. And for yours, I'm you know, working for 1,500 or two, two grand a week, you know. And it's the same mental anguish. So, you know, I'm giving you a lot. You know, I understand, I understand. So, you know, I'd much rather be doing a blockbuster than, than a small independent film. But... The blockbusters aren't knocking on my door at the moment, so you know I do the independence. What has been your favorite work? What What do you appreciate the most when you see that up on screen, or when people ask you about it? Hmm. Yeah, a lot of people uh, say that to me, and uh, I, I really don't. I, at that stage, I, I didn't have a favorite film. Every film I've ever done has something wrong with it that I don't like. Not necessarily my performance, but the film itself. You know, like people say, what film is the best, and all that. So every film I've ever done, including Mad Max has a certain little areas of it that I don't like, that it slows down or seems to drift away from what they're, what they're angling at, every film. And uh, 
So I didn't ever have a favourite uh, film. As a performance, I do like Turkish Shoot. I like my performance in Turkish Shoot. I like my performance in Mad Max. I think the best I ever did was my first major television show. I'd done bits and pieces and, and bit parts and, you know, supports. But my first lead was a television series called The Wild Cockatoo. Well, the episode was called The Wild Cockatoo. And he was a, a, a security guard who wore a suit had a wife, and uh, it was an everyday character, a really nice character, but it was a bloody good part. You know, a lot of action, a lot of adventure, uh, a lot of fights and so on, but Mr. Suave, you know, and I uh, was my was way back in the 60s, and I loved it, you know, and I, and I really can't go beyond that. I really liked it, that part. It was a really good part. It was the first time I got recognised as a so-called uh, actor. I remember I was showing in my hometown, Adelaide, and I had never seen it. So I went down to my hometown, Adelaide, to see it. And the press got hold of it and said, Roger Ward in town to watch his performance in Homicide tonight. You know, the press got on, made a bit of publicity about it. And I watched the show that night and enjoyed it. And the next day, I went to the local market. We've got a marketplace in Adelaide. I went to the local market, and I was with a girl, and everybody was yelling out, all the marketeers, hey, buddy, hey, I saw you last night. It was the first time I was recognised as an actor. And I'd, I was signing autographs, having a photograph taken, and I absolutely loved it. And anyway, we left the market, and I'm about a quarter of a mile away, and I suddenly stopped. And my, my girl said, what, what's wrong, what's wrong? I said, I'm going back. She's like, basically, I'm going back. I wanted, I wanted more. <laughs> I went back. I went back and strutted down those aisles and got more. I just loved it, you know. But uh, now it happens, you know, wherever you go in the world, you know, Singapore, India, Sri Lanka, England, doesn't matter where you go, you get recognised for something, you know. And I, I like it. I don't, I don't mind it. I like it. I just like to know that the work's out there and people are appreciating it, you know. It's a nice feeling. Well, Mr. Ward, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Oh, great. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. We spoke for a long time. I got billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> I hope oh, that's my. all right. I, I really appreciate this.
works alone against all odds. He may be the best chance we've got. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. out there somewhere all right we're back and we're discussing the mad max series up next the road warrior as we yanks call it or mad max 2 as it was known in the rest of the world my god i'm not going to ask you guys when you first saw this because i think you covered that off earlier but this was my entree into the franchise and I couldn't get enough of it, and it sounds, Mike, definitely like you were the same. I've watched the last 30 minutes of this movie probably more than I've watched anything. (laughs) It's just, it was the ultimate action sequence, not just because it was real, (laughs) but because it was just so continuous. Like It was just this nonstop insanity. As soon as this car chase begins, it is just, it's not going to end until pretty much all the cars are ruined. (laughs) As a kid, like this character, this, this sort of, this guy who is completely self-sufficient, but also completely alone and also just driven by all these demons just had, just had such resonance for me that he could, he continually gets pulled into all these situations or inserts himself to a certain extent in these situations, but still, like I said earlier, just remains apart because he's so broken and so unwilling to, to, to try to reconnect in any way. It's, it, there's, there's so much in this movie that, <laughs> that, that appeals to me on so many different levels. I've had such a weird relationship with the second one. It's still weird hearing people call it the Road Warrior. Since <laughs> since DVD and Blu-ray, because it's put out by Village and Warner and they're just really tight-ass people who put out the same disc through the entire world, everywhere and now in Australia it's called the Road Warrior as well, but it'll always be Mad Max 2 to me. It's the opposite of what you guys had with the audio on the first one. Um, I come and go with this one. Like, it's still, it is a phenomenal film. It is an incredible piece of action cinema. But coming back to it this time, it, ah, oh, it's, it's that met the hero of a thousand faces thing. I feel like it just empties the film out too much. And I watching it this time. I just was like, I just, I want all the weird textures and hooks and oddness that the, the first and the fourth one has that feels like something can really take hold. And it's like this, the second one's almost too smooth, too clean. Miller himself has said that 
after making the first film, they took that that it was such a huge hit worldwide, and they travelled around everywhere. And everywhere they went, that it was like, oh, in this culture, it was you know it represented this archetype, and this culture was that archetype. And I feel like, and he says, like we went and we read Hero of a Thousand Faces, and we worked from there and making the second one. And I feel like that actually takes away from whatever was in the first film that made it that incredible uh, seed. And, you know, maybe maybe there could never have been a Mad Max 2 that had that same kind of messiness. Maybe that wasn't how the tree was meant to grow. Uh, maybe it needed a sleek kind of mode where it was really just gunning for pulse-pounding action. But coming back to it now, it was like, oh, it was like the last time I watched Star Wars, but it was like, oh, yeah. I used to like this, but this is kind of eh now, and I'm going to get so much hate mail for that, but fuck Star Wars <laughs> <laughs> and fuck Joseph Campbell. <laughs> but it, yes, it is still oh, some of those fights, some of those car chase sequences, and, you know, we, any film that gives us Vernon Wells as Wes is perfectly okay by me. <laughs> <laughs> That's still a treasure to be like, oh, never let go of with that like that hair and those arseless chaps. Well, it's not just Wes for me. I mean, so much of this movie is the gyro captain to me. I fucking love that character. Yeah, he was my favorite character when I was a kid. I think I probably just watched the scenes with him over and over again. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's always Max. It's this movie is the the natural progression for his for his character out of the end of the or the events of the first one and how he is so driven to just survive but then at the end after his after once again everything is taken from him and how he that's that moment when when he says you know he said why the big change of heart and he just says believe me i don't have a choice for me that was always that always was this is the only way I can kill all those people, and that's what I do now. <laughs> See, for me, that line was, "This is the hero's journey," you know, and that's that's what I have to do. You know, there is no other thing for me to do. That's the fate thing that I was talking about before. It's weird it's though because I I feel like I agree with you that it is the fate thing, but I don't. I never see him seeing himself as the hero, <laughs> just as the as the I'm not doing this to save you. It's really interesting that you both that you have those different positions because I think that the the films are quite open to interpretation on why the characters are doing things. But I, from what I understand, the the intentions, at least later on, were quite quite strict. Um, because just to jump ahead a bit and talking about Furiosa's character, I always kind of took her as being, you know, oh, she was saving these women and getting them away from that. But the way that Shelley's there on and Miller envisaged her was that she had been so badly hurt by Immortan Joe that this was the way to hurt him. And by taking the women away, that was the thing that would hurt him most. And so it was 100% about the warrior trying to inflict this mortal blow on their enemy. And I think that same thing works in Mad Max 2, where it's like you can definitely read it as the hero who's going to do this. And yet I don't think – I really don't think that it is because I one of the things I was trying to figure out in these films is how sacrifice works in them. Because it constantly keeps coming back to, you know, these sacrifices of people giving up their lives or having to give up being in part of the group and do the whole John Wayne, the searchers moment, which 
Mad Max 2 100% has that, but there's no house left. <laughs> but it's it's like yeah, if you if you if you look at it being that it really is just like no, like as as you said, uh, Mike T, uh, the that it is this kind of just this brutality of just like nah, I'm gonna fuck these people up, and that's how it's gonna be. Not to jump ahead, but it's interesting to me what you're saying about Furiosa in Fury Road and how in that movie. Max has so, and for me, has so much more humanity and sort of uncertainty in, in terms of you know what he's doing and 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 where he fits in all this. Whereas again, in these in the Road Warrior and in Thunderdome, he just seems to me to be very completely focused on this is how things are going to work. It's very forward momentum, and it's just like he's like an arrow, and he doesn't know where he's going to land, but he's going to fly there anyway. It's absolutely bizarre to me that The Road Warrior was only two years later than Mad Max, but Mel Gibson looks so much older and so much more beat up. I think they do a fantastic job with the makeup on him, giving him that little touch of gray on the side. I think they shot Mad Max around like 77, 78, and... Mad Max 2 was like 81. So I think he was, if I remember rightly, he was about 21 when he did the first one. And he was about 25 when he did the second one. He sure doesn't look 25, though, to me. No, yeah, nah. he looks like he, yeah, he looks way older than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, well, it's actually, you mentioned uh, Waking Fright earlier, and this is shot around, this Mad Max 2 was shot around Broken Hill, which is where they shot Waking Fright. Um, so there's an interesting little echo of it. <laughs> fucked Australian cultures. <laughs> I don't know why, but it took me until probably when I was in college and somebody said that they were watching the Road Warrior for a, a class on Westerns. And I was just like, oh, wh- why is that? Why are you watching that? <laughs> I had never seen Shane before, obviously. And more than anything, it, the whole Cowboys and Indians thing just runs rampant through this film. And I never got that until I finally started to think about it. I was like, Oh yeah, I guess I guess Wes uses an arrow, and yeah, I guess this guy uses an arrow too. And oh yeah, he's got a mohawk, and so does this other guy, and this other guy, and this other guy. And then even talking with Vernon Wells, and he's talking about the feathers around the neck and stuff. And I was just like, yeah, circling the wagons. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely circling the wagons. Yeah, and Miller talked about how how stagecoach informed that the ending and the you know, the ending chase sequence of that movie too. Yeah, I see a lot of stagecoach now. I definitely see Shane with this whole reluctant hero kind of thing. And I think, if memory serves, I'll I'll play it later on. But I think uh, Bruce Spence said that when they got together, they watched Shane and Yojimbo back to back in order to talk about how they were going to build these characters. And we talked about in Yojimbo the hero's journey and all these things, and especially the whole idea of that moment when you get the shit just kicked out of you and then you come back and you do what you need to do and it kind of puts your mind right as far as now I need to really take care of things. And Max definitely has that moment in this film and they even exacerbate it with killing his dog. In movies today, John Wick 3 is just around the corner. I mean, that whole (laughs) franchise is set off by... I don't think you understand. These boys killed my dog. That line from the Shooter with Mark Wahlberg—that's my favorite line in that film. A couple of years ago, I helped Night of the Living podcast program an Australian Horror Month, and every four films are picked, just like four without thinking, just like like this is a brilliant film, this is a brilliant film, that's a brilliant film, and yeah, the Babadook's just out, so watch that. 
all four films have dog killing in them. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, in Mad Max, they kill it. And then they, and then, and I was like, although I was on the podcast with them, I was like, look, it, Australians, the, the, the dog and the car, the dog and the car are like, are the two biggest, like with America, it's the horse. Here, it's the dog. Like the dog is just absolutely goes beyond man's best friend kind of thing. Huge tradition about it. You know, we got, there's like the, the dog on the Tucker box is this famous statue out in the country town, which I cannot remember the story. There's poems written about dogs that we've taught in school. It's like dogs, dogs, dogs. And yet we constantly kill them in our films. And I think it is exactly that because once the dog is dead, Oh man. Yeah. It is on. It is you up. (laughs) done it is <laughs> as we keep doing it over and over again like you said that he was all alone and i didn't want to be the comic book guy and say like well actually he's got the dog with him but but you but you're absolutely right <laughs> that's the thing he has the dog it's it is funny though because while you're while you're talking about all i can think of is like i think as a kid and this this speaks volumes to me as a kid i think as a kid it broke my heart more that they blew up that the car blew up <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was the dog for me. Apparently, the dog was just a rescue dog as well. He wasn't fully trained or anything. You wouldn't know it because that dog has charisma through the roof. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, like yeah, the way the way like way he's like right next to him when he's walking into the into the camp for the first time, or even 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 just when it's sitting there with the bone in its mouth. <laughs> Yeah, Tied to the shotguns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Spence and that dog, the moment that they share is just like, there's so many actors who would kill for a moment like that in the film. <laughs> well, so then later when he's trying to get the food from the dog, and it's like, nope, you're not getting that. <laughs> oh, yeah, blue, the blue healer is the type of dog that is. When you do not come between a blue healer and it's, uh, it's food, they get nasty. But also in that, that sequence, then immediately he is rescued by the, the gyro captain. And You've got the Vietnam imagery, that's that shot from the chopper looking down at him hanging in the thing. And it's just like, whoa, yeah, okay, yep. Because, you know, Australia was right there in the middle of it with America. Um, and it caused just as much trauma here. So it's, it's a very powerful extra kick to have that moment in the film. And really, like in the first Mad Max, helps ground it in a kind of traumatic reality. And I love that the gyro captain is so set on being partners with somebody he wants to be partners with the girl with the top knot you know in a sexual way but more than anything he wants max's friendship and max treats him like absolute dog shit through so much of the movie but he still is right there just like yeah we're partners and it's just like okay you're you've got a little bit of uh disillusionment but he really is and he wants to be there for max and he is there for max at every single turn it is interesting how like his his dedication to that idea mirrors Max's dedication to the complete opposite of that. <laughs> when he just sets the gyro captain off, and he's and we get that next shot of him with the uh, tree that he's pulling along behind him. <laughs> <laughs> Spence's face is just so fucking expressive, and when he's uh, when he finds out that the uh, shell the shotgun was empty, that dishonest. Low. Oh, the way he says low. The look on his face after the the girl with the top knot says, "I can't leave these people." You know, it's just it's it's one of those things like, yeah, I would have taken you away from all this, but I also understand. And it just it gives his he brings he brings more he brings so much depth to this character simply through his face, like. 
like yeah he's he, he would abandon all of them but he also understands you know he just he, he he just wants to be he like you said he wants to be with somebody he doesn't look completely defeated with the whole thing and the way he just flicks her hair too it's just it's just it's, it's just so wonderful even his snake the, the snake that he has is the booby trap to protect his uh gyro kind of copper thing he's like he says he's going to read it, but the way he talks to the snake, ah, oh, it's a good snake, this one, good snake. It's like he's even mates with the snake that he's going to eat for dinner. Yeah, just a happy fellow, I guess. I've always wanted to see his recipe for snake, personally. I say it at home all the time, because whatever it is, I just say, I trained it, I'm going to eat it. <laughs> it's only fair. A gyro Captain is probably the person I quote the most, but the person I quote the second most is the humongous. In that speech that the humongous gives, trying to get the people out of the compound is one of the best speeches to me in film. There's been too much violence, too much pain, none here without sin. But I have an honorable compromise. Just walk away, give you a pump, the oil, the gasoline, and the whole compound, and I spare you lives. Just walk away, and there will be an end to the horror. And that whole sequence of the humongous and his gang rolling up to the compound where we've got these people inside, and they've got the juice, they've got the gasoline, and that's our primary objective in this film, and him just laying it out you know hey i promise you can come out i'll i'll make sure you get safe passage and then i love when the the old guy is just like he sounds like a reasonable man for some reason when i was a kid i, I just had this weird association like just one of those weird childlike associations you put together with that uh character and arnold schwarzenegger mm. and it wasn't that i thought it was arnold schwarzenegger or anything like that but it was like how in the 80s schwarzenegger was put up as this you know like the apex of masculinity and man and so it just made sense that in this future apocalyptic world that this it would be like a deformed messed up version of arnold schwarzenegger would be ruling over these clans i've always wanted to know more of his story especially that crazy gun that he has the single bullet gun and that beautiful case that he has for it and all that it just seems like what is this guy's tail obviously he wears a mask so i want to know what it looks like under the mask and then he's got that gun and he's got the you know the bondage gear and all that kind of stuff it's just like who is the humongous and i love that we never know who these people are we don't get their backstories but it feels like they all have such rich lives that live outside of this movie Oh, yeah, well, Miller made them write backstories for all of their characters, apparently. Like, they all had to go and come up with backstory. If, if you find him, you can ask him. It's just a fast, <laughs> it's fascinating to me because these all seem to be people, like, I know they had to have existed before all of this happened, and yet at the same time, it feels like none of them could have existed before all of this happened. Was he humongous, the guy who, you know, like, picked up the mail at the office, or... <laughs> <laughs> right like who who is he was he just this bodybuilding muscle head and who 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 was waiting for the apocalypse to happen again that that comes back to we don't know at which point in the apocalypse this like i said the the, the apocalypse could already be a, a generation or two underway in the first film so never know i always pictured him as being the brian thompson character from miracle mile who made it over to australia i could see that 
I could see that. Well, the, the, you, you know, you talked about it, like we both mentioned the word confusing in relation to the first film that it kind of throws all these elements together. I feel like the second film just ups the ante on that so much with the S&M gear, with the punk kind of thing, with the humongous, with all of these kind of – it just throws so much extra extra into it that instead of being confusing, you just go, yeah, okay. All the movies have that, right? They have these sort of – Miller is so effective at creating this this cults that, yeah, we don't know everything about them, but at the same time, to, to your point, it's very much like, yep, well, that must be the way that it works. Like, <laughs> I didn't even notice until maybe like the last, I don't know, three dozen times that I watched this movie, the guy who pulls up, who gets his car flamethrowered, who's in like the pink DeSoto with the, this beard is, uh, tinted pink and stuff. And he's got a pink helmet on and stuff. I'm just like, what is that guy's story? You know, <laughs> is he just some sort of like big American graffiti fan or something? I mean, what is happening? Is he, he loves Greece. He wants to be in the pink ladies. And it's just, yeah, it's so bizarre. My, my favorite is the guy at the race at the end with the blue mohawk. He's like on the bike. He's got to lean in and shoot the tires. And they're yelling at him to shoot, and he just looks got these like, oh, he just looked. I've met that guy, the stone, dopey stoner Australia. He's like, oh, what, oh, oh, you, oh, oh, stop, oh, and then he's under the tire. The look on his face as he goes in to do it, I don't know. I just, I just want a gif of his face just with that dopey look on repeat forever. I love it. He looks both surprised, but not really surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he definitely hit a few too many bongs before they did the race. And yeah, to your point, Mike, I mean, that last half an hour of this movie is, it's a movie unto itself. And just that we have pauses, we have, you know, crescendos and the way that the music, the Brian May score just, oh my God, does that just add so much to it? It's so bombastic and it's just there so much, just pounding you over the head. And I love it, you know, but we do have quiet moments and we've got the quiet little like flute moment, especially when the feral kid who we haven't even talked about when the feral kid is trying to go out and get the, the bullets for Max and that the whole thing. And even when the music cuts out there and we go to just the heartbeat and the wind sound, the use of sound in this movie, again, talking about the first movie in, in relation with this one so important here that we have these sounds. We've got the, you know, you're talking about that track where it was just the sound effects and my god the way that the engines sound in this film it is such a symphony or even his boomerang like there's oh, just yeah. that, there was one of the like that's the it, it, if i remember correctly on the soundtrack the first like the the music ends and then the effects soundtrack comes in and that's the first thing you hear is that boomerang <laughs> and as a kid i'm like i didn't know what that was but you know i'm i'm because I hadn't seen the movie yet, but I, 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 but I've had that sound in my head for the longest time, and even like the way that it, the sound it makes when he catches it, and then finally seeing the movie, like, oh, there it is. The feral kid. I mean, he kind of plays a dual role insofar as he's both a surrogate child for the tribe and for Max, but he's also surrogate dog for Max too. After he loses his dog, he is walking right next to him, just like the dog is. That's true. Even looking up at him admiringly. Another, another point of where the, the, the line becomes a little bit indistinct between civilized and uncivilized. As opposed to Papagayo, who just seems super ultra-civilized. And 
I've always, again, fascinating character. He's barely in the film, but he has some really great speeches and the way that he interacts with Max. And I love, especially when he's asking Max, you know, what was it that put him over the edge? And he's going through and listing off all that stuff. And he can immediately pick up on Max's reaction when he says that his family died. I really respect that character. What is it with you? Huh? What are you looking for? Come on, Max, everyone's looking for something. You happy out there, are you? Hey, wandering? One day blurring into another? You're a scavenger, Max. You're a maggot. You know that? You're living under the corpse of the old world. Tell me your story, Max. Come on, tell me your story. What burns you out, huh? Kill one man too many? See too many people die? Lose some family? After that, you're You're the only one that suffered. We've all been through it in here, but we haven't given up. We're still human beings with dignity. But you, you're out there with the garbage. You're nothing. Well, it's great to me that he picks up on it and he doesn't give it to him, though. Yeah, that's tough. You think it makes you something special? Like, we've all, the, we've all lost somebody in here. He, to me, was always the, that, that representation of, of the society that we had not necessarily lost, but it seemed like we were giving up on. And he was the thing saying, like, no, this is, we, have to, we have to hold together, and we have to try to be decent because that's the only way we're going to live. That, he always, for me, coming back to the cult thing, is that kind of new agey kind of like cult figure, especially with the, you know, the white outfits. It's just that kind of, you know, the inspirational speaker kind of cult leader who's trying to help, you know, people stamp out their problems and get back to being the true them kind of thing. I never really thought about it, how many of those folks wear white. But now as you say that, I can immediately picture almost everybody, warrior woman, the girl with the top knot, Pretty much everybody, even the mechanic, wearing white. Yeah, I think that that was originally part of their Western thing because pretty much all the opposition, all the bad guys are in black almost exclusively, um, except for the the mediator, the ambassador guy, who loses the fingers. He's the, I think the only, just about the only one who's in, not in black. Um, he's the one who looks like the sort of Davy Crockett style outfit. Um, but yeah, they, so I think then having the, 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 the civilized group all in white as the good guys. But again, it does tie back to that cult like aspect, you know, like, um, Heaven's Gate or something like that. <laughs> and the only person that I can think of that doesn't wear white is the general, the, uh, the guy who sells insurance these days. I was hoping that joke would translate to Australia. I wasn't sure. I'm not quite sure. I, I'm, I'm trying to, you mean cookie? <laughs> See, that doesn't translate to you. Does no, it? no. <laughs> the, the old grizzled guy, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. army guy. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, he's um he was on a TV series called A Country Practice, which ran for like, I don't know, it, I, when I was a kid, it seemed like it was going forever and it was one of the big, you know, ongoing soap opera things. And he played a character called Cookie. So he's always Cookie to me. And I think that's another reason why this movie sticks with me so much is that I, until uh, I guess maybe 20-ish years ago, I never really saw too many of these people other than Mel Gibson. Like, so many of these faces were unfamiliar with me, especially the first time that I saw it. I mean, of course, yeah, we knew uh, Vernon Wells from things like Commando and things like that. And then Bruce Spence eventually kind of came into my uh, radar and stuff. But so many of these other people, everybody in the compound, everybody outside the compound, I had no idea who these were. And I kind of like having that vision of just these people exist in this universe and it almost made it more real for me is that i had no context for who these actors were about the same way too as a as 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 a kid it was just like this these aren't people i can associate with anything other than this and to your point it just it made it seem more even more real just like they're this is this is who these this is who these people are there's not anybody else it definitely has that even for for Australians because a lot of them were TV actors who didn't do a huge amount, even if they were on TV and quite a few of them, you know, even Vernon Wells, this was one of his first big films. He, he was originally from the theater. And so, yeah, it's still, even for Australians, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of faces you might go, Oh, it's that person or that person, but not much to uh, recognize. But I, it wasn't, I think Michael Preston worked with David lean, didn't he? The guy who played Papa Gallo. His his is the only face that, as a kid, I felt like I had seen before. I mean, aside from Mel Gibson. But even now, I still can't remember what it was I saw him in other than this. <laughs> yeah, Virginia Hay, I know her from Farscape, but she is completely made up in Farscape. So it's not like, you know, I'm looking at her going, oh, it's the warrior woman. Yeah, Michelle had to tell me that when she was watching Farscape. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't know it. I had to look her up and I was like, who is this person? And I was like, oh, oh, it's the warrior woman. One of the actresses in Farscape, I worked, she's in Wentworth, which is the modern day version of Prisoner, um, which the old lady in the farmhouse with the shotgun, she was in the original series of Prisoner as one of the main actresses. She was pretty famous at the time in Australia. Yeah, I met this woman who worked on Farscape and I was just chatting to her about something and she was like, oh, you're a sci-fi and horror nerd, aren't you? And I was like, the uh, nerd's a bit harsh, but sure. I had no idea that she was in Farscape. As soon as I found that out, I was like, oh, you get you get that kind all the time. <laughs> Both films, because especially the, the first film, like most of the crew were from television. Um, they, as I said, a lot of the actors, some were from TV, most were from theater. There wasn't a huge pool of talent to draw on that they could afford or that wanted to be involved in them. And they certainly had a lot more options for the second film, but even so, yeah, there was, they tended to go for the lesser known faces and to really find George Miller just has an incredible talent for, for being able to see these characters and the people and find the right people rather than casting for the, for the star or for, you know, any name. Yeah. Some of those faces are just so terrific. Just even some of the, the, the smaller characters. There's one guy who's got, I'm trying to remember. Um, he's he's just one of the faces in the crowd. Like he's not one of the guys who's dressed like a policeman. And I like that. It seems like there's multiple of those guys with the black face covering and the silver helmet. 
but there's one guy who looks like he's right off the cover of like a naked ray gun album and it's just like he is so badass um and he's one of those faces in the crowd they just pan across and you get to see all of these different people that are going to try to kill the good people in this movie yeah and another character i love is the uh the mechanic the paraplegic and as he sort of wheelie systems to get him around and they're that great dialogue sequence about how buggered the the truck is how's the rig the rig how is she got a cracked timing case cover and it's broken a couple of teeth off the timing gears got a cracked timing case cover it's broken a couple of teeth off the timing gear the radio's damaged the core the radiator's damaged at the core. It's got a cracked water pump. It's got a cracked water pump. And a fractured injector line. It's got a fractured injector line. Well, what does all that mean? Yeah, okay, but what does that mean? What does that mean? 24 hours. 24 hours? They've got 12. You've got 12! Okay. There's a lot of comedy in this film. There's a lot of humor in it, and it does come a lot from the performances. That interaction, though, again, is it's so it's so funny, but it also so it so very quickly establishes the one thing that that I continue to come back to is just this is how this this is how this whole society works. Like this is how this whole group works. They understand. They totally understand each other, and and they have all these things set up already. It's something Australians are good at is throwing together and sorting shit out. Because the films were made in a similar way, it comes through and it does help give these groups that kind of feeling that it's just like, you know, the films are just all these people coming together going, ah, this is like what there was some great quote about the first film that was like, uh, what was it? Uh, We did things we would never have done if we'd had more experience. And I feel like all these films are just people coming together like that. And it is a very Australian ability to just be able to go, okay, what needs doing? Okay, well, you do that. You do that. How long is it going to take? Ah, okay, well, do we? Yeah, six hours, five, whatever. Yeah, do that. You get on with that. And it, it just comes through in the film. And you can just feel that there's that kind of the family vibe. And it's just, yeah, it's just, it does really elevate these films and give them so much more humanity than, you know, a lot of the imitators and knockoffs would kind of have. We didn't venture the rocket in the first film when they crash uh, the Knight Rider's car and you see that huge jet come out of the back of it. That's because they had an actual rocket strapped into the back of the car that they were like, how do we get it? Like, we want to really take this car out and slam it into the semi-trailer. And so Byron Kennedy was like, oh, we need a rocket. I'll go ask the military. So he went and asked the Department of Defense. They were like, okay. <laughs> Because it's 70s Australia. So they gave him a rocket and he strapped it to the back of this car and they fired it off. And, it, and it's the, the, they couldn't do it again. So you see it in the film. It goes bouncing kind of sideways, shoots around the trailer, and the camera crew's in a car on the other side and this thing comes flying straight at them, going about three times their speed. And at the last minute, just suddenly went sideways again off into a paddock. So the first film, they had the military giving them a rocket. The second film, George Miller was like, okay, how are we going to blow this up? And they're like, we'll do this. He's like, nah, not big enough. I'm calling the military. (laughs) And so, yeah, he got the military in again. So they had like full military explosives when that thing went off. And they had to stop planes flying between Adelaide and Melbourne when they did it because they were worried that it was going to be that much shit flying up. (laughs) 
<laughs> and because Broken Hill is all a mining town, they had to let all the companies know because there'd be all these miners underground and then they would all feel the shockwave. So they had to make sure that everybody was clear there. And when you see the explosion on the film, you're like, yeah, yeah, I understand all those safety measures. Mm-hmm. Because that sucker goes off. <laughs> yeah, that is a glorious, glorious explosion. I mean, I'm not like, uh, you know, into explosion porn, but that one definitely, you know, gets my gun off. It's the debris. It's the, the, it's the other thing. The Mad Max films does great debris. Like when they're in that explosion, there's like a, like a little can or something that lands what looks like about five meters from the camera, and you hear that sound of it landing, and it just adds so much reality to it. And again, well, the, the the sound, the sound that of of it too. Like I can I can hear it right now as we're talking about it. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about with that tin that goes ding. <laughs> the debris thing in the that when they drive through the caravan in the first film. The way that they wanted to get all this extra debris flying everywhere was they packed the caravan full of cornflakes boxes. <laughs> so what looks like wood debris is actually just cornflakes flying everywhere. <laughs> they really doubled down on the whole mythology of uh, the Road Warrior. I mean, the, having that opening with the narration and the uh, the the everything being told in flashback that we're also getting like stock footage of stuff from different war scenarios and in different areas and having the VO and then bringing us back to the VO at the end. It really just makes the road warrior such a, a mythic type of movie that we see where we came from in the past and then where we're headed to in the future and I love that it's the little twist that it was actually the feral kid who is narrating the whole thing and that he is just about at the end of his days when he's telling this story back. It's such a nice way of ending this. And just that that end shot of Max is so terrific. That's the, the encapsulation of his character in so many ways, though. Is that la- he goes, that was the last we ever saw of him. He lives now only in my memories. It's just like, because we went off to try to rebuild our corner of society. And he, like, like Ben was saying before, in terms of the searchers, there's no house even for <laughs> like Max is, he can't go there. Right. Yeah. He's stuck on the road as they're going off to form the great Northern tribe. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a series of interviews. First up, you'll hear from Wes himself, Mr. Vernon Wells. Then you'll hear from the warrior woman, Virginia Hay. And last but not least, I'm going to throw in a little bit of an interview I did with the gyro pilot, Bruce Spence, from our episode on the cars that ate Paris. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 3, The Doctor Who Method. Give the character the ability to completely alter his appearance, and thus be played by any available actor. This also lets the character evolve into suitable form for any given audience. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com You know, the girl from that... The, yes, the, yes, I know the show exactly. on that... I God, know exactly um, who you're talking about. She has the hair. The the hair was it, it was different, and she has the the, the, the lips. She has the lips with the. Okay, yeah, wait. She, no, she was just okay. You've seen her in a million movies. You know, but the, who but the one that, we're talking about the exact same person. We don't always suck as bad as this, but listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. 
I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly fake ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. Well, I'm very curious how you decided to get into the business. I really didn't never wanted to be an actor. My mother was a, a, a successful songwriter. She wrote uh, country and western songs in Australia for Slim Dusty and a few other people. And I kind of followed in her footsteps. I started singing with all the bands, and um, I figured that's what I'd do. You know, I was going to be a, a singer in a band, and I was a happy little kid. And um, I got uh, my back badly injured in a, a road accident. And while I was recuperating and becoming a pest, um, our manager took my photos around to some agents. And one of them um, said, you know, we're looking for a guy like that. Does he ride horses or anything? And he, he said, well, he grew up on a farm, so I assume he did. And he said, great, get him in here because we're looking for someone just like him. And I got cast to do some um, cigarette commercials for a cigarette brand called Braddock. I did those, and I kind of realized that I wasn't sharing what I was earning with five other guys, so it made me feel much better. Then I started getting put into, uh, you know, extras in in um, television shows here and there, and I really, it really didn't make me all jolly and warm inside. It wasn't something I really liked doing. Um, I like being behind the camera. I love being with the crew behind the camera, seeing how everything was done. So I decided I would um, get involved in that, and I was uh, hired by a very big-time company that did commercials and things, and um, they proceeded to teach me my my uh, craft in uh, directing and so forth. And that's where, I, once again, I thought, well, this will be it. This is my career. I love this. I'm really enjoying myself. And lo and behold, they wanted me to do a stage play, which I really didn't want to do. And I was finally convinced to do it. And uh, George Miller's um, girlfriend at the time, um, Sandy Gore, she uh, happened to see a performance and um, contacted George and said, you've got to come see this kid. He's just you know, amazing on stage. He, he does his thing and he has no fear of anything. And um, I think he'd be perfect for your film. So George came and contacted He never saw the play, but he did contact me and we uh, had a cup of coffee and he left and I had no idea who he was or why we had coffee, actually. And then, you know, a few months later, my agents rang me and said, you got to fly up to um, Sydney to do wardrobe and uh, makeup tests. And I was like, well, for what? And they said, for um, Mad Max 2. And I went, what? What the hell? I haven't even seen Mad Max, let alone Mad Max 2. And I said, well, you're going anyway, so just jump on the plane, go up. So I went up to Sydney and did all the, the stuff for George. And I really wasn't that interested in doing it. It just didn't bite me. I got on the set, and of course, well, for the week before we got on the set, we started working, and then it, then I got the bug because of all the people were there that were involved, and it was just this amazing um 
trip to be involved in. It was like being on a really good uh, co-crush. Not that I'd know what that feels like, by the way. You know, I'm just assuming that it would be, you know, like a co-crush. I uh, just started to really enjoy myself. I loved doing the film. And when the film was finished, you know, it was like, wow, that was really cool. My one and only film. So I went back to directing. And a few months later, they contacted me from America to come and do uh, Weird Science. And I, I just didn't want to. America was like this faraway land where all these evil people lived. And, you know, I really didn't want to go there and be involved with these people. And it took a lot to convince me to go. Eventually, I came over and I did Weird Science. I went back home and then I did a film in Australia called The Fortress, which is based on a true story of uh, some school kids that were kidnapped by these uh, kidnappers and, and buried in a hole in the school bus. They eventually managed to escape and they killed most of their captors. That I did that, and um, once again, I thought, well, that's it, you know, I've had fun, um, you know, um, nothing's going to go anywhere. And then, of course, I got a call by the same direct, uh, producer to do Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that finished it. It was like, not going home again, am I? I just, I was full-time into um, acting. I've gone back to directing now. I still act, of course, because that's my forte. I just actually, the film I was just on, I was directing part of it. So um, I'm, I'm back in doing the directing as well. So I've come full circle in my career, which is kind of fun. How does somebody who's not that interested in the role that you ended up being cast in as Wes and uh, Mad Max 2, how do you go from that to shaving the head, doing the hair, wearing the, the you know, your ass is out in that movie? I mean, you just were all the way into that role. And it, w when you oh, saw yeah. that that outfit, did you consult them on the character design? Um, when I saw that, that outfit, I, I decided I definitely wasn't doing the film. Um, it was a little bit, you know, uh, okay, what are we going to have? We're going to have a bare ass and bare crutch, and uh, boy, all the little boys are going to be really happy. Um, so I was not at all intrigued with that idea. And um, I, I talked to uh, the the, the um, wardrobe lady. We sort of had a lot of arguments about how I should be dressed. And I finally got the the uh, flap on the back of the of the costume. Mostly it was because every time I jumped on and off bicycles, motorbikes, on the seat, I would put a rash on my butt because I'd slide. And then I'd, you know, it was not nice. So I went, you know, this year... So we got that, and then the the feathers and everything around the um, neck came because it's an actual football shoulder pad, and of course it moves around a lot when you move. And as you're probably aware, I moved one hell of a lot in that film. Um, and even in rehearsals, I started to uh, cut my neck and make it bleed. So they went, "Well, we got to do something because it's just it's like uh, fiberglass or something, and it's just very sharp around the edges." So they um, stuck lamb's wool around it, and then they decided that the lamb's wool looked just a little overfay. So they put the feathers, you know, because uh, I love Indian headdresses and things, and that's what we were talking about. I said, you know, I want to look like an Indian. I want to be Pocahontas or something, you know. So they um, put the feathers in the thing which uh, around the neck, which I loved, because then, in the, especially in the part where I get the wall paint on, you know, very 
one of my bucket list roles, you know, playing an Indian was fulfilled. So I was a happy little cherub. But once I kind, I'm, I'm very much, if I say yes to something, I'm 150% in. I don't kind of go, yeah, and then sort of, what am I doing here? It's yes, and now I'm going to really go for it. And that's exactly what I did. Once I committed to doing the role, I was doing the role. There was no way around it. But it was George. I keep saying to George every time we do a question and answer on this, that he created the character I played it. And he says that no way known. He created the character in writing, and I took that and I created this character that was way different and way more than what was on the page. So um, it was kind of, and to me, it was a collaboration between the two of us. I mean, he gave me all the uh, leeway and all the um, tools to make it work. And I was fortunate I was able to make it work. And I think it was just because of raw um, energy that I had at that stage. You know, I wasn't jaded by the business. Um, you know, if he said jump off that building, I would go, okay, never ask how high it was. I just had that, that raw energy of I was willing to go, you know, like put me in front of them and I ripped their bloody arms off. So it was um, successful from that point of view. And especially for me, it turned out to be an amazing character, which I love. Took me a long time to accept it because it, it was something that people based who I was on, which really was not nice to say the, the nice way it was a bit of a shit that every time I went in for an audition, everything came back to, Oh yes, but you played uh, that character in the road warrior. Yeah. We don't see you having kids. We see you eating them, you know, that kind of thing. It was like, you know, I'm supposed to be an actor, you know, that, that word actor is in front of my name, which means I'm supposed to be able to play any role I want. Um, but no, no, they wanted me to be that character, and, and I was getting bored with it. Um, but then things started to pick up. I mean, I got Commander, which was a totally different character. It was still had that same energy to it where I could be um, totally an insane character and have fun. Um, and we just moved on from there. I've been very fortunate. You now mostly what I play are good guys with a little bit of a edge or sometimes a big edge, and I love it. It's, uh, you know, I'm having a ball. I mean, you couldn't put me down unless you had a hammer. Seriously, I'm just enjoying everything I do. I had read that there were scenes in The Road Warrior that might have either been shot or discarded or that were scripted that you were a part of. Can you tell me about that? Most of what I did in The Road Warrior actually ended up in the film, from my own recollection, there's not a lot that I could remember that didn't end up in the film um, on the character. Um, there were things that were shot that were discarded that were they didn't work out. It wasn't that they decided that they weren't going to put them in. They just didn't work out for uh, what was happening. But not very much. I mean, if you there's a book out called The Road Warrior, a little book that's based on the original script of Road Warrior, and it sort of says that the end was different um, and the beginning was different, which, if you read the book, they were. But uh, to my recollection, the beginning wasn't shot the way the, the little book has it. The beginning was shot the way we did it. As far as I can remember, most, probably, you know, like 90% of what we shot was in the film. 
because I had read that you said that there was an extra bit when it came to the character that Jerry O'Sullivan played. And I was always very curious about the relationship between Wes and the golden youth, I believe his character's name is. Right. It's, it's weird because in the, in the actual film, he was supposedly at the start of the film on the, in the book, it's that um, all the marauders ride up this hill to a farmhouse and they start burning the farmhouse down, shooting people, dragging people out. And I kind of ride up at the end and this young kid, blonde kid, comes running out of the house and one of the marauders is chasing him and he grabs him by the hair because he's got long blonde hair, pulls his head back and he's going to cut his throat and I stop him and I take the kid and I put him on the back of my bike and he's like, he can't speak. He's so uh, traumatized by what's just happened. And I ride off with him. And then it cuts to that scene where I'm riding down the road chasing Mel right at the start. And he's now grown. And the, the inference was that he was my surrogate son, that I had uh, taken this kid and, and um, brought him up at my, as my son. Now, as it was done... It's kind of difficult to get that inference. So a lot of people decided that he was my lover in the film, which was, to me, was so far out of left field, it was, like, weird. I always saw him as the one thing in a land of stark, dead nothingness that was beauty. That's how I always looked at it, that he was the one piece in this whole thing that was beauty, and I kept him for that reason, that he reminded me of what things used to be like, not what they were like. How was Jerry O'Sullivan to work with? Because you did a lot of scenes with him. Um, he was great. I mean, uh, the, the funny thing is, is the story going round, which I can't deny or confirm, was that he was delivering pizza to the uh, production offices in Sydney, and he was um, noticed by the producer who said, can you want to be in a movie? And uh, basically they put him in the movie as my sidekick, which was, as I said, uh, the way it was. And uh, that's how he got it. But I have no knowledge either way. Uh, it probably is true. But um, I could not tell you it is or isn't true. But he was fine to work with. You know, um, we raced around doing stuff all the time. And uh, he was cool right up until he got a boomerang in the head. I didn't know until recently reading uh, the book uh, that Luke Buckmaster put out, I didn't know that it was wintertime in Australia when you guys were shooting this. Yeah, well, we were in the desert. So, you know, uh, wintertime is like an acronym. It was incredibly um, sunshiny with blue skies and freeze-ass cold. It was just so goddamn cold up there shooting where we were. We are in a valley between two mountain ranges, and the wind would come down off those mountains, and uh, it was chilling. Well, and you were pretty exposed. I mean, your head, your arms, your butt. Yeah, my butt was the worst part of it. They used to let me wear a thing on my head, but my butt, nah, it was never covered. Um, in fact, they, they used to call me barometer bum. They figured that when my, my butt cheeks went purple, it was time to get us warmed up. It was pretty, and I had this horrible habit of touching everything that was metal, and I would stick to everything. 
So the 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 special effects crew spent more time getting me unattached to things than anything else. I was forever grabbing hold of, of something, and of course, you know what what metal is like when it's really cold. You touch it, you stick to it. So I was forever grabbing things and sticking to them. I was like, ah, crap, and they'd have to come over and pour water on me and slowly get my hand off. It was really cold, and there is a scene in the film, if you the, the scene on the hill at night when all the marauders are celebrating and the fires are burning and all the dancing's going on and that whole thing, if you actually have a Blu-ray, you can freeze frame that section and you can see snow falling through the frame. It was actually snowing for the first time in history up there. It snowed. Where was that shot? Broken Hill? Broken Hill, yeah. And they said that when it rained in Broken Hill, there were there were kids or people that were in their 20s that had never seen rain in their lifetime. So we brought it all with us, man. You know, we came down there and God went, let me see, what can I do? Rain, hail, snow. Yeah, what the hell, let's give them everything. Um, so it was, it was kind of fun at times. Had you ridden motorcycles before this point? Yeah, it was not quite as difficult as that with all the crap that I had on my wrists and my hands and my body that made riding motorbikes an interesting um, thing, to say the least, as the camera crew found out a couple of times. Did you have any hesitation as far as the shaving of the head? My hesitation was in doing the film, um, I believe, way back then, was that it scared the living daylights out of me. I mean, that was my first film, and I was virtually the other star of the film. It just scared the bejesus out of me. Um, having my head shaved, no, I thought that was great. You know? And uh, in fact, the, the very funny thing was done when we flew from Melbourne to Broken Hill, the um, makeup department put a scar with stitches in it across my head and they led me on the plane telling everybody that I was a, um, a known uh, sex offender and that they had given me a lobotomy. So they, they just did horrible things to me. Terrible. I got no service in the whole flight. I couldn't get a bloody Coke or anything because no one had come near me. I'm very curious about your process as an actor, because I know some people, they need to do the whole idea of the backstory. Some people, you know, might be as simple as I need to find the right hat in order to inhabit this character. There are so many different ways of approaching stuff. What is your way of getting into a character and especially into a character like Wes? We did a, a backstory. We wrote a backstory on our character from basically when they were born to when the film started. We read it every day uh, with Terry Hayes, Brian Hannon, and George Miller. Um, and they would tell us, yes, no, that's ridiculous, you know, take that out, put that in, you know, sort of thing. And so we we kept refining the the story of who we were. And eventually, by the time we started filming the film, we knew who we were. You know, you, you couldn't actually say, I have no idea who Wes is. You knew who Wes was. You knew where Wes came from. You knew what his ideals were. And playing him was, was not a, a difficult thing because all you did was you just relied on what you had written and what you decided. And the things that came from you, not from a writer, it was so much easier to 
to make that character live because you'd written it. That was how you felt. So making it live was so much easier. And I've carried that on through everything I've done since then. It was uh, something that was instilled in me by George in character development, which I've done with every character I've played, basically, from that moment on in you know, 280-something uh, films that I've done. And every character I play, I, I do it the same way. I, I look at the script, I find out what the character in the script is, what he does, who he is, why he is, and then in my own mind, I establish a backstory of where he came from and who his friends are and what his motivations are, and then I play off that, and um, I come to the set fully prepared as the character, but never while I'm not on set. Um, I have that unique ability, I guess, of being able to stand in front of a camera and portray the character, and when the director says, cut, I wander off and I'm burning again being a total asshole. I don't have that ability to keep the character with me. I did it once in my life, and it, it um, brought me to the point of, of uh, a nervous breakdown because the character became me, and I couldn't fight it. I didn't know how to. I was too immature and young as an actor to understand what I'd done. And when that happened, I vowed never, ever, ever again to allow a character to inhabit me so strongly that I became lost inside the character. So now I have this on-off switch, which works for me. Do you mind if I ask who that character was? It was in the stage play that I did Hosanna. It was totally against everything that I was and being being very young and, and very, that was the first thing I did that was major. I just let it eat me up because I thought that's what you did. And um, I did all the wrong things. And uh, I learned. I learned a very valuable lesson on that. So when I played Wes, it was really easy to establish the character, get into the character, but I could walk away from the character and leave him with the arseless chaps at night and then come back in the morning and put the arseless chaps on and become Wes again. So I, I didn't need to take him home when I was at the... The, you know, at the casino playing the pokies or or when I was out having dinner or, or if I'd gone to the, the pub to have a beer with everybody, I didn't need to carry him there. I could leave him back on the set. When you're going out and doing all those things, are you wearing a hat? No, not really. I'm just me. People thought I was weird and strange. And every time somebody asked me about it, I would tell them that, that I, I had a great fascination with the Mohawk Indian tribe, and they would accept it. At that stage, as, as you know, I mean, those kind of things were not something that was common, you know, like walking around. I, I also remember when I came here and I did um, Weird Science, and I had the same uh, thing, my he head shaved again. And I was staying at the um, the hotel on um, on the the lot at Universal, at the big hotel up on the hill, the Black Tower. And I was asked politely if I would come in through a side door and not walk through the lobby because I was upsetting the guests. That's how long ago this was when to see somebody with a mohawk was startling to people. Um, and so you instantly got pigeonholed into. He's either a bikey or, um, you know, a gangbanger or something. You know, he's, he shouldn't be in this hotel. It was that simple thing uh, that people 
now if you walk around the Mohawk, everybody's like, well, there's 4,000 of them out in the street. Why would you be interested? So it's it's not a big deal. Back then, yeah, it, it was kind of strange. And I used to play it up terribly. I have to admit that the more I could get a rise out of people, the more I played it up. I thought it was great fun. You talked about coming up with that backstory for Wes. So I have to ask, who was Wes before the two great warrior tribes came at it and the beginning of the road warrior? Well, to me, I always looked at him as a survivalist, but not as a survivalist like we have today. Um, I, I always looked at him as being a loner. You know, when he was a kid, he was picked on, um, which is strangely enough, that's what it was like when I was a kid because I was always big. So, of course, when you're bigger than most other kids at school, what happens is you get your butt kicked all the time. Everybody wants to be the one that can beat the big kid. He, to me, that's where he came from. He had that, that attitude of being a loner. He didn't need to associate with everybody. He also uh, went into the army. He became, <clears throat> in Australia, it's a Queen's, in the Queen's Brigade, which is virtually uh, the same as the Green Beret here. It's, you know, very elite. And uh, he became one of those. You know, he learned his craft. He uh, left the army. And then the uh, when the end came, he knew exactly what he had to do to survive. He became a survivor. And that was his whole focus was that he was smart enough to understand how to survive, where to survive, and who to survive with. To me, the whole thing with, with Wes and Humongous is that Wes is always trying to usurp Humongous because he doesn't think Humongous is doing it right. So he's always trying to be that one up. You know, I always looked at him from, from that angle that he um, he had this, you know, George told me one day we were talking about uh, getting into where the character came from and why he was like he was. And um, I was sort of feeling him out for for, you know, little bits and pieces that I could use when I was getting involved. And um, he said, well, let me put it to you this way. And, and a natural occurrence happens. It doesn't have to be a world war. It could be a sunspot. It could be a sun flare. All electronics, everything that we rely on has gone instantly. Not, not over 10 years, instantly. Today we have a cell phone. Tomorrow we have nothing. Gone. The end of your street is a very large supermarket, extremely large supermarket, and it's packed full of non-perishable goods as well as perishable ones. What are you going to do? I said, I'd probably go up and try to get as much of the non-perishable that I could. And he said, uh-huh, and would you take anybody? I said, well, probably, you know, my friends go up. And he said, uh-huh. So you're up in this very large supermarket and a group from two blocks away, decides they're going to come and take everything that's in it. What would you do? And without thinking, I went, I'd kill the asshole so that we had it. And he just looked at me and I went, oh, my God. And that was the basis. There was no thought behind it. He did naturally what he needed to do to survive, and that was Wes. That was the character, and that's how he was played, and that's how you saw him on screen. Well, I am curious as far as the way that Miller and you might have interacted on set. I mean, how did he direct you? I always 
Because it's funny because anytime George and I are in a discussion on a, a panel or something, this always comes up. And I always say that I credit George with my career and I credit him with giving me res and he always denies it and says that he gave me nothing. He gave me the tools. I was intelligent enough to use those tools to make a very amazing character. Um, I look at how he shaped who I was. I was clay. I had That was my first film. I had done possibly four or five things in my life. Nothing big, little bit parts here, little bit parts there. Um, nothing. I didn't want to be an actor. I loved directing. I loved being behind the camera. I had no desires to become the world's greatest actor. It was just that simple. George was able to use that and everything else I had to get me to create that character, to be able to go somewhere in my psyche and be able to bring out this character of Wes, this, this people call him a monster, I call him a survivor. Um, and, you know, to me, he never does anything in the film that's monstrous, really. He just survives. Um, he doesn't go around killing everybody. He he wants to have a one-on-one -on -one with Mel because Mel to him is is the only thing stopping him and his people from surviving. So I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't see where we get this. Wes was this monstrous character, but then that's me. I you know I'm weird anyway. So what the hell? But George would direct you towards where you knew you had to go. And so I always remember that it, a couple of times when I asked George, what would you like me to do? He would say, what would Wes do? And I'd go, well, Wes would do this, this, and this. He'd say, then let's do it. And his other thing was he always wanted you to be 120% at all times above the character, to come in at 120%, 150%, because he could bring you down to where he wanted you. If you came in at 60%, he could never get you to go up to where he wanted you. So you always played the character big. You always came in with the character big, with, you know, the eyes, the roar, the whole thing. And then he would lower it if he needed it, or he would let you go if he wanted it there. I think he's a brilliant director. I think as a director of actors who who need to be guided into where they're going, he's absolutely the only person on this planet I would work with. How is he telling you to go lower as he just coming up and saying, listen, Vern, we need to take this down a notch, or how is that? Yep, bring it down, bring it down a bit. You know, drop it down 15%. You know, just let's do it again and drop it down 15%. And mostly he would do that in rehearsals. You know, you do a rehearsal, camera rehearsal, so you would be, you know, up there. And he'd say, okay, we're going to do a tape, but Vern, can you bring him down, you know, you know, ten percent, or can you can you do a little more in in the the eyes when you're doing that particular thing? That was it, and I would do my thing, and I was very pleased with having him direct me into doing it because you know he's just he was just that to me he was like a band leader. He had all these instruments, and he was making sure that every one of them played in the same rhythm and the same. Um, way that every other instrument was so that they all came together as a beautiful melody. And that's how he directs a film. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it must have been almost liberating for you as a, an actor starting out to be able to go to those heights and to be able to just 
take over and just be so almost operatic with some of those expressions and screams and all that. You know, the funny part about that, I had no idea I was doing it. I was just so doing what I felt the character should do that I had no idea that I was doing and that that was where it was going and that's what was happening. It was all to me. It was just the character. It was this this person I had created, this this other side of me. You know, they always say that if you play really um, deep rooted psychotic uh, characters that somewhere in your psyche that particular <clears throat> that particular theme lurks and that's always scared me that that if I play them so well somewhere inside me is this pent up mass murderer who one day is going to come out and take on half of America I mean it just really it does sometimes you go dear god where do I get this crap from um but uh, it, it's something that, you know, I always remember a little story. I, I was working for a dear, dear friend of mine, Brian Martin, whom I'm working with at the moment. I do a lot of work with where kind of partners, you know, in production. It was the first time I'd ever worked with him, and uh, I flew to Sacramento to, and they were going to shoot me out overnight because they couldn't really afford to have me any more than this one period of time which I didn't mind, uh, so that I, I went up and when he, he picked me up at the airport and he said, I, I'm, I don't usually pick up the actors, but I'm picking you up because I want to talk to you about the character. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, you know, I, I just want to give you my take on where we're going to take this character so that, you know, we don't have to fool around on set. And I said, well, you know what? Perhaps to save time between the two of us, can I ta tell you what I think? of the character and how I see the character and how I was going to play the character. Then you tell me where I'm wrong and I can adjust. And by the time we get to the set, um, we should have everything where you want it. And he said, okay. So I proceeded for about 15 minutes to tell him everything that I thought about the character and why, how, when, where, and the whole thing. And then when I finished, I just sort of turned and looked at him and I said, so um, what did I get wrong? And he just looked at me and he went, F you. <laughs> that was the end of the conversation because that's how I do this. You know, I live inside that particular thing. I get in there and I figure out where it's going and why. And then that's all I do. I don't have to carry on. I don't have to be on the set and be an asshole. I just, that's where I am. And that's where I'm seated. And that's where it comes from. And that's what I do. And I guess it works because I get being hired. We talked about those blood-curdling screams that you did. You have very few lines in the film, but I am very curious. 21. 21. You have to have over 21 lines to be considered an actor. Didn't you know that? I am very curious. Did you have to go in and loop any of that, or was that all recorded on set? It was all recorded on set. We did loop things, um, don't get me wrong, because... When they were editing, they would find that there was a problem, so we would go. But I did looped very little of what was. What what they do in Australia, which I've never actually found they do here, which when I first came was quite surprising to me, is that you'll do a scene, and then the sound guy will say, uh, excuse me, George, um, can I get Vernon to redo that scream and uh, that dialogue? And, and they do it right there, right then so that you're still in the same character 
and you do it and it generally works perfectly because you're basically doing it the same way. And so they have it on set exactly where you are, exactly where you're doing it and um, it works. And, you know, very rarely they have to do it because most of the time you're getting it, you know, what they want. But occasionally if there's a glitch or there's a, a problem, you know, they might want you to just repeat it at the end of the take. Well, it's really smart, too, because you've got the same, like, ambient sound and all that stuff going on as well. You've got everything there. I mean, and, and when you've just done it, you're still in that same frame of, of uh, reference. So when they say, all right, let's do it again, it's just like taking another take of the film. So you're doing it the same way again. It, it was uh, interesting. But I, I was in the um, uh, studios a couple of times in... Um, Sydney and with George involved with what they were doing and he would show me how he was editing and, and, you know, it was just, it always amazed me. I just thought it was just amazing watching what was going on. Um, but we didn't actually do a lot of looping on the character at all. Well, what was it like for you when you finally saw the full thing put together and did you see it with an audience first? I actually went to a screening in Melbourne of the film um, and my mother went with me because she was all keen on seeing what her son had done um, and she was the only person who would stand up and scream every time I came on scene on the, the screen and, and very embarrassing actually. It was interesting. I don't think I ever got the impact of it the first time I saw it. But then, uh, you know, I, I saw it a couple of other times at different festivals and things, and I started to get the underlying impact of what the film was and what we had created. And even now, if I watch it, because I was at the, um, in Japan at the opening of Fury Road, and they play Mad Max, uh, Road Warrior, and then Fury Road. Just watching it again, I, I was amazed at how timeless that film is in its own way it's it's more relevant today than it was when we shot it you know it's like the world is caught up to mad max it's a little scary in, in just when you think of it from that pretext but it is very much um like what we're going through in many different layers of of what we did so when you look at it from that perspective you you kind of go wow we created characters that were just really interesting and they weren't just out there idiots screaming and yelling in the middle of the desert and killing each other there was a whole thing underlying this film that we never realized and george was a master at that that's what makes him so brilliant you know i said to him at one stage said, god i wish i knew what you were on when you're making that movie because i could have used it he just had that ability to be able to see what was going to happen further down the line and be able to bring that in and create that that uh, whole dimension that we lived in and uh, breathed in and you know everybody said yeah it's a great it's a great sci-fi movie in its own way you know and nothing's ever going to happen like that and then of course it it does and you're like hmm that's that's kind of different. <laughs> One of the next roles that you took on, you mentioned before, was Weird Science, where you, Lord General, kind of very Wes-like. Were you ever afraid of being typecast as this mohawked, crazy bike rider after that? I actually didn't want to do it. 
took them about five months to get me to say yes. I was in Australia. I was directing commercials and things. And I, I was like, I'd had my 15 minutes of fame as far as I was concerned. It wasn't going to go anywhere and I wasn't going to continue. So, you know, I really didn't want to do it. And um, I really, I had the, th you know, I've done it. I've been there, done that, you know, don't want to do it. They persisted to get me to do it, which, thank God, they did. And a couple of reasons. One was that it was a virtually a send-up of who Wes was. It was like a cameo um, comedy version of Wes, which intrigued me. And then it had one of the, the best directors of kids' movies on the planet uh, was directing it. So it was like, eh, what the hell? And I came over to do it. And the costuming was not supposed to be like that. I was actually going to be very much like Wes. I mean, further than that went. But Warner Brothers were threatening to sue and, and do all kinds of horrible things if they didn't do something about the character. So what they did was they changed the character very slightly, gave him a tattoo down the side of his head and did a couple of other things with the costume that made him a little different, and therefore they couldn't do anything. But he was Wes. I mean, it wasn't difficult to to see that. Um, but uh, it was fun. I enjoyed it. I really did have a lot of fun doing that film. And strangely enough, it's it's one of the films that I'm all, you know, everybody says, oh, you must be remembered for Road Warrior and, and Commando. And um, uh, it's like, yes, I am. But strangely enough, now the millennials always remember me for Weird Science. It's It's really weird that um, I remember a, a producer was talking to me and he said, uh, we were pitching you for a film to the um, investment group and they said, who is he? And we sort of went, you know, he did Road Warrior Commando, Inner Space, blah, blah. And um, they went, no, no, who was he in, in Commando? And they said, the Mohawk. No, no. And then one of the guys at the table just sort of looked up and went, hang about, that's not the guy out of weird science, is it? Uh, he said, yeah, and they went, he said, the whole table went, oh my God, we love him. And he, he just sat there and went, he's done two of the biggest movies and, and they remember him from a little movie called Weird Science. What the hell? And it, it, I just found it very funny that that was the one they remembered, not the other major, major villainy things, but uh, Weird Science, which I love, by the way. I think it's a great movie. You are fantastic in there. And then Michael Berryman is so hilarious in there as well. He's just wonderful. Michael's remained a friend ever since that. I just adored him and still do. He was just so much fun. Everybody in that, uh, uh, funnily enough, the the big, heavy, the big, big biker, the one with the half a metal face, he was my flatmate. We shared a house together when I came over because I had nowhere to live and I was living with him. And um, he was in the film as well. But uh, I, I, every time there's a reunion or something, we all get together. And the whole cast, I mean, of course, you don't get the major stars that went off and and uh, did uh, bigger things. But all the rest of us, we all sort of hang out and have fun and all get together again. It's It's just like it was on the set. Everybody's happy and you know nice and a great crew together so i like it when it's like that you know 
when you can remain when you can remain friends and you know I did the the kids series um, and it's it's uh, you know, over twenty odd years ago now and that whole cast out of that out of uh, Power Rangers the series that we did the whole cast whenever there's a convention or something where we're at every one of us is there the whole cast sticks together still has fun together and it's the only full cast of Power Rangers that stayed together. Yeah, we all have fun. We enjoyed ourselves. I mean, you know, I guess because most of us leave our egos at the door when we walk on the set, you know, you don't need to bring that shit with you. Just go out and have fun. Be be happy that someone has, has been dumb enough to hire you to do a film. Don't, don't mess it up by being an ass. Last time we spoke, I want to say you were working on a film called SOS. Ship of Souls. How is that coming along? And you also seem to have a lot of other projects in the works. Um, it's finished. Ship of Souls is now in, um, I believe they're doing the sound mix and the music on it at the moment. Um, it came out really, really good. I directed some of that, which was really fun. Yeah, I'm doing a lot more directing these days, even with the films that I'm in, which is really cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I did Ship of Souls. Before that, I'd done a, a film called Under the Palm, Under the Palm Tree, and that um, was actually up for consideration for Cannes, I believe. Um, the uh, producer rang me uh, a few weeks ago and said, you may have to go to Cannes because if we get chosen in the 19th, um, you'll be going to Cairns. And I was like, what? I know. I mean, God damn, what? I'm not doing that shit. Why would I go to Cairns? Um, uh, but uh, that that was quite quite nice and, and um, sort of a little out of left field, out of the blue. And since then, since we spoke, I've done probably another six films. I just finished a film uh, a week and a half ago called... Uh, Death, uh, sorry, Suicide by Cop, um, SBS, uh, SBC, sorry, Suicide by Cop, uh, which is a great film. I love it. I, I just really, 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 um, five days of hell for me because they shot all of my uh, stuff in five days, which um, was kind of a lot, a lot, a lot of work because I play the lead in the film. So I had a lot, a lot of work to do in five days, but I enjoyed every minute of it. Love the film. Love what it's about. It's it's just a wonderful um, uh, film. That's uh, probably in in the throes of being um, done. Um, Trouble is, my business came out, which is uh, a film noir that I did. It came out in black and white and color. A wonderful film. Uh, director and writer Tom Conkle, who also starred in it, love that film. And another one that I had done while we were getting into SOS was called The Inquisitor, but they retitled really it City of Gold, which is out as well. And a couple of others that um, I had uh, um, been involved in, which came out. And since then, I've done. Uh, yeah, about a six, and I'm just about at the end of this month to go into pre-production. I'll be co-producing and co-directing a film called Subject Unknown, which is a um, horror film in its own way. It's horrific, put it that way. We have a couple of films after that we've got to do, but 
I did uh, Await the Dawn, which uh, we just finished. Oh, and I've got a film coming up, which I'm doing next month, called Kill Giggles, which is about a guy that's killing clowns. Not me. I'm a clown in it. I'm not the killer. And then there's another one, if they get it together um, in August, called For the Love of My Daughter, which is based on a true story of uh, a guy who uh, his daughter was kidnapped by his ex-wife and her boyfriend and put into prostitution to pay for her mother's drug habit. And uh, the father went off the deep end and um, tortured and killed both of them and actually got executed for it. But uh, the, the for the love of my daughter was um, one of the things that when, when he was uh, he's, at his trial that he said, why why did he do it? He said, for the love of my daughter. And that became the name of the film. So that um, is scheduled for around August, which would kind of be fun. I'd love that one as well. That'll be, that will be a good one. Do you have to put on an American accent for these, or are you allowed to speak in your own voice? Strangely enough, they don't want me to put on an American accent. Okay. They just want me to be me. Have you had to do that in the past? Yeah, I I do it in... um, uh, uh, We're doing a Western sometime this year. We did a a prelude to it, a 20-minute teaser on it. I did that with a, an American accent, the whole film, so the whole teaser, and I'll be doing the film with shooting the film, um, and I'll be doing it all with an American accent. But people just sort of say, no, just be the way you are. I guess that comes with the territory of having done so many films. Now people don't care. They accept me for the way I speak, you know, a little bit like Sean Connery, you know, you can play a Russian submarine captain with a Scottish accent. Um and as he said, if people are listening to your accent, you're not doing a very good job of acting. Well, at least they uh, didn't overdub you like they did for the original Mad Max. Yeah, that kind of spoiled a lot of things. And we got around it and got away with it. But yeah, it's uh, sometimes I think, you know, we, we tend to fall into this thing of, of considering that there aren't other people in the world apart from Americans in American films. When you look around every street corner... There's probably seven or eight different nationalities standing on that corner. And, you know, they're all Americans, but they don't speak with American accents. And I think we're beginning now to realize that, that we don't all have to have an American accent. We can actually have a different accent and still be regarded as an American. Uh, Except, I mean, if you're playing um, an American uh, character like um, somebody out of history or, or something like that, that's a whole different thing. You know, if you're playing Lyndon Johnson, you'd have to have that accent. You couldn't wander in there and do an Australian accent. It just wouldn't work. For other things, you know, people don't really worry that much about it anymore. They're just like, no, no, just do it your way, kid. Everybody seems to think i got a great voice, so I guess that's why they leave me alone. Do you do a lot of convention work these days? Not a lot. I do conventions, um, mostly large conventions because it's, it's kind of not worth my time, and that's not being mean. That's just saying it's not worth my time to do small conventions when I don't. Um, it's, uh, I don't make the money to cover what I'm doing. Yeah, so it's like I, I prefer to do the big event, and I get to see a lot more people, and I get to be able to interact with a lot more people. 
And to me, that's what I love doing is interacting with the people that come to see me, you know, doing the stuff. I, I'm, I'm um, the front of a big film festival that will be in, um, in Vegas in July, um, August, yeah, uh, last week of July, I believe, first week of August. A uh, big film festival is up there, and I'm doing front of house, basically. I'm one of the judges, but I'm also doing all the emceeing, and I'm doing um, a panel. And um, mostly because I'll get to interact with 10,000 people. Yeah, it's, it's to me, that's what it's all about. I get to talk to the people who like what I do, and I get to find out why they like what I do. And I love that. I love being out there. And even if they don't like what I do, I still like talking to them. You know, everybody has an opinion and it doesn't worry me in the slightest if they go, well, I didn't like your performance. My wife hates everything I do. Yeah, yeah, I didn't like that. You're a little bit over the top. It's like, really? talk to the director. I do what I'm told. Um, but there's the one thing she did love, there's a film coming out. I'm not sure if it's out yet. It's called Lilith. And it's basically a, um, it's four 20-minute sequences or segments that all are the one film, but it's about four different people, and it's virtually about um, the devil decides to retire and hands the business over to his son. So his son decides to come to Earth and collect all the souls that his father has uh, had promised to him over the years, but he figures if he comes as the devil, nobody will even talk to him, so he comes as a very pretty female. And mine was, I play a character who's an old man who's just waiting to die. His wife's passed away from cancer and he really has nothing to live for. But he can't die, you know, he's lingering on and he's got to a point where he can't do anything for himself, so it's really bad. And um, she turns up, Lilith turns up, and uh, he's sort of like, who are you? And she says, I'll be a caretaker. He says, no, you're not. It's just I am. The other one couldn't make it, so I'm filling in for her. Uh, I go, well, they didn't tell me. And she says, oh, they must have forgot. And I kind of go, nah, they didn't forget. And then she goes, I guess you know. And I go, yeah, I'm not stupid. I figured it out. And she says, great, so we can stop all the bullshit. And then it's this fun game between the two of us. She wants my soul, and I won't give it to her unless she gives me something I want. So I barter with the devil, and it's really a, a fun, and even my wife said, that's probably one of the best things you've done. Yes, if, if you see Lilith on anything, have a look at it. Well, Vernon, thank you so much for your time. It is always a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's fun. I get to talk to somebody who lets me talk.
obviously, I want to ask you about the Road Warrior, but I was very curious if uh, I can ask you kind of how you got involved with the film, but really more what your early life was like and what you were doing before that. I was going to art school, fine arts. One day I was waiting at the bus stop. I wasn't driving. I, um, I wasn't too young to drive, but I can't recall. I think Mum had the car. Anyway, I was standing at a bus stop, and a lady walked up to me and said, excuse me, are you a model? And I said, no. And she said, would you like to be a model? I said, no. She said, not. <laughs> and I said, because I'm studying fine arts and who are you? You know, so anyway, so after a little conversation with her, she had uh, divulged that she worked for one of the premier magazines, fashion magazines in Australia, and she had spotted me, you know, talent scouted me. Um, I guess there was something about me in those days. I just... Um, uh, fit her, you know, brief for what she was looking for for her magazine. And, um, anyway, so I still wasn't interested. And she said to me, Are you, um, do you earn any money? You know, do you earn any pocket money, uh, from your parents? I said, No, 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 they're encouraging me to, to work and earn a living and be independent. So she said, Well, where do you work? And I said, Well, just at the moment, I'm just working in a fashion store. And um, I was earning, I can't remember what it was, but a really low fee, something like $20 for the day, something crazy like that. And uh, she said, well, how would you like to earn 150 an hour? I said, what? You've got to be kidding. <laughs> and my first thought was not about being a model or being in a magazine or being famous because I, I wasn't interested. It was about how many art books I could buy you know, and architecture books I could buy and how much, how much uh, you know, how many canvases I could buy and paints and paintbrushes and tools, you know. So that was on my mind. I thought, oh, my God, this is brilliant. So that's how it started, but it really just took off, I suppose, because I was a fresh face and unusual and I wasn't really starry or uh, modelly in particular. So it's just one of those things. And I've always been quite friendly and down to earth and it seemed to serve me before i knew it i was doing television commercials and i ended up doing 57 television commercials and um but don't get excited in australia we don't have we don't earn any royalties so for anything not for ads not for films not for tv nothing so um we just get paid the once and that includes mad max and everything else that i've done anyway oh needless to say i left art school because i just thought, oh gosh, what I can do with all this, set up my own studio. That's That was the train of thought. You know, I had no intention of getting into acting. I wanted to pursue an art field. And I also wanted to work behind the scenes in um, the film industry. You know, I wanted to make documentaries and maybe end up being uh, a director. Uh, and I would have studied to make that happen. I was majoring in photography. Anyway, when you do so many commercials, you get to know the casting people. I knew the top casting directors, the like five right at the top, um, who booked me all the time for commercials. So they had their eye on me at the time, and they wanted me to get into film. And a couple of them kept on saying, you know, would you be interested in auditioning for this and that and this and that? And I kept saying, no, 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 it just terrifies me. I'm I'm not trained as an actress, and I wouldn't know what to do, and it's not the field that I want to go into. And uh, they said, yes, but you've done so many television commercials. You're, you're very used to working in, in the medium of film. 
city, yes, but it's still not the area. It just scares me. It's not the area I want to go into. One of them contacted me about Mad Max, and she said, look, I think you're really going to love this because uh, all the other roles that were offered to me were, you know, attractive girls, sort of Dallas-type situations, you know, very glamorous um, ladies. And um, this one casting agent said, look, in this, because she knew that when I wasn't working, I didn't wear any makeup, and that I was very far away from the, you know, the glamorous world that I that I worked in. And um, so she said, "You're going to love this role. It's the role of a warrior." And I thought, "Really? There's never been a warrior apart from Sigourney Weaver in Alien." I think she was. I think it was Sigourney Weaver first, and then me second. The only two at the time. Uh, only two warriors, you know, proper warriors. I'm not talking about, um, you know, fur bikini clad bun girls. I'm talking about like real warriors, real fighters. She told me about the the role and said that there was minimal dialogue and not to be scared. And I thought, oh, well, that sounds good. And uh, she told me, obviously, she had told me that the, the character was very strong and, uh, and silent. She told me a little bit about the backstory and and I, I thought it uh, sounded really interesting. No makeup, of course, not glamorous. Um, so I don't know how they managed to make her glamorous, but they sort of did in a way, but no, not using makeup, just the shape of her and something um, unique about the way they um, designed the costume, I think, was very attractive. But anyway, so um, I agreed to audition for it, and um, the rest is history. I'll let you ask some more questions. <laughs> I'm very curious how it was to work with George Miller and how he kind of walked you through the role. He knew that I hadn't acted apart from in television commercials, so it was, well, I don't know. I'm only presuming it was daunting for him. Maybe not. He's a very confident guy. Um, perhaps, uh, obviously, he chose me because he believed in me and he knew that he could get what he needed out of me. During the audition process, it was George, which is unusual, actually, to have such a big director like that actually present at the first audition. Usually that's the final audition. George was at the first audition uh, and gave me the lines of dialogue, and I was just hopeless. I was nervous and just awful. So he still felt that I had something, some charisma or something that suited the the characters. So he said, look, can you do uh, an improvisation? I said, oh, yeah, sure. And then I felt very comfortable doing the improvisation. He said, ah, perfect. Um, he offered me the role, and I had been to the gym that morning, and I, I was working out with weights, but not like a, you know, I wasn't overly muscular like a lot of the girls now. We, In those days, we didn't have six-packs. We didn't even know what they were. Uh, <laughs> but I was very fit. Of course, I went to the audition not really wearing any makeup, and I think I wore a headband, you know, just to sort of suggest that um, she might have been a warrior and messy hair. And he liked the um, the headband edition, so he included that. And it was wonderful working with him. He he was a new director. He hadn't done an awful lot at that stage, actually. He's a medical doctor. Uh, by profession, and um, he always had a love of art and film and creating. Yeah, it was amazing uh, working with George Miller. He was fairly new at that stage as well. He uh, he had done a movie called Chain Reaction with Steve Bisley where he produced, and I'm sure knowing George, he would have had some kind of artistic input 
he was actually a medical doctor um, before he became a director and producer. Um, but obviously he had a, a great love and passion for art and um, you know, creating on film. So uh, Chain Reaction was very exciting and um, there was a lot of uh, car chasing in there. I can't remember actually. I've, I've, I'm sure that there was a truck in there somewhere. But um, but anyway, he, he I think he must have been really inspired by that. So he used a little bit of, um, of that in Mad Max 1 and then, of course, in 2. But working with him as a director, he was, in the early days back then, 81, he was really brilliant at orchestrating action and placing everybody and you know making the story come to life. I think at that stage he was less adept at directing the, the actors um, knowing really what to say to them, he just would just let you go. Maybe that was his style. Well, obviously, it was his style in those days. But of course, you know, he went on to direct some of the most incredible award-winning films, like Lorenzo's Oil. And now, of course, he's one of the most sensitive, amazing actors, directors uh, in the world. But you know, everyone's got to start somewhere. So because I've never worked as an actor before, not proper in film. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I, and, I, and I needed feedback. You know, if I did something, I needed to hear from him whether it was good enough or whether he wanted me to do it again. And I always wonder with directors, I suppose directors just don't think about things like that. They don't think, well, you know, this person's new, so I need to give them a little bit more feedback. They just throw you in the deep end, and that's it, and you get treated exactly the same as everybody else. So you are expected to to know what you're doing. And of course, I didn't come from an acting background. I had never been trained, so I had no idea what I was doing, apart from the experience of having worked with cameras during the television commercial. So it was pretty scary for me. Every moment of it was frightening, because I thought, oh, my God, I'm overacting. Oh, God, I don't know how to deliver this line. I, and I was trying to feel it and emote and I just didn't know what I was doing but fortunately uh, the character had minimal lines and the character looked quite commanding I think so it didn't really matter that I didn't know what to do perhaps that, but that was fear that you saw <laughs> you know that that sort of um, uh, everything happening on the inside and, and giving minimal on the outside I did try I must admit all jokes aside I did try very hard but he was um, just lovely to work with when did you first start to feel comfortable as an actress? In the next job that I did after Mad Max was Prisoner Cell Block H. That was a show in Australia that was very, very successful and had been running for, for years, forever. And it was full of Australia's greatest female actresses, people who had been on the stage for, for their whole lives and brilliant award-winning, award-winning um, television and film actresses. And in I come as the only person who has no idea what they're doing and are completely untrained and having just played, you know, this very strong silent warrior in Mad Max. But uh, the casting people felt confident that I could play the role and uh, so I gave it my best. I worked so hard. It was really, really even more stressful because I had mountains of dialogue, which I wasn't used to. And at first, um, all of the girls were 
There are some actors that I talk to where they will talk about the importance of a costume, like something like, I really didn't feel like I was this character until I found the right hat or something like that. And with something like you mentioned, your role on Farscape or 
with the Warrior Woman. What was it like as far as the costuming goes, and especially with Warrior Woman? Because I know that was post-apocalyptic and everything was made out of other things. Can you tell me about how that was, strapping on those huge shoulder pads and all of that accoutrement? Yeah, I mean, her whole costume was um, was recycled from just bits that they could find. And obviously she didn't choose the football shoulder pads to, to look good as a fashion accessory. You know, she must have found them in a, in a heap somewhere and just thought, oh, well, this is good armor painting, you know, so... It's all about, and I haven't been trained, don't forget, so I don't know what the trained actors um, have to say about that. But for me, I have to feel the character from the inside out. Otherwise, it's, it's just not going to work. So I have to inhabit her. So uh, it wouldn't matter if I was wearing a um, paper bag or, you know, or leggings or a dress or whatever it was. If I was playing a complicated character, uh, the costume wouldn't um, be important. However, I think I know what that those people mean. It's when you finally you know your character and you could play the character in whatever in your pajamas if you you know if you had to. Um, but it's once you're completely dressed that you think, ah, okay, well, she's a very interesting looking um, character. And in some ways, it can help because um, knowing that. Uh, warrior woman was dressed in recycled bits and pieces, you know, made her a little bit tougher. You know, she, I knew she wasn't girly and she wasn't um, concerned with the way she looked at all in any way. It's just the only thing that was on her mind was defending uh, her people. That's it, you know, and, that's, and protecting everybody and nothing more. So the costume was um, was interesting. It was just made up of, of um, supposedly in story, you know, just rags. But Norma Morrison was the costume designer, and she was brilliant. And I really, truly, with all of my heart and soul, believe that if it wasn't for Norma Morrison, Mad Max 2 would have had a different outcome. She made it. She, her visual excellence was extraordinary, and it, it everybody has copied Mad Max too for decades. Even it's even in hairstyles now. You know, this mohawk and hair sticking up on, on end and uh, you know, that sort of punk look. It all pretty much came from Mad Max. However, Norma had been living over in England during the beginning of the punk era. And so she being an artistic person, she was just absorbing all of that around her. That madness, that colour, that, that re- rebelliousness. And um, people in London were very, very creative. They still are. Uh, and the, the street, the things that people were wearing in the street and the way they were presenting themselves was, was just, I, you know, I can't even put a word to it. It was extraordinary. And so the very next thing, Norma went back to Sydney and bang, she got Mad Max too. So she was very influenced, you know, it obviously appealed to her, post-apocalyptic. So she used the punk era and, and everything that she saw um, in England in the punk era, she put into Mad Max with other styles, with other things that she invented. And it just, it made the whole film. I can't imagine um, the way it would have looked. She had an input into the makeup, everything. She was almost like a director of photography, you know, in that um, she she was more than wardrobe designer. She was production 
design it, really. But, um, yeah, so she, we, you know, when you're, you're um, embarking on a film and you're going through the wardrobe fitting, you don't get an opportunity to see uh, the other actors, not unless they're there and you are privy to their costume try-on. You, you really don't know. I mean, you're completely in the dark. You're a professional actor and your job is to turn up on set and know your character and um, make the, the script live and breathe. So you, it's not like theatre where you go through, you know, months of rehearsals and, um, you know, rehearsing every step of the piece and including costume run-throughs and things like that. We did have rehearsal periods, but all of us just sitting in our normal clothes, um, sitting around a table, but we didn't have what they do in the theatre. So in film, you you know, you know, I had no idea what anyone else was wearing at all. I didn't see anybody. So I knew what I was wearing. And originally, um, I had bare legs. And I think bare, um, I think a bare midriff and bare arms. I mean, there was sort of minimal. There was, I still had the football uh, padding on and bits and pieces. But um, certainly not everything that she ended up wearing. And I remember commenting to Norma about this and saying, but I'm a warrior. I'm a fighter. No fighter is going to go into battle with bare legs and bare arms and bare midriff. I mean, you always see it in films, don't you? <laughs> you know? but, but in reality, it just doesn't happen because it's just not safe. You're going to cover yourself. Um, and it just fortunately, it was freezing cold. So I was then put in long johns and longer sleeves and covered up a bit more. Um, so I was happy with that because it made sense. I'm a logical person, so it made sense for me. But I didn't see anyone else's, as I was saying, you know, I didn't see anyone else's uh, costumes at all. Um, and I was looking forward to, um, to to seeing what Norma had come up with. I'd, I'd seen some of the vehicles being made in the big warehouse where the costume uh, fittings were, and I was just absolutely... I mean, I, I was a little bit of a, I was an art student and a very creative person, but I was also a little bit of a petrol head. The first thing I saw, just, sorry, just digressing a bit, the first thing I saw when I went into the fitting was a whole lot of hybrid bikes that had been mushed up and cut and you know, other bits stuck onto them <laughs> and one of the vehicles and thought, oh, wow, what is this? Don't forget, there were no video games in those days. There was nothing else to refer to. You know, what nowadays we're the young people. Um, I used to sing um, all kinds of genres, I guess, but um, back, back then there was, there was nothing that looked like Mad Max and, uh, and nothing that had vehicles that were all chopped up and stuck together like that and, and um, kind of re, reworked and reimagined. It was just really extraordinary. Anyway, so as I was saying, you know, I, the, I hadn't seen anyone else. Um, there was nobody else there that day for the costume fitting. So this one day, um, a few of us, we hadn't met before, but a few of us jumped on a plane and uh, that took us to Broken Hill, which is down south, the southern, southern border of New South Wales and the northern part of, of Victoria. And it was in winter. So, I mean, it really does get freezing cold. Australia's lovely. Around the coast, it's beautiful. 
in the summer and inland it's dead, it's boiling hot. Um, and Broken Hill is absolutely scorching in the summer. Maybe that's why they chose to, to work in the winter because it would be impossible. You know, like Mad Max 3, I think they did in, in the uh, blasting, searing heat. But we shot um, in the freeze. You know, it was very cold. So we well, jumped on a plane. There's nothing there. I think Broken Hill now has, has more. It's a bit of a tourist attraction. But back in those days, it had one pub, you know, one, one little motel where we all stayed, and, and a cafe, and you know, nothing. There's just nothing. It was in the middle of nowhere. And camels, I think people made money out of um, farming camels. We landed at Broken Hill, funny little dust airport, and I think it was a, from memory, it was a smallish plane. And we got out, and it's very dusty, very windy, and it's just desert. It's nothing, 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 nothing for all around it, as far as the eye could see. So we all got into a, some sort of a four-wheel drive, and there was, I was sitting in the front because I'm so tall, I need the leg room, and there were um, three people in the back. And the driver. We're driving along for ages, and there's just nothing to see. Maybe a few camels in the in the distance. And uh, as I said, this wind that was all we could see was tumbleweed rushing in the wind and, and dust um, all over the place, red soil, red dirt. Suddenly, the driver said, "Oh, I just I've just got to stop here uh, for a minute." And there was up the ahead of us, there was a dust storm. As I said, it was a pretty windy day. And um, it was a really big cloud of dust that was that we were on the edge of. I thought, wow, God, this place, what is this, Mars? It's like being on another planet. It was a huge cloud of dust and debris and, oh, it was just, you know, almost, I suppose, like being in a hurricane. We were waiting there for, for ages, and suddenly we saw a figure, kind of like, you know, close encounters of the third kind or something, coming out of the... You know, this this haze came a came a figure walking towards us. I thought walking towards us, but actually it was somebody backing out of it. But what are they doing? And the first thing I saw was a bare bottom. Oh my god! What the hell? What is this? But this is nuts. And this bare bottom had a pair of chaps on. You know, those horse riding chaps, but with nothing underneath. And. <laughs> And so, and dressed in leather, and we thought, oh my God, well, this is a pretty progressive town, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, what the hell? I just thought, oh, I must be seeing things. This is crazy. And then the next thing I saw coming out of the smoke was this big, colorful mohawk. And of course, it was Wes. It was Van uh, and And the dust storm, what we thought was a dust storm, wasn't a dust storm. That was the set. And the, the car. The four-wheel drive had to stop because he got a message on his radio. We didn't have mobile phones in those days to stop, you know, but we didn't think anything of it. You know, when he was told to stop, he knew because he's been living on set um, and he knew exactly what they were doing. So, uh, but we didn't. So you can imagine what we thought was like a hurricane, tornado, smoke and, and debris was actually manufactured by... Uh, the special effects folks there, you know, pumping smoke and all kinds of dirt and stuff into the into the air, and creating a, a great big cloud that that Wes on the set was disappearing into, and he was backing out of it. So when he backed out of set 
out of the camera view. That's when we saw him. So that was our first view of a costume. I hadn't seen anything else. I hadn't seen the set yet. All I saw was his costume. It was just... <laughs> I mean, you can imagine seeing that for the very first time. It was uh, so thrilling. And I knew what I'd be wearing. I thought, oh, God, yes, this is brilliant. And uh, then I, then we sort of adjusted ourselves to, right, we're in the desert. This is the set. There's no building. There's no studio. There's no studio lights flashing when when they're filming. You know, this is it's just low budget. You're you're in the desert, and you just have to take whatever comes at you. And um, it's all filmed on on location, right right there. And so that was that was the set for that day. <laughs> so it was pretty exciting, and uh, I was amazed by how brilliant um, Wes looked. I mean, obviously he had, you know, Norma Morrison is just, she's just amazing, and she helped design everything, and um, was then the makeup artist sort of took over from her guideline, and, and George's as well, obviously. You could see the influences from American Indian markings, as well as the punk, a punk look, and a, you know, a leather a leather boy from the 50s, you know, there was a, there all kinds of different influences, all mushed up and chopped, and um, and there it was. And the, the uh, you know, the hair came straight from the, the punk here, of course, but the, the makeup from the American Indians, and warriors, you know, he's a warrior, so of course he's a crazed, evil warrior, he's going to put um, war markings on his face. Is not for effect and not for fashion. It's because he's he's crazy. He's crazy and he wants to to mark himself that way. You know. So. Well, what was your experience on set? Did uh, I imagine being cold and being a little put off because you're not necessarily feeling your own as far as acting? But were people being supportive? Was there a sense of camaraderie? Huge sense of camaraderie because we're all excited to be there and, and we're witnessing something that no one has ever seen before on the planet. You know, this mad hybrid movie. It was completely unknown. So it was very exciting. Yeah, big, big camaraderie. Um, and, um, and it brought us all closer. The weather actually brought us all closer. Uh, we had a school bus as our green room, you know, as a relaxation place, a holding pen, if you like, you know, for, it's called a green room. And, uh, well, these days it's called a green room. I don't know what it was called then. We just, we just used this old school bus to all sit in because there's no heating. And so we were shivering with um, blankets, loads of blankets wrapped, wrapped around us. It was raining some days. The weather was miserable, but it's not like, I mean, you're not going to be looking for a glamorous experience when you're playing a warrior, you know, in in the desert in a film like that. It's going to be tough. And, um, you know, a lot of people think that they believe the press and, that, of course, they see all the, um, they see the actors in the press jumping in and out of limousines and going off to, you know, holo beautiful holiday destinations and wearing the beautiful clothes and all of that. So they don't see the grungy, dirty, hard, tough, side of things, which is, you know, and no, no actor has any sleep, not unless you're working on um, a huge film that has, no, not even then, no, you've been working mad hours and, uh, 
you're going to get hurt at some stage. You know, something's going to happen to you, <laughs> for sure. You know, it always does with everyone. So we, it was just part of the fun of it. And I just I just loved every every second, every millisecond of it. And uh, we're all a very, very close team and all shivering together, <laughs> you know, all huddled up. And, you know, it was um, – and, and on set was – Obviously, you know, scary experience for me, but also exciting. You know, the adrenaline was flying. Mel, oh my God, we all had a huge crush on Mel. Uh, we girls had all just in passing, you know, a little bit of silly banter. Um, had all been to- told that, um, you know, the lead Mel Gibson was absolutely gorgeous, and that was just a little bit of girly gossip. You know, by the by, just one of those little silly little things. And so I don't know what was in my mind. I'm a very creative person. I've got a photographic memory. I'm thinking of, of, of course, for me, you know, the most incredible, gorgeous-looking man. I, I conjured up some superhero in my mind. And um, I'd seen a photograph of him, and I, I thought, oh, I thought everyone just said he was gorgeous. And he's nice-looking. Attractive, but I certainly wouldn't. I mean, everyone was swooning. Is that really, literally swooning all over the place? And um, I realised why uh, later. Um, before I was mentioning that we had some rehearsals, and it was in a um, church hall in Sydney, and we we're all just sitting around, um, you know, around tables like Lamanex tabletops and just school chairs, you know, sitting there with our scripts. And Mel was on his way. We were all um, there already. He had something to do, I think, a PR or something. And there were two big doors at the end of the hall, and uh, suddenly the doors um, were flung open. He was in a rush, and uh, the light poured in from outside, and all I could see was a silhouette. And it was really like a scene in a movie. In walks Mel, and suddenly my jaw just dropped. Because this man has this incredible internal energy that he oozes charisma. And it's not like testosterone, oh, is a sexy looking person, as you can appreciate, is, you know, sexy, if you like, um, you're coining a very sort of commercial. Phrase. It's not that. He's, he's, he sort of shines from within, and he has that it factor. You know, you either have it or you, or you don't have it. You can't make it. You can't pretend it's there. You can't. There's nothing you can do. It either sort of shines out of you or, or not. And it suddenly did with him, and it, it just made everybody. He just oozed this charisma, and he was really magnetic. And um, it made him gorgeous. And, uh, of course, that translates on screen as well. um, I just spent the rest of the film blubbering idiotic mess, you know, every time I was near to Mel. I couldn't talk to him. I I felt so bad because I just couldn't say a word. He must just thought I was a complete idiot. And the whole whole film, I barely spoke to him. He must have thought I hated him, actually. But it was just shyness. Because uh, I have a real shy streak. You know, if I like someone, I can't look at them. 
I can't speak to them. It's the same even now. So, and how are they ever going to know? <laughs> but he was, um, everybody felt that way. Not in the same way as me, not being able to say anything, but everyone felt um, a crush. And uh, the, even the men felt in awe of um, Mel. He's married, of course. He had a couple of little babies at that stage. He's married to Robin, and she was there. So much to our disappointment. <laughs> yeah. But uh, everybody was amazing, just really lovely and very, very supportive. Every picture I've ever seen of you, you have very long hair. And I'm curious, were you wearing a bald cap with Farscape? No, because... Do you remember I was saying before that, you know, I have to inhabit the, the character from the inside out. So my agent sent me a fact saying um, there's a role that you might be interested in and it's playing um, a, an alien priest. And they're looking for a very statuesque person with a nice voice. And I thought, oh, okay, no other information, nothing. So. I thought, well, I'll look into it a little bit more, and then um, I got the, the what they call the sides, which is just the the scenes that they want you to perform in the audition. And you don't ever have the luxury of hearing about the character. It's just an accident if you happen to perform it the way they were um, hoping for. You're not given any direction, nothing. It's really, you know, the audition process is really hard. You just... You, you don't know, you're not given any information, so you don't know which way to play. All you can do is to read into these sometimes short scenes and try and figure out what's going on. There's never any information. But I guess, I don't know really, but I, I suppose the casting people, when they find an actor who has accidentally dis- discovered what it, what it is, that that they happen to be looking for, then that's the person that they're going to pay attention to. And I had thought, oh, she's a priest. Ooh, I wonder what kind of, and I'm getting to the ball. I, I, I wonder what kind of priest she is. She could be a devil-worshipping priest, and she could have, you know, uh, sacrificed babies on a fire or some horrible thing like that. You know, she, she could have been um, extremely evil priest. Priest of darkness, or she could could have been who knows what sort of religion because she's an alien. And I have just been studying uh, Reiki and I've been studying naturopathy and homeopathy. I had I was always interested in art and uh, all things creative, but I was also interested in the human physiology and the and the relationship between mind and body and spirit and emotion and you know pretty much everything. I wanted to know how it all ticked. Um, I took after Dad that way. And so as I matured, I lent more toward, um, you know, wanting to study medicine. And But it wasn't, wasn't uh, modern medicine. I wanted to study traditional medicine because I was very much into health and well-being. And I was frustrated at the time by uh, the medical profession treating the symptoms rather than the cause. You know, you go to the doctor with a lump on your arm, they'll treat the lump on the arm with creams and um, lotions and potions, but they won't actually try and figure out where it's coming from. I think they're a little bit better now. Uh, But anyway, so I was studying um, natural therapies in between acting jobs, and it was my hobby, you know, and I loved doing it. So 
Um, part of uh, studying this natural medicine was also studying all kinds of different healing modalities, and I wanted to be open to everything. So I was studying um, at the time that you know everyone was raving about um, herbal medicine, which is is not new; it's you know, centuries old. And um, I decided to study Reiki, which is like this energy healing, and um, I wanted to look into meditation as a form of healing, you know, because stress is so uh, debilitating and can cause all kinds of illness. Anyway, long story short, so when I was faced with auditioning for this priest, I thought, well, hang on a minute, what? You know, she's not an earthly priest. She's not going to be Catholic or Baptist or... Anglican or, you know, something, or Jewish or what, what, you know, or Muslim, what, she's going to be something from outer space. <laughs> she's an alien. And I thought, well, we're all taught that there's energy in nature, there's energy in prayer, there's energy in every religion, um, you know, has its guides and guardians and so forth. And I thought, ah, oh, okay, I think I'll, um, sort of build Reiki around her, energy healing, and that's sort of a little sci-fi and could suit her. So it's a huge long story about the audition process and what I was doing, but just getting to the point. So when eventually I was, um, I got the role, which is lovely, and they didn't tell me that I had to be blue until the last audition. I had no idea. My agent kept it from me. The casting people kept it from me because they knew I'd say no. And they certainly didn't tell me that I had to be bald, and I loved my long hair. However, I would have cut it for a role, and I've dyed it in the part in the past for a role, but certainly not shaved my hair. That was very it's very unusual. In those days, nobody had done it. Sigourney Weaver was the closest with her, you know, almost buzz cut. I think she did shave it off um, in any. Anyway, so um, it was rather shocking when I heard. And, but long story short, you know, in the end I embraced it because of my decision to, to build all of this new age, not, well, you know, it's not new, it's ancient, but I wanted to build this, this energy healing uh, religion around her. And the closest was uh, Buddhism. And I was thinking, well, you know, one of the things that you do as a Buddhist, if you're a trainee monk, uh, you shave your hair off because you, you want to get rid of this, the earthly affectations and anything that's, that's, um, any kind of pretty adornment, you know, because your life as a, as a Buddhist monk is going to be all about, um, the religion, you know, the, your, your belief and, um, spirituality. So hair is considered to be attractive, sexual, uh, sensual, you know, it has to go. Um, in the Buddhist uh, religion. So that's the way I approached it. And um, there was a positive side to it as well, in that the makeup artist had said to me, well, if you prefer, we could build some kind of a headpiece but, and you could keep your hair, but the trouble is, if we build you a headpiece, you're going to have to shave around the edges and I'll have to cut the length of your hair off so it'll mean you'll have quite a short little circular patch, almost like um, you know a little a little cap worn at the back, like the like the pope wears. You know this little cap of hair <laughs> on the top of your head that's short, and the rest will be shaved. And I just said, oh for God's sake, you know, shave the whole bloody thing off, you know. And um, so and also um, building a, a headpiece 
um, every day, gluing it on would have taken another couple of hours. And already the makeup process was three and a half hours, and I was the first to leave, the first to arrive and the last to leave. And I just thought, oh, look, I'm for the whole series, I think I got no more than two and a half, three hours sleep every night. And it, to wear a headpiece would have added another hour and a half to two hours. And I would have had one hour sleep, you know, so it just didn't make any sense. So so I just uh, threw myself into the characters as though I was a Buddhist monk. I hope that makes sense. I just devoted myself to, to her. What are you up to these days? I have just freshly gone into retirement and uh, for the first time uh, because I'm in a few weeks time I'll be 67 I, I don't understand it and I look in the mirror and I can't see it necessarily because we all have a stereotypical idea of what 67 should look like and 67 should be a little old frail lady with white hair you know, and a walking stick, and here's this great, huge, big, you know, six-foot, healthy, brown-haired, you know, creature I take after my uh, my dad, who um, had brown hair until he was, well, until he died, you know, 94. So um, the age is, you know, it's ch- changing these days. There's so many very useful people in their 60s, because we all went through this, the 1960s. You know, we're all rebels. And we're young-minded, and we stay young-minded. I think anyone who's creative is going to have creative spirit coursing through them, and it keeps them childlike in a way. That's the only thing I can think of. But um, regardless of of having a youthful feeling, feeling youthful and looking youthful, I am actually 67. I'm a bit tired. You know, I've worked for forever. And uh, so just in the last few months, I went from being semi-retired and now to retired. However, <laughs> I don't know how long that's going to last. Who, who knows? But right now I'm enjoying the, the rest, I must admit, for the very first time. Uh, and I'm thinking about maybe doing some painting, maybe going back to finish my naturopathy, herbal medicine you know, studies. Um, but right up until... I retired a few months ago. I was making, I had a, a business where I was making um, beautiful perfumes and soaps and just doing little favors for friends and popping up in a little short here and there. But I will, if, if somebody wanted me to do something, if, if someone offered me a fabulous role in a, in a, a big commercial production, you know, I would, I would go back. Or if, you know, who knows, maybe I'll stay retired for six or eight months and then just think, right, I've got a very lively mind, I need to, to do something. It's just that I don't have the energy level that I did when I was uh, younger. I mean, no 67-year-old person does. So, so. Uh, But for now, I'm, uh, I'm retired and have no idea what the future will bring. Maybe I'll go back to full-time work, I don't know. Well, hey, thank you so much for talking today. This has been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you.
there's a real fetishization of automobiles in the cars that ate Paris, and that really seems to play into what was happening in Mad Max 2. Was that just coincidental, or was there kind of a car culture in Australia? Is it because of things being so spread out, does the car become more important for Australians? No, uh, that's interesting because uh, and it's ironic to do because I don't think cars were not a, not such a preoccupation in Australia with people as, as, as they appear to be on the on film. Um, not not at all. Can you tell me a little bit about your role in the Road Warrior or Mad Max Two and how you kind of came to that? Oh, I don't really know how I was um, cast in that in the sense that um, I just got a call. I think he'd been casting for quite a while, and um, I know he'd been casting, looking for the other roles. I don't know. And it was l- uh, one afternoon, late, and uh, my agent rang and said, look, uh, get yourself over to casting agent, blah, blah, uh, because George Miller would like to talk to you about a film. And I said, yeah, he said, and you've got an appointment, you've got to be there. At, I don't know, it was late in the day. So I got myself over there and arrived and he said, oh, look, here's a, here's a script here. And it was sort of almost like a cold read. And, but basically I said, look, can I, I recall I just I went away for about an hour or so to see if I could learn the lines because other people were um, going in for roles. And, um, and so I came back and I think I was the last person that day. And um, we, I just, just did my audition and I think I sort of, because it was such a cold read, I, I, I actually put the script down and sort of improvised some of it too a bit. And we did a couple of scenes. He's a lovely guy. And I, I, I sort of knew George. We'd met before then. So we were familiar with one another. But I had no idea. I, at that stage, I hadn't seen the first Mad Max. So I wasn't quite aware of, once again, you know, this was sort of a surreal kind of scene I was playing here. And to, to understand, you know, I didn't really understand much about the film at all. But I just was playing this character and this situation, and I was so it was pretty spontaneous what I was doing, and went away, didn't hear anything for quite a while, and I thought, oh well, I have, have we got that one. Then a phone call came, and uh, uh, once again from my agent, and uh, George would like you to go over tomorrow, or I've forgotten where it was, but and watch a couple of movies he's got with Mel, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And so uh, we went and saw two films that are really interesting because they, you can see the impact that they had on Mad Max 2, I think. And that was one was Shane with Alan Ladd. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's one of the great iconic films. And there's a lot of Shane and the Road Warrior, I think. And Yojimbo uh, by Kurosawa, which, is a fo- which uh, became A Fistful of Dollars. Uh, that's where um, uh, the only sort of ripped off um, Yojimbo, and it's it's more if you can if you if you see that movie, it's identical to A Fistful of Dollars. Really. And um, so we saw those two films. So basically, they're about this loner in a town. You know, you've got the same similar situations in Shane and Yojimbo. And we had a chat. You know, talked about it, and I thought, well. I still didn't know if I had the part, but um, it looked like we were getting closer and we seemed to all get on. We had a great chat after it. And I went home and then I get a phone call about a few days later saying, oh, look, would you go down to, to be measured up for your costume? <laughs> so, I thought I, so I had the role. But working with George was just magic. George is a genius. And, and I use that word with great care. Um, I, mean, I don't use that word often, but um, George is, is, is certainly a genius in terms of and creativity and he had that film in his head 
and it was just brilliant. And I was always secure. Re- I was always really secure working with George. If George said, "Right, you know that's uh, uh, you know that's right, we've got that," or uh, "This is what I want," and and I would you know we'd do a couple of takes, etc. And you, okay, I've got that. He just reassured you, and he also encouraged if you if he needed more from your, he needed you to go further. You were always felt secure uh, in what you were doing. He always made you feel secure in creating a great world for you. I think I think in Mad Max too, and all I think most of the films that George would have made, I I have a feeling that he makes the actor really secure in the world that they're in. He make, he he sort of fills it out for them, even though so many of those films, the Mad Max films, are quite surreal and out of this world. That there's a reality for everyone that's within that story. And and that's what makes you feel really great. And but he also encourages you to use your own imagination, which you know becomes such a, a, a beautiful collaborative time. I have two kind of nerdy questions for you about Mad Max. Did you ever give your character a name? I'm just trying to remember because I think we all we sometimes we sometimes joked about a name, and I'm just trying to remember what they were. But I, I've forgotten what they were. But um. They were always very ordinary names, like Frank or Ray. No, 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 we never had a name. I didn't, we felt it was best to, sometimes I often wondered what he was before that, you know, if, if in the real world, after the, you know, the, the, the sort of shit had hit the fan and, and, you know, people were living off the land like they were, you know, what what had he been in the real world? And I often feel he was a kind of like a, uh, a very bad used car salesman or something like that, because I think he was he was sort of not so much immoral but amoral. I loved playing that character, and I just um just so grateful to George and doing that and you know we're very, we're still very friendly but in the sense that um as I said, if someone gives you a role in which you can travel and i boy you know could I travel in that and i just I just enjoyed every day on the set with that. Never quite knowing where I was going to go, you know, you had your lines down, etc. But often, you know, you were also there were times when he would just, you know, if he had enough time, he would just, how can I put it? You could just add something to it. But but he was just wonderful. I loved doing that, and I must confess right away that I had no no inkling of what an impact that character would have at the time. I was just a cog in a wheel of the, of that story at that time, and I was just doing what I could do. I didn't realise that my character would have would have have the impact that he had. Um, would would um, I didn't realise he was so integral to that plot. Uh, it was funny that it was only when I went in to do the ADR to put my you know to put the extra voice down etc. From those uh, and I saw the rough cut, and then I realised, my God, you know. It's a, and and I I hadn't been there uh, for some of those um, uh, stunts that they had done, and and uh, when I first saw it, I was just blown away. You know, then this, I'm talking about the rough cut. This is a black and white print with with no you know no great dissolves or anything like that. It was very rough, but oh, just when I first saw that, I was just so knocked out. I, I, that's a vivid memory. That just that memory of in that um, recording studio and seeing that rough cut just stands out just brilliantly. I often wonder whatever happened to that rough cut because sometimes I think it'd be really interesting to see that one again. I mean, the film itself is fantastic, but it's 
funny when you in this in the um journey of making a film when you see various versions of a film before it, you know, it's released you can see the initial cuts etc and it's fascinating to see the journey that a, um, a story makes to end up on the screen in front of an audience and it was uh, wonderful to, to see that uh, and I think it was just great that George is um, actually a very gentle man he's an well he was once a do- he was a doctor and he still is I suppose but this gentle man to be sort of you know, responsible for this mayhem is just so incongruous in a way. But but once you get to know him, and the way he, when he talks to you about storytelling, etc., you know that that is him. That's that's him. He's um. He, uh, and, and what's interesting about George also is uh, it's through George that I became really aware of uh, Joseph Campbell. And it's interesting that you know, in a way, you can see the influence of Joseph Campbell, I think, in some of George's filmmaking. He, he often talks about Joseph Campbell. But I'm sure many people are aware of the influence that Joseph Campbell has had on people like, you know, Lucas Spielberg and many other filmmakers these days. Um, and he virtually is a Bible for, you know, the, as you say, the hero with a thousand faces is one of the great, great Bibles that I'm sure is. Um, there are many books out there that are well-worn by little filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers. Yeah. My other nerdy question for you was, what is the relationship or is the relationship between the gyro pilot and Jedediah from Beyond Thunderdome? Ah, oh, I don't think there is one. That's interesting. Uh, I, I'll explain how, how I got... Um, they were making uh, Mad Max 3 and uh, they hadn't contacted me. In fact, I think may, I may have had a conversation with someone saying, look, I'm, I'm sorry, there's nothing there really. It's another... Story and I thought, and I, you know, that's fine. Okay, I wasn't. Ex- I didn't. I, I have no mortgage on any characters or any you know, on on the Mad Max uh, stories. But then, sort of, they were about to start filming. I think, or they may have already done some filming. And then they, I got a phone call, and they said, "Look, look. Um, basically, there's this character. He flies a plane. He's got a kid, and blah blah blah. And he described the character." And we've looked around for people to play him, but we keep coming back to you. And we keep thinking of you. It's sort of somehow or other, it's, it's you, you know. And how do you feel about playing it? And I said, oh, of course, I'd love to play it. But, but as I said, it's, it's not the gyro pilot. It's, an, it's another character. This character comes from... And I remember when I, for, for example, when I went in to do the, um, the costuming for that character, we thought we had to establish him from a completely different point of view. And that's why that character has that, you know, all that white, etc., and you know, we wanted to get away. In fact, we talked about how we, we didn't want any black on him because the Mad Max is always so black. You know, it's black on black, and his costume's black. And so I said, "Oh well, let's go for white." And we're going to tattered white. And I don't know if everybody anybody's noticed, but the kind of apron that he has. In fact, we ended up we wanted some decoration on him, and it comes from a mason sash or something and um but we, we kind of like that you know because it was with freemasonry it's got that mysterious symbolism all over it nobody notices it really because it's so brief but um what i'm basically saying is that's how we built the character so basically no uh, it has no real strong reference to the previous character not at all
been through a trial by fire, and only the greatest warriors and their deadliest enemies emerged from the flames. Who are you? Nobody. Understood. I can feel it. The dice are rolling. <laughs> he was the one they called mad. But he's just a raggedy man. But to those whose lives hung in the balance... Where's the whiting ones? Whiting for what? Whiting for you. He was the one they called hero. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Dying times here. Now, Mad Max is back in Beyond Thunderdome. and we are discussing the Mad Max movies. And I guess we have to talk about the third one, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. So I don't think I saw this in the theater. I don't think I saw it. I think I saw it on cable. I'm trying to swear less when I'm on the podcast. The Australians are terrible for swearing. But fuck this movie. <laughs> Just fuck <laughs> this movie. Okay, I'm done. I've only seen this movie... Two and a half times, maybe. I probably saw it more when I was a kid, but I knew things were wrong with it. I was so confused. You know, here I am. How many times did I talk about the gyro pilot when we're talking about the road warrior? And when Bruce Spence shows up in this movie, I was so excited. I was, oh, great, great. The gyro pilot's back. And that he ends up not remembering Max or he's a different character. I was so confused. Now, I, I hadn't experienced things like, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, or, you know, Desperado and El Mariachi, any of these kind of like sequels that will retell a story or that will use characters who might not be the same. I mean, I think uh, Danny Trejo plays three, four different characters in those uh, El Mariachi films. Who Okay, who cares kind of thing. But in this, the cognitive dissonance for me was so great that I just, my mind almost exploded because I couldn't figure out why this guy was not the gyro pilot from the second movie. Yeah, because you feel like you're cheated as well. It's not just that it's like, wait, what? It's also like, but you you, you could you could have just, yeah, you could have just made him the same character. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. It's, 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 so, it's so frustrating. It's just like, why, why does he, so why is he not the same character? <laughs> why, why are you doing this to us? I was thinking about this heaps because I was thinking about the Evil Dead thing, and I was like, "Oh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that." And then you know, then you get to Fury Road, and he's kind of like, "Okay, you're dealing with a new Max and all that, but he's still Max Rakansky, Rakansky. Never mind, uh, <laughs> he's still the same Max." Um, the, I think it is that the mythic fable thing. I think George Miller really is just being like, "No, I'm a storyteller around the fire telling the tale." And every time that, you know, the tale gets told by somebody else or, you know, you tell the tale and you spin it a different way or, you know, you, you describe the person the same way. And I think that is actually what he's doing with his films, that he really, really is try, is hitting that mythology thing 
on the head in the most classic traditional style where it is unfixed, where it is fluid, where it keeps shifting. And, you know, maybe it wasn't even that max that this story happened with, or maybe they're all made up and, you know, it's just, and that's, I think this film is the one that kind of reveals itself for being that the most and yet stuffs it up the most as well. It also didn't make sense to me. Sorry to keep harping on the gyro pilot thing. At the beginning of the movie, there's a a plane that goes by. Somehow Bruce Spence makes it off of the plane onto the caravan that Max has, which is a load of camels and they're pulling like a wagon. So we, again, it's kind of like a, a, a wagon thing you know we've got like the western going on a little bit in this movie though not necessarily as much as the previous ones i don't think he ever sees who that person is and yeah bruce spence is hanging around in barter town but again i don't think max ever sees who he is so then when he shows up at jedediah the pilot's place and he says you have a plane i'm just like well how do you know who this guy is because you've never seen his face before so that's another reason why I was so confused, other than he knew he had a plane because he was the same guy from the second movie. This is going to be a very long podcast if we talk about all the things that don't make sense about this film. It's like I was saying to you the, the other day, Mike, is it, it, this literally is the Hollywood PG-13 movie version of this story. And you feel it in every single moment of the movie. Yeah. Like even this time, like the, I said, I was thinking about Star Wars, watching the second one. But like Tina Turner character, Tina Turner's character, Auntie Entity, has like Princess Leia style earring things, and it's like and it's just all. And then you're like the like the kids are like the Ewoks, and it's just like it's it feels so much like a bunch of Hollywood producers threw all of these ideas together, and it's just it really is like it. It's almost, it's almost like it is almost a dreamlike film. Like it almost operates on that dream logic, but instead of being like casting a spell like the first film does, it's the more the and then this happened and then this happened and then no and then I I that's that's all I want and then it flattens the whole film out because no nothing feels like it really connects to the scene that comes after it. So it just sits there and then on top of it you've got maurice maurice uh, jare doing the soundtrack and doing the exact same thing like the soundtrack is so manipulative in this and so lazy where it's just like oh we're hitting this beat now oh we're hitting this beat now oh we're hitting this beat now there's none of that incredible sound design there's none of the use of silence there's nothing about the style of this film that actually truly connects it with the other film beyond, you know, this sort of hyper ridiculous junk BDSM world. It's just, it just feels so inert. It feels like there's kind of a good movie hiding in here, at least like hiding in the first, let's say half of the film before he gets sent away right after the, the wheel uh, scene. It feels like the stuff at barter town, could be okay this whole idea of this master blaster character where it's the dwarf sitting on the big man's shoulders it feels very you know hodorowski to me you know kind of like the masters that he fights in uh, el topo the guy with no legs and the guy with no arms it's like okay that's a cool idea but then it doesn't even make sense as far as like master who is supposed to be this really super smart guy 
the way that he talks in this like engine type talk where it's like you do this you know you go here you did that and it's like why are you doing that i was reading the script for this last night and you know i talked about how miller will set up something in one movie and then it'll it'll come through again in another film the guy with the voice box in the first movie pardon me master was supposed to have that same type of voice box in this movie and so then him speaking in these clip sentences would have made a lot more sense but he speaks in those clipped things to everybody in the the underworld and then later on he starts talking like a normal human human being and i'm just like what the fuck dude do you know how to speak or do you not know how to speak English motherfucker, do you speak it? I like the the politics and all this stuff. The the whole idea of we're trying to rebuild civilization. It runs on shit. Anti entity wants him taken out or wants the big man taken out so that she has more power. She uses Max as a tool, a blunt instrument to do that. I'm like, okay, I'm with this movie. I might not be a hundred percent with this movie, but I'm pretty with this movie. And then it takes a huge left turn. It's just like, what the fuck am I watching? It was the death of Byron Kennedy that was, I don't want to say caused or responsible for it, but that shook George Miller up so much that I'm trying to remember years ago reading something about this, that he basically couldn't finish directing the film. And so that's where it is, you know, it says directed by George Miller and George Ogilvy. And George Ogilvy was just, you know, no offense to him, but is nobody. And I, I think that is was the problem. I think whatever is good there would have been George Miller. And then when he's fallen out and you've, so you've lost not only George Miller, you've also lost this producer. And by all accounts, you know, Byron Kennedy was a force of nature to be reckoned with. You've suddenly got a million dollar, multi-million dollar blockbuster film with a not very experienced director at the helm and your main producer and director creator lost. Then yeah, that's when you probably have studio execs stepping in and suddenly it becomes Goonies meets Peter Pan meets get go fuck yourself, you know? <laughs> and the Blue Lagoon as well. Is he different? Everybody else getting like weird Blue Lagoon vibes. Like, what? It's, it just, yeah. It's like, that, like, let's just chuck every film that's been popular for the last four years in a blender and take a turd and splat it on the screen. It's like, that's the last half of this film. Ugh. When I saw it in the theater for the first time, I was just so happy to be seeing a Mad Max movie in the theater. But then I remember having, then having watched, you know, the other movies more when I came back to Thunderdome, even though I agree with you, Mike, that the first, the first like 20, like the first like 30 minutes or so, like right before he meets the kids, (laughs) everything is, is interesting. But the one thing I couldn't get over watching it again was Max just seemed to talk a lot more than I was ready for him to talk. (laughs) Like he's, 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 you know, he's interacting with these people and, and, you know, asking questions and everything. And I'm just like, this is not what, this is just not what I'm used to from, from the road warrior. He's, he's not, he, he just seemed too personable. Mad Max. It's Max and it's the car. It's cars. It's speed. It's, it's things like this. And then the film just stops <laughs> and it keeps stopping and talking and topping and talking. It's like, this is. This is not a. This isn't a Mad Max film. Like, I mean, it's, it's this could be you just swap out Mel Gibson. It could be any anything, anyone. It's 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 such a letdown because this when I rewatched it this time was the first time I'd watched it since seeing Fury Road, and it just is even worse than 
because like all the stuff that like the the weird gender politics of the film are gross to mixed up at best. You know, like you got uh, Max is like punching out a woman who's trying to do her own thing with the, one of the the, the the young women of the tribe at the end, and the whole thing with Auntie Entity is like. She's a prisoner of Master Blaster, but then we have to save Master Blaster from her? What What is going on here? Like, this film is just a hot mess of illogic. And doesn't, doesn't he get sent to the gulag? If he's being sent to the gulag, why are they sticking him on a camel and sending him out into the wilderness? Yeah, do they not know what the word gulag means? <laughs> <laughs> well, in this one, it's not just Max and his car. But it's a monkey. And this monkey character is MIA through most of it. I was again I was reading the script last night. That monkey is all over the fucking place in the script. And they probably had a unruly monkey actor and they couldn't get him to do what they wanted to do because he's barely in the film. I mean, he throws Max's boots and stuff at the beginning, and I was like, Okay, we'll probably never see this monkey again. And then when he shows up, it's like, Okay, are you gonna go for it with this monkey? Or are you not? They probably accidentally killed it. <laughs> <laughs> if honest to God, it probably died in an Australian heat. <laughs> oh, it's a terrible thing to laugh at, but it's probably true. Who knows with this film? Even the monkey is that like, oh, well, there's something wrong with the film. How do we fix it? I know, put a monkey in it. It's like the 80s American cinema through and through. Yeah, I was waiting for the cute kid. I was waiting for Short Round to show up at some point in this. Yeah, but he did. There were like 20 of them. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> well, to something that these uh, non-Australians might not pick up on is that there is some pretty heavy uh, cultural, racial cringe elements in this film because all of the kids in the tribe, the way the intonation of the way that they speak is the way that a lot of Aboriginals speak English. So... The cultural, like, there's already, there's already been a little bit of cultural appropriation in Mad Max 2 with the boomerang, but it's like, okay, it's not, that's, that's, it's okay, that's fine. But then in this film, it's something like, okay, so a bunch of white kids crashed in the desert, and now they speak like Aboriginals, and there's not an Aboriginal person to be seen in sight. As you knows, I'd be first tracker, and time's past count, I'd done the tell. But it weren't me that tumbled Walker. It was Savannah, so it only right that she take the tell. This ain't one body's story. It's the story of us all. We got it mouth to mouth, so you gotta listen it, remember? Cause what you hear's today, you gotta tell the birthed tomorrow. Yeah, and there's already a didgeridoo on the soundtrack at points. It's just like, oh, yeah... I didn't realize that this whole thing with the kids was actually kind of a ripoff from a book. That there's a, a book by Russell Holban called Ridley Walker, and this whole Captain Walker thing seems like it's taken directly from that. It's like, okay, so what? Why are you doing what? You 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 you're stealing ideas, and then it, it's the worst ideas that you can possibly do. And yeah, I was totally reminded of the Lost Boys, and not the Lost Boys from Peter Pan. I was reminded of the Lost Boys from Hook, and I fucking hate Hook. Me too. I'm with you there, man. This just made it even worse. In any action movie, introducing a kid is is risky. <laughs> like, 
There are plenty of movies where the kids, where there's a kid, and it's great. Like, yeah, and we just like like the Road Warrior, for example. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where, where, but here, here you have the example of like, okay, this is how you do all of it wrong. <laughs> I just want to punch so many of those kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to punch the monkey too. Screw the monkey. <laughs> and even even we, even Bruce Spence has an annoying kid in this. Everyone has an annoying kid in this film. Even when for me, even when Max says we're going to go back and we're going to stay there and we're going to be thankful. I'm just like, who the hell are you? This is not Max. (laughs) He would send them back there, but he's not staying. Everyone becomes the man eventually, man. This movie reminds me a lot of Neil Marshall's Doomsday, and that is not a compliment, because Neil Marshall's Doomsday reminds me of you just take a whole bunch of movies, you stick them in a blender, and then you're left with slop. Because I'm watching this movie, and I'm just like, oh, okay, so this fight in the gladiatorial ring is very Escape from New York, or this scene is very this. and I mean, Escape from New York notwithstanding... I'm being reminded of movies that I don't like while I'm watching this one. It's not like I'm even being reminded of better movies, you know, and like Neil Marshall's Doomsday reminds me of The Road Warrior. And I'm just like, yeah, I'd rather be watching The Road Warrior. And it reminds me of Escape from New York. And it reminds me of all these other films. This one I'm watching, I'm just like, for fuck's sake, why are you making me think about Hook? Why are you making me think about these other things that I just don't? Why are you making me think about fucking Ewoks? I don't want Ewoks in my head right now. Thank you. At least Doomsday, you get Malcolm McDowell. In this, you get bloody Angry Anderson. Like, what? Who, who the hell was like, let's cast Angry Anderson. He'll be great. And give him that, whatever the fuck that thing is that he's got off his, the, the Geisha mask thing on the top of his head. I was so desperate. I was looking for thematics while I was watching this. And I was just like, okay, there's a whole theme of little heads on top of big heads. And it's the Master Blaster is one. This guy, Iron Bar, is another because he's got the little head on top of his head. And then they reverse it when they stick that big paper mache head on top of Max and send him off into the desert. And I was just like, I'm sitting there looking for themes. Actually, you know, I think the Angry Anderson thing is because he's really short. <laughs> he is super short. And I mean, he is no Vernon Wells. Thank you very much. And I know he's trying to be in this movie. And it's just like, for fuck's sake. The, I actually also was looking for themes as well, and the best I could come up with uh, is my. I'll just read my note out because this was my at like two a.m. last night. What does it mean to be beyond Thunderdome when Thunderdome <laughs> is essentially a microcosm of the world he has lived in? Because Max has never encountered a corner. All of his adventures are in the curved world of roads that go round and round like the half sphere of the Thunderdome. That was the best I got. Frankly, they don't go beyond Thunderdome. They end up back there. God. There's a train, though. But that's the thing to me. It's like, okay, we're going to recreate We're going to recreate the ending of the Road Warrior, except this yeah. time, Max isn't even going to be able to turn the truck around <laughs> and but do anything. Wait, like he wait, could, He's know, literally stuck. <laughs> I know. Road train. Yeah. Oh my god. Actually, no. I, the one good thing about that is that bit where Angry Anderson is trying to operate the one man train cart thing. You know, you got to push it up and down, and he's got that stupid thing bouncing over there. That was the one thing I liked in this film. That that two second shot. Even the stunts, like the stunt of him falling off of the train, and I'm just like, you're falling into nothing. We don't see where you <laughs> land, and I'm just picturing like a whole bunch of mattresses underneath there. Can anybody explain to me how them not having enough runway for them to take off with the plane 
was altered in any way by Max creating a huge pile of wreckage right in the middle of where they were supposed to take off that supposedly wasn't far close enough, long enough away already. I think he bought them five feet of runway. Oh, five feet. Oh, cool. Maybe. It, needed to be, it just needed to be over. <laughs> it just feels very much like a movie made by somebody who's trying to imitate the other two movies and doesn't know how. See, for that, even that doesn't make sense because I know. <laughs> it's like, oh, but, but you, no, you, you are right because it, it's that it's that Hollywood escalation where it's like we'll escalate it by doing something that's not actually the same as, but feels like a which is a train. They're all trapped in a little kind of village thing, so we'll make the village a dome. They're trapped in or s- stupid shit like that. Where it is, it's like, oh, yeah, nah. There is a whole subgenre of films that rip off The Road Warrior and Mad Max. I mean, like Metal Storm, Wheels of Fire, Steel Dawn, Hell Comes to Frog Town. I already mentioned Doomsday, Exterminators in the Year 3000. I could, I could keep going, oh, but I won't. All of those Italian films, the whole, the whole bit. A lot of the Italian ones are ripping off Escape from New York more, but they did have a lot of quarries with people driving in circles. So that was more Mad Max. And at that point, you watch Thunderdome, and you're just like, I've actually seen better ripoffs of Road Warrior in Italian than I saw here with the actual guy making it and Terry Hayes co-writing again. It's like, yeah, what happened? Call up George Eastman and get him to come over and play Angry Anderson. Like, give us something. Can we move on? <laughs> so, somebody's just sitting there just bitching at us, just bitching right now. <laughs> well, I really liked the Beyond Thunderdome. I thought it was the best of the franchise. It's just, like, I remember when Siskel Ebert said, like, it's the third in a franchise that just keeps getting better and better. Oh, didn't like, Roger Ebert like, Are you out of your mind? <laughs> I'm pretty sure Roger Ebert loved this film. God. I know that there were tons of documentaries that were shot about this. You know, there were bunch of articles that were written i know that there was a bunch of press material for this movie so i don't get why on that mad max set that i think that we both have where it's like a yeah there's nothing like an eight disc set there's nothing there's a, no commentary there's no like uh, there might be a trailer but i mean i remember watching on i think nickelodeon when i was a kid all of the making of specials of this and it's like we're back with these beloved characters from the last mad max film you know and it's just like what who what yeah yeah to your point mike the pg-13 version of the thing that we like yeah, especially when, when it's come from hard R here in Australia and and the brutality of the second one. And then it's just, yeah, fucking, oh, God, if actually, you know what? If they had been Ewoks, I would have liked this film more. All right, we're going to take another break and play an interview with the author of Miller and Max, George Miller in the making of a film legend, Luke Buckmaster. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hello. I'm Mugumbo, and I am a potaholic. I have been known to consume four or five of these underground commentaries a day, salivating for the next episodes. I have tweeted the creators of these shows and offered sexual favors for validation and conversation. I put these hosts high on a pedestal, but for some reason, I can never climax until I listen to the traumatic cinematic show. What is the difference, you ask? The Traumatic Cinematic Show has my own self-defecating voice on it. Nothing gets me off faster than thinking about myself. 
So when you are sitting around nude, pleasuring yourself to the voices of strangers, check out TraumaticCinematic.com because we'll give you a reach around. You can also find us on TraumaticCinematic.Podomatic.com I'm on the internet. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I want to know about you and how you came to write a book about George Miller and Mad Max. Well, I started as a, as a film critic in 1997, uh, so I've been doing this for a couple of decades now, and it's always been my desire to write a long-form book. So number one, I, you know, I really wanted to write a book. It's, um, you know, it's great to be able to explore things in a lot more depth for the obvious reasons than you can in a, you know, 800-word, 1,000-word film review. Uh, so that's kind of like the broad overall thinking, but... There's another really important kind of element to, to the motivations here of why we want to write the book, and it, it relates to the Australian film industry, which has a incredibly rich uh, history in motion pictures, but not a lot of self-regard in terms of how the average Australian sort of thinks about their national film industry. So we in Australia, it's believed the first feature-length film, narrative feature-length film, Story of the Kelly Gang, was actually made in the state that I'm talking to you uh, from at the moment, Victoria. So the world's first feature film was Australian. We had a very, very vibrant film industry in the early 20th century until uh, the American distribution companies uh, and exhibition companies effectively took the industry in a stranglehold and uh, it was all but obliterated until the Australian film renaissance of the 1970s when you got films like uh, Mad Max and Picnic at Hanging Rock and so forth. Uh, so tied to that is this um, kind of undercurrent of um, American influence. And in Australia, we don't have a lot of uh, self-worth or self-regard when it comes to um, TV and film productions, even to some extent theatre, that have our national voice and distinctly Australian characteristics. People just love and are infatuated with Hollywood content. I really wanted to write a book that was about uh, a great Australian filmmaker, George Miller, 
great Australian films, the Mad Max series, and did so with the kind of underpinning belief also that if you don't write these stories down, they're, they're, they're not going to survive forever. And the incredible thing about writing this Mad Max book is that I started from a position, you know, of healthy skepticism. I'm a journalist. I'm a, I'm a film critic. Uh, I know enough to question people when they kind of talk about legends and look back through the kind of um, petroleum-scented haze of nostalgia in this case and remember these kind of crazy stories. So I set out thinking, well, they can't all be true. You know, Mad Max, the, the making of the Mad Max, it can't be about a flying car. You know, it can't it can't be about all these daredevil stunts that are just absolutely fucking batshit crazy. It can't be about all of that. Some of it has to be a little bit exaggerated. And then I actually found, much to my delight, that it didn't appear to me that these stories had been exaggerated at all. In fact, some of them uh, were, were were not exaggerated and were much weirder um, when I uncovered them. So it was a combination. The motivations of writing this book was about uh, wanting to do a, a long-form piece, wanting to do something historical for the Australian film industry, wanting to do something that's really, really fun, uh, and wanting to kind of sniff out and get behind the legend. So how easy or difficult was it for you to track down all of these people to talk about the Mad Max films? And, you know, you're not just talking about one movie. You're talking about four films that are made over a period of decades of time. Uh, some people were easier to track down than, than other people. Uh, so there's a lot of, I mean, most of them are men that are kind of like between the ages of maybe 55 to 75, some, somewhere along those lines. And a lot of these Guys, other than the obvious ones, George Miller and Mel Gibson and uh, Tom Hardy and so forth, they're guys with a very low profile, and a lot of them are um, fairly down-to-earth dudes. You know, they, they know how to build things. They know how to take things apart, uh, which is to say that it wasn't always easy to find these guys. It took, you know, quite a lot of sniffing around, and I, and I got the sense, weirdly, that not a lot of people, other than the kind of hysterical superfan Mad Max base have really approached them. So some were easier to find than others, uh, but it was, a, you know, it was really, really cool. I, I, I traveled to all sorts of, you know, parts of Australia meeting these, these guys and, and talking to them, and, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Were you still doing your work at The Guardian while you were writing your book? Yeah, I was, absolutely, yeah. That had to have been a little difficult to balance those things. Yeah, well, uh, my wife, we weren't part, we weren't uh, married at the time, but, uh, yeah, she, she noted that I'd kind of disappeared into my office for, it felt like several, um, eternities. And I basically just disappeared into writing the book and doing all the research. But, you know, there are much worse ways to spend your time, Mike, than to be surrounded and inhaling all things, uh, Mad Max. So yeah, it was, it was fun. Well, I guess I should say, too, why Mad Max? Like, out of all of those seminal Australian films that were happening in the 70s, why that one in particular? What did what struck you about that one? Well, Mike, which which other Australian uh, film series from the 70s or even uh, from in the entire, you know, film history has so much ridiculous spectacle? You've got cars flying off ramps. You've got uh, people breaking bones. You've got... Daredevil, I mean, it, come on. It, I, I, I'd be tempted to say it almost writes itself, but unfortunately that, that wasn't the case. But there was this incredibly rich um, history of Mad Max. So many batshit weird stories are wrapped up in this this legend. So it was pretty obvious from uh, someone who wanted to write something that was hopefully interesting or colourful in some way that this was a pretty good uh, franchise to choose. And also when I was sort of 
weighing up which filmmaker or which films that I wanted to write about, I did, you know, I did a little bit of research, obviously, to, to find out who had written what um, and when. And I found out that no one had written a book about George Miller. Uh, no one had written a, a biography of, of, I think, uh, one of the greatest action uh, filmmakers in the history of cinema. So when I looked at that, I went, wow, there's actually been no long form book about Mad Max. There's been no biography of George Miller. Uh, I took the idea to the publisher and I said, what I want to do, I don't want to do the, the normal biopic. Uh, sorry, uh, I don't want to do the normal biography. You know, I don't want to be searching around this, this, this filmmaker's history, finding out all the things that he did, um, you know, 30 years ago. Or I don't want to just be doing that. Okay. I was, did a lot of investigative work, but I don't want to just be doing that because there's a big story here and it's called Mad Max. And there's a, also a story of George Miller's life. So when I took the idea to the publisher, I said, I want to make this a behind the scenes film book about Mad Max and uh, a biography of George Miller with the logic that you can't write a book about George Miller and not write about Mad Max. And you can't write a book about Mad Max and not have it to be about George Miller. Did you bring this idea to George Miller? And if so, what was his response? Yeah, I, uh, I, I did uh, approach George Miller and I'd interviewed him a couple of times before, uh, two or three times before. And we basically sat, sat down and talked for a long uh, period of time. It was, I think, over an hour on this, on this last occasion. Uh, and that's sort of George Miller's style. When you, if you talk to him, you, you, you'll find that he's, he's very, gives you a lot of time. Um, and, and he really enjoys sort of, um, I don't want to say waffling conversations, but he enjoys sort of talking at length about different issues. Uh, however, uh, what he said to me, you know, in, in terms of my request to, to bring him in as part of the book, uh, he was very nice about it, but he was of the opinion or he believed that if he wanted to be part of it, uh, he would, knowing himself and his work ethic and his style, he would really want to put a lot of effort in. Otherwise, he wouldn't really see the point. So um, that was, you know, coupled with this belief that, well, if I don't really have the time to put in a lot of effort. So I do understand the logic. And and uh, he was very polite and said, look, uh, you know, I, I want to be able to do this with you, but I know myself and I know that I would just invest so much time and effort in this and I've got other uh, projects to make. And I thought, well, you know, I'm disappointed because I couldn't interview him for the book. Uh, but, you know, I, I do totally understand that logic 100%. So what ended up being your greatest resource when it came to to your research? The greatest resource were the, the men themselves. Uh, they, they really were the, the – the cast and crew of Mad Max were, were easily the best resource. I mean, obviously, when you're writing a book, you, you draw on all, all the other literature, all the other online articles, podcasts, videos, uh, but nothing compared to actually finding the actual guys. And they, and they were able to tell me things that have pretty much no record um, when it comes to – uh, stuff that's online or, you know, even newspaper articles. It was really amazing because, you know, all of a sudden uh, I'm deep into this research, for example, and someone's telling me a story about how before the making of Beyond Thunderdome, which was the third Mad Max movie, uh, there was a court case involving George Miller's production company and the local Sydney Australian Council about the legitimacy of having 400 pigs shipped in to the centre of Melbourne, uh, sorry, Sydney CBD. And this court case was about um, 
whether it was okay to keep these pigs down the street from a children's hospital and across the road from a biscuit factory. And the uh, part of the, the prosecution, the, the Sydney Council um, argument, was that the, the pigs, when they urinate, the stuff kind of flies into the air and could come and kind of contaminate the, the, the biscuits in the children's hospital. And I thought, what the hell? So I, I tried to find a newspaper report. Uh, I found like a mention of, of some circumstances around it. Um, and then I started digging and I found multiple people who I interviewed, uh, for the book who corroborated the story. So I was just kind of blown away. I was like, that the makers of Mad Max were involved in a court case with relation to 400 pigs and the potential projection of their urine. And nobody's written about this before. Uh, you know, I was a pig in plop in that situation. It was a great, it was a great fight. It was a great fun. The, 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 the pigs of Thunderdome. I know that the Mad Max movies held a really special place for me growing up. And I'm curious, what kind of place did they hold for you when you were growing up? Yeah. Uh, I can't actually remember exactly when I watched the first Mad Max movie, but I remember, uh, I reckon it probably would have been maybe when I was say 15 or so. So I, maybe that's relatively late in the scheme of things. I'm not sure. 15 or so, I'd say when I kind of looked back on or started thinking about how did I first think about, you know, Mad Max? What was my first response to it? All I can really remember, um, other than kind of fragments of visions of Hugh Key Burns and, uh, you know, Mel Gibson and some explosions and things like that, I remembered the motion, Mike. You know, I remembered the energy of it. It's kind of like that was the one thing that really stayed in my mind. It was the this sort of watching it felt like I'd, you know, you know, like – I'd open the drawer of an oven and the, and the, the, the waft of the hot air had slapped me in the face. You know what I mean? I, I, I really found that the motion and the energy, that visceral response was the thing that had lingered most in, in my memory. So, uh, that was kind of like a, a wild, it was almost like I, I was remembering the past via, uh, you know, a real kind of feeling, uh, like an emotion that was incredibly bizarre. And for me, at, at that kind of point, when I'm watching it as a teenager, uh, about to start writing film reviews. Uh, I started it in when I was, uh, I think, 17 or 16. Uh, I started writing my first film reviews then. So it was sort of like this crash course introduction to the, the elements of the Australian film industry that are kind of really exciting for me. You know, it's this dirty uh, history of really fucking weird, batshit crazy movies that I just fell in love with. Are they still popular? Are they still held in high regard? Or are they seen as being silly little movies from the 70s and 80s? No, they're, they're held in enormous high regard. Yeah, no, no, no. Australians do love their Mad Max. And as I pointed out in the introduction to my book, you know, those words are, are – those words are as well known, really, in terms of brand recognition as McDonald's or Star Wars or Star Trek, everybody. So they're kind of like, you know, almost like this – divine text that's that's underneath the australian film industry uh and in terms of this kind of more specific audience there's a real fan base attached to to mad max that are your quote-unquote super fans and they are a peculiar bunch i think it's fair to say and they're more to do with that bikey element. So they, they enjoy, um, you know, getting on bikes, recreating scenes. They love building vehicles. Uh, but the, the, you know, the films are very well known and, um, and very well appreciated. And I think for the average Australian, it's probably evidence that if the variables are right, 
then we can punch through and uh, and be heard and listened to as greatly as any American uh, or overseas filmmaker. The Mad Max series is such a strange series. You know, every movie is either slightly or incredibly different from one another. How do you kind of put those things into perspective as you're you're writing about these? So what I really wanted to do is I wanted to when I was writing the book have this narrative that that begins with George Miller being raised in this small Queensland town called Chinchilla. Uh, And I wanted to have the overall kind of arc of the story about how this boy from a modest background, raised in the middle of nowhere, um, immigrant to Australia, as as all of us are other than the traditional owners of the land, uh, how he went from this guy who was, you know, quote unquote, quite normal to uh, this very revered artist who's punching through, you know, the, the highest echelons of Hollywood. So that was the way that I really wanted to structure the book in terms of George Miller's story. And everything beneath that, which is a story about the Mad Max movies, just kind of followed the sequence of his life, really. Um, George Miller's directed a lot of films that aren't Mad Max related, uh, the Happy Feet movies, of course, uh, and many others. Uh, and my book very briefly touches on them. So it really was linked by the various different um, tales of Mad Max. And once I, I started stringing these stories together, the, the sequencing of it was was pretty basic in the sense that it's just a, a chronological, linear approach uh, to the stories. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that was my basic approach anyway. Why were the movies so different from one another? Well, after the success of, of the original Mad Max, you know, it's that classic story where filmmakers kind of, they have this huge opportunity to, to get this massive audience again that, that might not ever come back. So number one, as much as we don't necessarily like to talk about these things, as much as we like to talk about the great artistic successes, it was partly a business choice to make a sequel. Of course it was. Uh, just as much as, uh, you know, The Matrix Reloaded, Matrix Revolutions uh, were, were business choices. Uh, and, you know, it's a bit of a shame for me personally. When I look back on, on the Matrix series. I mean, the first movie is, I think, one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made, and I kind of don't care at all about the, the two sequels. So um, w- once Mad Max was released and, and became this phenomenal worldwide hit, uh, they they very quickly turned around the the sequel, The Road Warrior, and they made it in time for the, the biggest season for for uh, the Japanese um, film watching market. So they were under a lot of uh, pressure to make things you know reasonably quickly and to write it reasonably quickly. And it for me, I think it, it reminded me of that old um, Orson Welles quote: "The enemy of art is the absence of limitations." And uh, so the Road Warrior was kind of born in this furious whirlwind of impulses. They knew they had to make some sort of, they wanted to make some sort of story. And then, as, you, as you've said, it's sort of, it, it, it is a logical extension in that it's further into the future and then further still in Beyond Thunderdome, uh, which is cu- currently, yeah, it's Beyond Thunderdome is thought of as the sort of, I don't know, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull um, or, or even The Last Crusade, I guess, maybe. Or the Return of the Jedi of the of the franchise, you know, not not nearly as good as the first two, and kind of a bit clumsy uh, and maybe a bit overreaching as well. I also think that when you look at 
the differences between the Mad Max movies, you can kind of legitimize them in the stories of almost, you know, dreaming. Um, and there's the Joseph Campbell undertones throughout the Mad Max adventures. You know, it's the, it's the hero's journey that manifests in all sorts of weird ways. And I think when you look at the last one, Fury Road, uh, you know, how many sequels, Mike, uh, do you, can you think of made so many years after the original hold up so well? Uh, I think you have to be, half mad in a in a really brilliant way to come up with a sequel that's as good as Fury Road. Pet theory for a lot of years, and I don't think it holds any water after reading your book, was that the death of Byron Kennedy led to what was beyond Thunderdome, that it felt a little mishmash out of control, but I don't think that that really is that valid anymore. I think it's right to say that there there was a notable absence um where with well, it's obviously right to say there was a very noticeable absence without Byron Kennedy um, as part of you know the, the third film, but and it's really hard to to pin it on that entirely. I mean, maybe maybe it would have been a much better film uh, had Byron Kennedy been alive, or maybe it might have been roughly the same. It's you know it's really hard to tell. So, what was the toughest thing for you writing this book? Look, I, I found it a pretty pleasurable experience, to be honest. And when I look back on it, I don't really remember any challenges that were so hard or so insurmountable. Um, it, it was, you know, the pieces kind of um, fitted together uh, pretty well. Um, I guess, it, you know, it, it can be frustrating when you're trying to find people um, to interview and, and sometimes it, it takes a long time to find people. Sometimes also you're, you know, you reach people at different spots in their lives. Um, so sometimes, for example, a few of the people I approached were, were very ill uh, and un- were understandably unable to to talk to me for that reason. Other people came back to me, you know, three months after the book had been published, four months, five months, six months after it had been published, a year, and they were like, oh, just to let you know, I just got your email and sounds great. Let's do the interview. I'm like, oh, no, man. Uh, so trying to wrangle the talent, as I'm sure you would know um, from your, your podcasting duties, is not always the easiest. And for me, I, you know, I really want to watch the films. I really want to write about them. I really want to get kind of down and dirty with those colorful stories. Uh, that's where all the kind of the magic happens. Uh, the wrangling, the talent wrangling aspect is, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Do you, do you enjoy that part, Mike? And maybe, maybe, maybe you enjoy it more than I do. That's the toughest part. And yeah, I've had a lot of those like, oh, sure. Now I'll talk about this movie. Af- yeah. Af- well, after like, I just got a, a note from somebody who I asked for an interview about eight months ago. And it's like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I'm like, so is there going to be a volume two? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I think before you entertain the idea of volume two, he needs to make George Miller needs to make another Mad Max movie. And uh, there are two completely finished scripts. Uh, as you may or may not know, one of them's about uh, origin story of Furiosa, and the other one is about you know it's a it's a it's a straight sequel to Fury Road. I've actually seen you know a physical copy of that script right in front of me. Um, uh, no, I didn't sit down and read and read it. I I want to be surprised by the by the movie. I did have a quick look at a couple of different pages though. But um, yeah, if if George Miller actually does make uh, more Mad Max movies, and I think that's highly possible uh, and maybe even likely, um, maybe we'll have another chapter for the book. Uh, that would be pretty cool. But no, I'm not not so much looking at um, Miller and Max Volume Two. But I am very much looking forward, Mike, to another Mad Max movie. Should that happen? 
it's a shame that um, they had, you know, the, the production company, um, Kennedy Miller, Mitchell, uh, has had legal issues, as you may or may not know, with Warner Brothers and a dispute around the, the profits and various different money concerns. Uh, it's a real shame that that's happened. Um, and I hope that the studio will just kind of put it past them. It's, it's a pretty good look. I mean, to, to produce a film as distinguished as Fury Road, collecting all those Oscars, making it a, you know, a, a reasonable success artistically, um, especially and as well as commercially. I really hope they can put all those differences behind them and just focus on making another one. Well, I do have to tell you one thing more about Miller and Max, which is when I read it, I read it and then I listened to it and it was fantastic. The narrator of your book is great. And he is uh, an Australian gentleman, or at least he can do a perfect Australian accent. And you can only hear that book in an Australian accent. The, the guy who narrated uh, the book uh, for the for the audio version is Paul Johnston who played Kundalini in the uh, in the original Mad Max so he is a professional voiceover artist he's basically done that rather than pursued an acting career for the last sort of two or three decades and uh, yeah he's he's an awesome narrator of the book he, you know he's wonderful it's very weird though if you, if you know if you write something Mike and then you hear a professional voiceover artist. <laughs> say it it's like it's kind of weird because then you know i'm in the radio studio listening to him doing the recording and then uh you know uh, i'm hearing him speak like when george miller and byron kennedy knocked on the door and i was like wow that's that's he you know obviously he was doing an australian accent that's not quite right but it was it was kind of weird because you're writing something and then you're hearing somebody else speak it but uh no no uh, paul johnson's the, the guy's name he did it and, and he's uh he's a real find he was great I'm just glad that you were involved in this process because I talked to so many authors and they're like, Oh, there's an audio book of my, there's an audio version of my book available. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, mean, I was involved. I was involved in the process in the sense that, you know, uh, I came and, and had a look and, uh, suggested him actually for the role. Um, and, and, and was there when he recorded it. But, um, yeah, there's not a lot you can do really. I mean, you just, you just kind of pump out the words and then somebody else reads them. I mean, what, what can you do if you're the author? So where's the best place for people to keep up with you and your work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at slash Luke Buckmaster, or you can go to www.lukebuckmaster.com. Well, Luke, thank you so much for your time, sir. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks for your interest, mate. Much appreciated.
discussing the Mad Max series, and I'm not sure if we'll ever get a fifth entry in the series, but that's okay. I think that the way that they left things with the fourth film was absolutely terrific. I can't even begin to talk about how, but I'm going to because I'm on a podcast about it, how much I love Mad Max Fury Road. What a treat this was, and I was so afraid they were just going to shit the bed. I mean, after so many years of not having Mad Max, and after that horrific third entry that we just can't see anything good about, I was really afraid. And that they were recasting Mel Gibson, it just had Recipe for Disaster written all over it, but I fell in love with this movie within maybe the first five minutes of seeing it theatrically. Yeah, it, absolutely, and it it went through so many disasters as well because like they they were trying to make it for so many years because you imagine like like Mad Max is just Australian icon so this was it was always in the news they're making a new Mad Max they're making a new Mad Max they're just constant constant and they finally were gonna do it and they were gonna do it out in Cooperpedia again where they did the last two and then they had a once in a hundred year rain and the whole desert bloomed. <laughs> And it went from looking like this barren nowhere to this beautiful lost paradise. And so they couldn't even shoot it here. And so they were like, okay, we have to move to Africa. So it was just disaster and problems and everything. And then it was so worth it. (laughs) So (laughs) worth it. I've already told this story to Mike, but for whatever reason, this movie was showing up on the Delta in-flight entertainment for me for well past when it should have been on there. It was just on there for like two years after it came out. And every flight I took, I would watch Mad Max Fury Road. And it's one of those movies that even watching it on that tiny little fucking screen on an airplane, I am just so engrossed uh, in it. And, you know, the theatrical experience was fantastic, but I will watch this in any medium just because I am so in love with this movie. The pacing of it, the way that it is 90% chase, you know, we've talked so much about that 30 minute chase in the second film and that this movie is a chase. But again, talking about that chase from the road warrior, the way that we have the pauses, the way that we go, you know, we will 
just keep going at one point and then we'll slow down. We'll have these different breaks throughout it. We'll learn about characters as we're on this chase that takes up almost the entire length of the movie. Who thinks to do storytelling like that? It's like a wagon train kind of a thing. It is absolutely overwhelming to me to watch this movie and feel how completely assured George Miller is <laughs> with regard to his vision and his presentation of all of this. He's hitting so many different layers at once while also being so relentlessly entertaining. <laughs> like, There's never a moment where it's sort of like, oh, can we move on from this? It's for me, it's it's much more of a oh wait, is this really all we're going to get? Because I want I want I want to live in this for so much longer. This is the first time I could think of in in years that I saw that I saw a movie in the theater twice in the same day. Like, wow. I just had to have I had to have more of this, and 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 I'm right there with you in the sense of. You know, the Road Warrior for for the longest time was the the movie I would always say was my favorite movie, and I waited for this forever. And then we had all these crazy production delays. And then even after they started filming, it still was you know I wasn't hearing anything. And then when I started hearing things, it wasn't it wasn't that it was necessarily good. And you get there, there's so much fear, and to for this to be the payoff is just overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, I, I was at the the Melbourne premiere and. So like no, I I knew one person who was a, a cinema manager who had seen it, and they were like, "Nah, it's all right." <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, this is not a person I like or ever listen to. Um, and so we were, I was just like, "I don't care, man. I do not trust you at all. I know what your favorite film is. You can go to hell." And uh, was there this whole crowd of people? Nobody knew anything. And afterwards. We, the, all my group of friends were kind of like a bit quiet because we were all secretly afraid that the other person hadn't liked it and all we wanted to do was go yes! and so like it just took this half second and then we all at once went gobbling at each other and was, I just never forget that moment it was just like everybody in this little group was just like yes thank you thank you George Miller thank you everyone involved you're all artists of the highest caliber this is what cinema has always promised to be, has been at various points, and it was just such a glory to see such a, a just a, a physical roaring beast of an experience just nail you like that. <laughs> well, I don't like it because it's called Mad Max Fury Row, but really they should call it Furiosa because she's like in it so much more than Max. And then even that Nux guy, he's in it a lot, and, like, they get a lot more dialogue than Max does, and I think they kind of just, like, turn it into a whole, like, feminist treatise and really try to shove their politics down our throats. Yay! <laughs> thank, thank you for doing that. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> that is the one thing I was thinking of when you were, when Ben, you were talking about earlier in terms of George Miller's idea of of bringing humanity to Max versus Byron Kennedy's idea. It's like, no, he's you know he's just this sort of like machine, and this movie. Like there's so much more humanity to Max to me in this movie than in any of the other movies. He feels much more broken. He feels much more unsure of himself. And it's incredible to me that that for me personally works so well. 
I love how he is in this movie and he does feel different, but it also still feels true into everything that's come before that. And I think that Furiosa is the perfect counterpoint to that and what those two characters and what they're able to have those two characters bring out in each other. The idea of hope, but the idea of also understanding the danger of hope is just it's it's brilliant. The first time I saw it, I think the only scene that I kind of was a bit un, unsure about was the fact of the fight between Max and Furiosa when they first really meet. And I was like, oh, you know, it goes on a bit and this and that. But then coming back and watching it, I was like, ah, no, this is where they both kind of figure out that they're basically the same person and that they're never going to be able to get along, but they both are going to be able to move in the same direction together. And it's like just like the rest of the film, all of the story and the characterization is in movement and in action. It doesn't need words. It's all stripped back. And it's like you've got to pay attention to what is actually happening in all these movements and motions and collisions, both between people and the vehicle calls it's like that's where the story is and it just propels and tells you everything in the film it's those moments in the movie where they're just interacting like even when when he's trying to shoot and he he's missing and it's the look on his face the realization like i gotta let her do it because she's better at this than i am <laughs> like, yeah. and that's it that's that's that recognition that they know that they don't have to say anything they don't have to be like oh, i can do it it's like no they've already gotten that out of the way she can do it. <laughs> right, right. The first, that first, that wonderful chase sequence through when, with, the, with the motorcycles where he knows I got to load this gun and I got to give it to her. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that the, the watching the, oh, the, I'm sure, I'm sure both of you guys have. If anybody out there listening has the Fury Road at home and hasn't watched the bonus features, watch them. They're so worth it. They're amazing with the, the details that they show and the things they go into and, Everything, but yeah, that was where the, the Chellies was talking about the how the the drive of Furiosa being not for, for a heroic reason, um, and which you know as I said ties back very much to Max with his drive not being for heroic reasons in the first film or even in the second film possibly. But um, Hardy also talks about that he and Miller envisaged that essentially at the beginning of the film it's like a wolf Max. Like this is the lone little wolf that is just so lost from humanity that he's almost lost words entirely. Thinking back to that after watching it, I was like, oh, it's so much more Hardy's performance makes sense uh, in an, and it becomes even stronger because it is the shell cracking away. Like that, that his, his imperviousness is and, and his, his stubbornness and he's just like, just trying to charge away from these people, no matter what the situation that, that the, he could work better with them is because he is essentially the feral human being, way more feral than we've ever seen him. And so the film is, you know, I don't think that this is a film about redemption, despite what they say in some of the make, making of stuff, but there is, a way for him to come back and at least be more in this world in a positive way. And same for Furiosa in that she has that same kind of arc, that it's not necessarily about solving everything or fixing a problem, whatever, but it's being about being able to make actions that keep the future alive and give it more possibilities. They, they, they both like they establish very quickly, but not specifically how the two of them have, both reached a point where they're further broken than they thought they could be. Yeah. Like Max is, cause we've seen Max broken before, but this is different. Something else happened that was even worse 
then and they that got him to that point where he says in the movie when that hope is a mistake but then he gets past that to say like to give them hope at the end to give them this plan of this is this is what we're going to do and this is how we this is how we like you said this is how we move forward and i like that they add this mythic quality you know i talked about the mythos at the end of the road warrior and how it elevates it to that place and this picks that up by giving us these flashbacks that Max has of things that we've never seen before. And I don't necessarily need to see those adventures. I don't think that they're out there in comic book form. Maybe they are. But that whole thing of like the little girl with the super blue eyes. There's a little bit in the comics about that. Um, I But I read them a long time ago. I like them. But again, it's not very... The, the comics I felt like were more about explaining how he got his car back. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and then also about, about Furiosa and, and, and what, you know, what happened to her. But I like that they have this whole thing with like the Aboriginal man. It's the first time we've seen, I believe an Aboriginal in any of these Mad Max movies. So it's also kind of talking about the land and the world that they live in and this whole idea. And I think the Aboriginal man says, you let us die. And is that, him and the little girl, or is that the world? And we've got that great line from Furiosa about, you know, who let the world die, or I think it might have been from one of the wives. And it's just like, yeah, this is fantastic. And this whole thing, too, it was men that were in charge. It's pretty much men in those uh, opening, that opening montage, which again calls back to the second film. And here we go. Here's the world that we live in where men are in charge. Men are in charge of the gasoline. They're in charge of the bullet farm. They're in charge of the citadel. And what a fucked up place this whole thing is. Right. Yeah, it's it's through and through white colonialism coming in and taking over and just annihilating everything, controlling everything. You know, the, we, the Australian, the English committed genocide against the aboriginals here. And it's just like the film just layers in all these elements to just be – to, to feel oh, like it's just oh it, it, it oh, yeah. hits so it hits so many points that even like just it's it's even more uh on I, you know, I don't even want to say the zeitgeist because that sounds like a a pop culture term now even though you know the spirit of the times because even like valhalla the references to valhalla and how you know nazism has taken over a lot of viking mythology and you've got these literal like white enemies is white power and it's just like oh my god like <laughs> well and that the the gasoline guy is dressed as a businessman with that with the nipples cut out of the the suit which i love and then that the bullet guy he's got the bullets over his head that look make him look like he's a, a lawyer or a judge from like an english court the one in the business suit, um, that's an actor called John Howard. And I don't know if you guys ever got that, this series over there, but a series called Round the Twist, which is a kids series from the nineties. So like my entire generation grew up watching Round the Twist and a couple of generations before and after. And we all fi- experienced such a moment of physical revulsion when we saw this actor from that series as that people eater with those swollen feet and the nipples and the nose. It was just like, <laughs> just shock and trauma. But that, I love that that character is called the people eater and that he, the, that Miller said that he is meant to represent like the corporate industrial complex. And he's like devours and swallows and, oh yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's such a nightmarish vision of right now. 
Yeah, the whole idea of bullet town and that the whole industry survives on weapons and bullets is just like, hmm, I, I wonder if that's where the NRA lobby is going to lead us. Well, yeah, and then also, you know, people always say, yeah, there's basically five corporations or whatever that own everything. It's the same there. It's just now it's three cities that own everything and control everything. Oh, and we have to talk about a Morton Joe and just having the return of Hugh Keysburn as this character and all of the, you know, I talked about how we see Max in little pieces in the first movie. And then the same thing happens with Joe, where we get to see little bits of him. We get to see the back and the child blowing the, the stuff on these wounds that he has. We get to see when the cod piece is put on him, when the chest plate is put on him with all of his medals. And we never get to see the full thing. I like that they deny us actually seeing the face, but putting on that mask and the, those fucking horse teeth in the mask. Ah, my God, what an amazing look this is. In, in the making of himself, someone says, like, and they were worried that he was going to look silly. Like, nah, <laughs> nah, you don't have to worry about that. You just created one of the most iconic villains in cinema history right there. He is such a monster, like an absolute monster. And yet, a, like, it's, it's, there's, you know that there's a human under that. Despite the monstrosity, it's like this is a human being, and it's that layering together of this absolute grotesque, horrific, post-human, you know, caricature with this just a man, and it's oh, it is such a great creation. And yeah, Hugh Keysburn, when you consider yeah that he's he is acting that whole film through just his voice and his eyes and his arms because you can't see anything else really it is it is absolutely an incredible performance he's oh we need more we need more his, Hugh Keysburn. I mean, yeah his eyes though are that's the thing and, and it's interesting it's interesting because i feel the same way about about tom hardy from this performance and many other performances like both of them what they can do with just their eyes in, in many ways, sometimes it's all they need. It's just that the, 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 the level of emotion that they can convey is, is, is tremendous. Oh yeah. Cause Tom Hardy loves to have shit put over his face and it happens here happens with Bane. I mean, that's his thing, man. I mean, yeah, Dunkirk also. Like he's, he's just those. You, know, you just look at me. He, gets that, he raises those eyebrows, squints a little bit, and like, okay, I, that's all I need to know. Yeah, and I, Shelley Theron, like she, she shakes it up a bit. All her performances just through her jaw, like the way that she moves her jaw around and squints her eyes and locks her little teeth and lips, and oh, you just like, yeah, you just if, you, if she looked at you, you'd just step out of the way. Yep, whatever you're doing, keep on. Charlize Theron, not enough has been heaped upon her as far as praise in my book. I mean, yeah, she did such great work in Monster, and she's not afraid to look ugly. And this performance for me is, it surpasses Monster. She does so much in this, and it becomes, I mean, we knew that she was a great actress, but we didn't know that she could suddenly become a kick-ass action heroine. And here she is, folks. You know, like, let's, why, why don't we have like a whole Furiosa series going on here? Because she just does such amazing things in this. The, the physicality, the, the acting, the use of the jaw, like you were talking about, she just knocks it out of the park. And yeah, she becomes really the heart of this film. George Miller casts her and asks her to, I need you to, pretty much steal this entire franchise from the main character. 
I'm going to help you do it, but I need you to do it. And she does it effortlessly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, and, and it doesn't. And like, I understand what you're like, I know that there are those people there who said all the things that you said earlier, Mike, well, they're idiots. Like, like this was yeah. because this was, this was exactly the right decision in terms of where this, this story is going. Like it had to be this way for, for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just even, even like you, the opening where it's just like how far into the film before she even says a word. And the way that she just drives the truck even and turns it off road and just leans in and it's just like you're already with her. You have absolutely no idea why, but you're like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> like at that, because at that point you don't know, you don't know anything, you don't know about the wives that the, you don't know what anything is. All you know is that like, Max is getting a shitty tattoo and locked upside down in the, under the cave and suddenly there's this woman tearing off into the distance in a truck and you're like, yep. And we saw that repurposing of objects, especially in The Road Warrior. Like you were talking about Toady, the guy who gets his fingers cut off and he's got that kind of Davy Crockett type of hat and he's got the two um, uh, like uh, symbols from cars on either side of his hat, you know, and we've seen that stuff so much in the Road Warrior, where we're repurposing objects for other things, and that is all over Fury Road, and just the fetishization of objects in here, the whole idea of that temple with all of the steering wheels, with all of the skulls on the steering wheels, and the way that they will hold up the the steering wheel and chant about V eight V eight V eight, and it's just like, oh my god, this is amazing. Or the the just the little details, like when she slams the gas pedal down on the floor and has it the car gassing itself basically it looks like one of those foot measuring tools that you get or that you see at uh like the the shoe buying places the shoe store i guess you would call that and it's just like wow who would think to do that you know and there's just so many little things like that where it's just like oh okay and they're using this in this way and it, it's just terrific yeah all like all the um oh, what are they called the, the, the spear bombs that they have um they were like like uh, soft can, soft drink cans is what the the bombs are in, and it's just like that's what in the making of they go and they show you all the things that they repurposed, and it's just phenomenal the amount of stuff there that was just you wouldn't like really truly creative artists working and making all of these real objects, and and the cars themselves are just oh man I should have become a stunt driver and worked on this film in another life jeez. The the Giga Horse, which is a Morton Joe's car, which is two fifty nine Chevy Cadillacs on top of each other with giant uh tractor wheels on the back. And they all really go. Apparently the Giga Horse could get up to hundred and twenty five kilometers an hour, which uh I'm not hundred percent I can do a quick check to see what that is in miles, but it's 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 pretty freaking fast <laughs> when you look at this thing is like this monstrous huge thing and it can do okay so it's about 78 miles, miles. Yep. Yeah, 78 <laughs> miles. and it's just like oh my god that would be the most exhilarating and terrifying thing ever to be in that going that speed and it's just yeah that that it's 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 so operatic and in in it's operatic in its in its story and it's balletic in its visuals 
they got even got like the circuit de Soleil people to come in for the to figure out how to do the the bounce poles things where the guys are swinging backwards and forwards to like jump onto the trucks or pick them up and they're all doing that for real at full pelt and it's just you just watch it, you just it's so unbelievable and you, and yet it's just it's so simple as well like nothing about it is simple but it's it's you know it's not computers and digital this or digital that it's just like okay you get you figure out how the engine does this and you do the right thing with this and you set it up like that and you do this and boom it just worked it just worked (laughs) i want to talk about those guys on the poles because this whole movie like i was saying feels like a chase scene and they are smart enough to leave those guys with the poles until really the end of the chase so like even within this chase they manage to keep upping the ante so it's not just like okay we're after you and we're going to try to cut you off or do this or do that using those spear poles that you're talking about those are fantastic but then we're going to add here's these guys towards the end who are going to come in and actually pluck people out of the vehicles and take them away I mean, yeah, that is, that was so visually striking. And that one shot where Mad Max is on the pole and it comes up and he's just looking around and before it goes down, it's just like, oh my God, this is fantastic. Just as I think that's where the point where the, uh, where the people eaters big tanker explodes and it's like that huge explosion in the background. It's just like, oh my God. I like, there was a little bit of uh, composition work done to get some of those things. But individually, every one of those things was real. <laughs> that shot is the shot that explains Max's place in this, in so much of this story. Here he is. He's in the middle of it, but a lot of it's happening around him or to him. <laughs> like <he's, laughs> it's, it, he does, it's not that he doesn't get to do stuff in the movie. He definitely does, but he's not the driving force. And I think it's so fascinating that that part later when they're stuck in the mud and he's like, he goes and he's like, I'm going to go work this out. And we never see what he does, yeah. you know, because Miller is still not, I'm not letting him steal the movie back from Furiosa. You know, he can go do his thing and we all know he did something, but it's not important how he did it. Yeah. Actually, I think I know that uh, Miller's always said that if he, he, he tries to make films that work as silent fit movies. And even because if he, if it works without sound, without sound or music or anything, then it'll work anyway. And I think that there is often a very literal element of classic silent cinema in his films. And in, at times, Max does feel a bit like Charlie Chaplin in modern times, <laughs> trying to keep this whole thing moving forward and put it all together, but it's, things keep flying off. And that moment especially is like very Buster Keaton-like as he's flying up through the air. The, his performance with just him communicating with the brides in the back and him snapping his fingers at them to try to get them to give him the weapons or whatever he's doing. And it's just like, no words are needed in that point. You don't need any of that stuff. And Tom Hardy barely says anything in this movie, which I really appreciate. And I will admit that I tear up still when we are at the point in the battle, when uh, Furiosa is starting to die and he gives her his blood and he tells her that his name is max i mean that chokes me up every single time it's such a powerful moment that in many ways for me the franchise has led to we start this movie off with the understanding that he is more broken than he was at any other point and he's not even going to share his name anymore and then for him to be able for them to go through all of this at that all of this together and for him to share that at the end it's it 
it's such a relief, you know, it's such a relief for me personally that he could, that it's, it's showing that he could get back there. And you, you've also, but you've seen his journey to get there and it's so believable. Yeah. And I, I think that's also what I was saying earlier with the, the, some of the difficulties that I have with that, you know, universal archetype of the hero of a thousand faces and the Joseph Campbell stuff. It's like, yeah, that's great. And it works and it, it, it gives a lot of really powerful cinema, but it is a kind of narrowing and it does drip away a lot. And it's like Fury Road is him coming out of that. It's him ceasing to be the hero without a name. He's taking his name back. He's becoming individual. And, you know, and even the elements of the world take on greater personality and greater meaning. It's not just like, oh, well, everything's stuffed and we've got to try to go somewhere better. It's like, no, there is a real civilization here and it has problems that can be fixed if we face it head on. And I feel like that there's so much of this film is like it's it's almost recognizing that that hero of a thousand faces things is great for a story, but it doesn't give you any hope or meaning really. It's just a fable, and so much of this film is just pushing back against that. Which again, it's like yeah, there's the the negative stuff that you feel like thematically connects with what's going on in our world at the moment. But it's such a hopeful film, and I, there's that a fantastic line. It's like if you can't fix what's broken, you'll go insane. And it's just like, that's the world right now. We can't figure out how to fix what's broken and we're going insane and we're heading down this fury road as we do it. Coming back and watching the game was like, this is, this is beautiful. Like, this isn't, this is real cinema. <laughs> Compare how Max goes from Barter Town to the kids to the crack in the world back to Barter Town in the third film. And then in this, they go from the Citadel out to the where the green place is supposed to be, back to the Citadel. And it's such a different journey. You know, there's yeah. such a redemption going on between that and really this whole idea of we are going to take the world back yeah. rather than whatever the fuck that was and beyond Thunderdome. And this whole idea of passing the torch, going out to where the green place is supposed to be and meeting the Vuvalani or whatever they're called. And this whole idea of passing the torch between the old and the young, the, the keeper of the seeds passing the, the bag, the literal bag to the younger girl and the way that she has to leave her. I mean, that's another tear jerking moment. And just the way that now, like these older women are empowering the younger women in order to take their fate back. Just really great stuff. And the Valkyrie character that Megan Gale plays. I mean, she, to me, is just like, she's the warrior woman from the road warrior come back. And some of the other uh, older women are like the old woman from Mad Max with the shotgun. You know, it's just like we have been leading up to this place. And third film notwithstanding, there's such a nice direct line between some of these characters. And Megan Gale, I wish there would have been more of her. Apparently, she had to drop out of production because she uh, got pregnant during it. But her death again is just really speaks volumes because she gets hit by the people eater and he has almost this orgasmic look on his face when he murders this woman and it just speaks volumes to what a fucking bastard he is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's my only disappointment with the film is that all of the, the older women don't get more of a, a, a chance in the fight that they do all get, they all get bumped off because they're just, oh, I would want more of all of those characters. They're just so incredible. And you just, that's, that's, you know, you spend the least amount of time with them of any character in the film, I think, unfortunately. 
though they are right there in the fight, which is great. And I love that the one older woman is up on the, the top of the truck with Max. And it's just like, wow, you know, she's right up there with you, man. She's she's in the fray. And it totally ties back to like, you know, like the, we're seeing like a lot of resurgence in of, of witch culture in the world and this recognition that the witch hunts were ways of taking away knowledge and power from women. And these characters have that witchy element of that, you know, that the, their, their magic is, is in the herbs and the knowledge of the plants and how to keep life going. And it's just like, it's just, oh, you know, there's so much woven in there. But there's also like that the, it's interesting how much the, you know, more and more right now we're thinking about what about the next generation? And, you know, we've got the kids rising up and saying, Hey, this is our future. And this film is, you know, our babies will not be warlords. And it's such a powerful statement. And we are not things. And, you know, and even the, the fact that Max keeps failing to save children, like it still keeps coming back. He still keeps failing to save children. And I was like, I haven't, yeah, I think that that's a big part of why he is going back is because, you know, he might not be able to save the, a specific child, but he can create a space where there maybe can be babies who aren't warlords, who aren't run down by road machines. Well, and we see Nux go on his journey between being this religious zealot who thinks that Morton Joe is going to lead him to the gates of Valhalla and the way that he goes through so many things in order to try to impress Joe, in order to try to impress this father figure, and that he manages to come around, he really presents hope for us as well. Because when they end up back at the Citadel with all those war boys who couldn't go out on the fight, the younger war boys, there is hope that they can transform these boys into a real generation of men, somebody that can actually respect a woman. They can remake the world, hopefully. That's oh, Nicholas Holt has just, it's been such a pleasure watching him develop as an actor. And, and this is definitely one of his best performances. And along with it, because there's, there's so many other, like all the wives, there's so many actresses in there who are coming up now, like Riley Keogh. Is, is one of the key figures. We saw in American Honey is just an incredible actress and in, um, Hold the Dark. Um, and Riley Keogh and Nicholas Holt have that. They're the characters that kind of connect and there is, you know, seemingly a romantic connection there. And they have that moment and it's just like they're just looking into each other's eyes. And it's, it's when two people who have been taken down to nothing meet and recognize the failure of their master's ideology in each other's eyes. And that's all they need to start breaking down all of that pain and that damage and the scarring and, and start to think that there are other possibilities. Yeah. The old world is really, really needs to be gone. <laughs> and think this comes out a year before Trump and he is such a, and Morton Joe is such a, 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 a Trump type person. You know, even when he's there saying like, do not my friends become addicted to water. It will take hold of you and you will resent its absence. I keep thinking, like, every time they vote on healthcare, it's like, do not my friends become used to healthcare because I'm going to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't get healthiness. What do you need that for? It just goes away. Um, yeah, but even like, for the week. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The, um, and you got to remember, like, this is, they, it may have come out the year before, but they, they, they wrapped shooting this in like, what, 2013, I think it was. So much post production work. 
I had to copy this from Wikipedia because I, I, I work in post-production and I do Russia's transcoding. I collect, they put all the footage on me at the end of the day and I process it overnight. And so sometimes when I'm watching a film, I just start to get like a bit of work anxiety and headache just thinking about what this would have entailed. And I looked it up on Wikipedia and it was like uh, something like, yeah, they would have upwards of 20 cameras on any given setup. And on average, I work with two camera setup shows. So 20 cameras, I'm like, Oh my God, that's so many cards to ingest. Uh, they process between 10 and 20 hours of footage daily. I get cranky when I get four and a half hours. I, I, when I worked on Picnic at Hanging Rock, I was getting seven hours of footage a day for like three months and I nearly went insane. So 10 to 20 hours of footage across like what a year and a half. And then by the time it, it had wrapped, there was over 470 hours of footage to edit. But, yeah, because um, it was edited by George Miller's wife, Margaret Sixel, and I think there's that great – they did the Khan press conference, and he asked her to do it, and she was like, I've never, I've never edited an action film before. And he was like, that's exactly why you've got to do it, because so it won't look like anybody else's. And, yeah, she worked for t- 10 hours a day, six days a week, for a total of over 6,000 collective hours of editing. And she won the Oscar very deservedly. I mean, <laughs> in the making of for the first film, there were so many people who were like, what the hell are you talking about, George? Like, you're telling us to do this. You're telling us to shoot it like this. This doesn't make any sense. This won't work. And he'd be like, no, it'll be fine. It'll edit together. It'll be fine. And they saw it and they were like, oh, yeah, I get what you mean now. And then same thing happened with this one. They were all like, you're mad. This will not work. That will not. What do you want? And he's like, no, no, no. And it's like, but without Margaret Sixel, it, it this film just there's not a loose thread in this entire film it all stitches together so perfectly and just that propulsion is incredible so yeah hats off to her as well going back to what we talked about with the first and second film and definitely not the third one the soundtrack the junkie xl soundtrack I mean, we modernize it into what it is, and then we have we actually have the 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 music is diegetic for the most part in this film, which is fucking crazy. That we have the doof wagon. Oh my fucking god! Doof is it's pronounced doof. We have a, we have a thing here called a bush doof, where you like that's basically you have a concert out of the bush. The doof wagon is like yeah, a very particularly Aussie word. <laughs> oh man. So good and so powerful, and that, those strings that will, you know, they, well, they're probably not actual literal strings, but just the dern, 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 just man, that sets the stage so well for this stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's uh, in the vehicles where they say, like, yeah, you wanted to have, you know, the, the all these the, the great armies have like the bugle play or whatever. He was like, nobody's going to hear a bugle, so. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they were just like air conditioning vents that they converted into speaker holders. It's like, oh my god, yes! <laughs> just all those guys on the drums, just drumming away. Oh my god, so good. Wanted to ask you about this shortly, but I'll say this first: that I some bits of the film, watching it in color, do look a bit weird. And at the end, when. Uh, Nux flips the truck and then the doof wagon slams into it and all the shit's flying everywhere. Always looked a bit weird to me and I was like, oh, I don't know about that. And then I found out the reason why is actually because they shot that with a phantom camera. 
And now regular digital cameras, you, most of them cannot go above 100 frames per second. The Phantom can do, like the new Phantoms can do like, oh, I think like, I don't know, there might be ones beyond 500 now, but um, when I did the, worked on the Romper Stomper series, they shot the big explosions in that with a Phantom at 500 frames per second. And that would be like, you know, three minutes of footage is almost a terabyte. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they, they shot that, that they really, like, they flipped that Nux's truck, the guy, they, they did it, nailed it perfectly, flipped that for real, and then drove the door wagon and they attached, they set it all up specially so that everything would fly out so it wasn't as strongly attached. And so they slammed the door wagon into the other truck and filmed, just sat the phantom camera in front of it and filmed it at 300 frames per second. So that's why it looks kind of weird. The, the guitar is superimposed and the steering wheel flying in is superimposed. But otherwise, all of that stuff flying everywhere, as I said, they do good debris in this series. That's just because that's what 300 frames per second looks like. You just get so much detail that it looks weirdly alien to us and it's like yeah oh beautiful work guys <laughs> but yeah i have to ask have, have you both seen the black and chrome edition i have not i think i just saw the trailer for it because i remember specifically that shot of furiosa when she falls to her knees in the desert and that being in black and white yeah because i i a couple of weeks ago i thought, oh, I've got the Logan black and white one as well. And I chucked that on and started watching it and was like, nah, I can't do this. I really, really like Logan. But the black and white version just felt too much like a, a college student film. Where it's like, we're so meaningful and important. Oh, my God, the angst. It's like, nah, I'm out. I'm out. This film is already teetering too close to that in color. But last night I watched the black and chrome edition of Fury Road and I might never go back. Uh, it's, it's, whoa, it's something. I mean, there's, there's individual shots that definitely are more spectacular in color, but the overall impact of the film in black and white, I don't know what it was quite, but it just destroyed. It was an incredible experience. It's just, so beautiful and there's a little intro before it uh, where is it uh, yeah miller states uh stated that he first wanted to do mad max film black and white when he saw brian may composing with an orchestra to a cheap black and white dupe of uh the robo area miller said there's something about black and white the way it distills it makes it a little more abstract something about losing some of the information of color somehow makes it more iconic it definitely does that but i think it's also like the, something about the, a regression and a stripping back because this whole film is so sort of streamlined. The black and white adds to that the same way the dialogue is stripped out. Like a black and white just concentrates you even more into the action of it and the motion and the eyes and the mouths. And it just like I, I sit this like this. I've seen this film a couple of times now, and I chewed the heck out of my fingernails watching it last night. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, get on that. Get it on the Black and Crow edition. Watch it at least once on a nice big TV. It was. It's really. It's. It's. I, I'm not a. I'm not a. I don't think there's any. Just about any film should be in black and white. But this, I could see why Miller wanted to do it because it works. It, it really, really works. I will give it a shot, though. I was always afraid the shots of them going into the storm are just so beautiful and colorful that I was afraid that I would just lose too much by watching a black and white version. 
Yeah, and I think like those are the couple of scenes where it's like it's definitely better like the color version, but just everything else. And I even felt like that it it did some of the it, the details stood out more in the black and white version. It didn't quite get lost in the noise as much. But I think I was tempted to just chuck on a couple of scenes and show my housemate today to really be able to appreciate how the black and white works. You know, you need to start at the beginning and watch it through that just seeing those couple of grabs is like, Oh yeah, that, that looks like a neat little, you know, extra, but nothing much, but actually sitting here and watching it in a dark room on a big TV, it was just like, yeah, I, I, that's, I'll be watching it like that a couple more times. <laughs> and I love that Max at the end of this film just fades off into the crowd off to maybe his next adventure and that we don't know if we'll ever see him again. And like I said, if this is the last time we see Max, I would be okay with that because this was such a fitting end to that character. Yeah, like he's, when he says, I'll make my own way. <laughs> of course you will. I came home from the theater. My kids were asking about it, and they asked about the end. And I think I did say, <laughs> he lives now only in my memories. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's definitely that part of me that's like, just knowing that Miller already had the story makes me go, oh. Yeah, but if this is it, like it's hard to it's hard to be sad about that. It's few, you know, few series get to go out on such a just perfect note. Right, it's one of the few few series few series are able to redeem themselves after a movie like the third one in a way that elevates the entire franchise. Oh, I know. It's getting it made it easier to get through Thunderdome to be like Fury Road is next. <laughs> there is there's one other last thing I wanted to say that again with that the, the the elements that you might not expect to be brought into it. I really noticed this time how much. The, a lot of the chase, some of the chase scene elements are like uh, pirate ship movies. That that they're almost like hunting down whales. You know, they've got these big harpoons and they've got the big spears, and that you know they're swinging in, not like they're swinging in off the pirate ship to like raid the deck. And it's like it's almost like it's like you know a bit of master and commander kind of style action in there. Um, which I think is also part of the reason why it, it 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 really stands out from the Road Warrior of not just feeling like another go over. Whereas Road Warrior was was more land based, this is they've managed to transfer this water based uh, action to this to the, the film really beautifully, and I think that that adds a great deal to that that forward propulsion. I've never thought about it that way, but I do know what you're saying in the sense of like it feels. This doesn't feel like a retread of what they've done before. Like yeah. he did definitely approach it in a very different way. Yeah, it's like the desert is 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 the sea, and they just like the these these you know boats on wheels tearing through it. And then you have you know the, these nomads with the spiky cars, like the car in um, Cars of Day Paris, and they've got that hydraulic arm on the truck, and it's almost like a dinosaur. And it's like for a moment, these, these, they become like mon- like literal monster trucks trying to devour the war rig. And it's just, oh man, it's just that the level, that kind of creativity and it's just, you know, just pouring out of Miller's head. You're like, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> By the time we hit 2015, we had already experienced another trilogy of older films with a very disappointing third entry where we went back and did another entry into it and that was 
the Phantom Menace. So I think I was afraid of Fury Road doing another Phantom Menace on me. But you know what? I think if we hadn't had the Phantom Menace and we hadn't got to see how god-awful an entirely CGI world was, we might not have Fury Road with all of its reality. That's a fair point. <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't take the sting out of the Phantom Menace. <laughs> you know, I was just reading an article the other day that it's the 20th anniversary of the Phantom Menace, and maybe it was a good movie after all. <laughs> Is the twentieth anniversary? I remember being at the midnight screening of that, and you could just feel the silence in the corridors of the cinema afterwards. Shell shocked. Yep. <laughs> Every one of their costumes just quietly walking home at three a.m. in the morning. Everybody trying to convince themselves that it was no, no, it was a good movie. It was a good movie. Hey. After the Thunderdome, Phantom Menace is fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take one last break and play an interview with Toe Cutter and Immortan Joe himself, Mr. Hugh Keysburn. Well, I know that you were born in India, you came up in Britain, and then you moved to Australia, and I'm curious... When were you interested first in acting? Was it when you were in India, or was it when you got to England? I was only in India to when I was one, and that was in Kashmir, and I was born there because that was the sort of place which people went in the summer, and my mother had, um, just because I think the war was all over, and that's where my father was based, and really I only got interested in acting when I realized I couldn't be a vet because I didn't have the brains, and... Uh, or the right qualification, should we say. And I just thought, God, what can I do? Because <laughs> my father was saying, you know, on, uh, off you go. Yeah, on, and I was pretty young at that stage, and I'd been to boarding school and things. So all of that sort of upbringing is a bit weird in some sense, but it was also very good, and I had a actually very happy time. But I got in with the local Catrum players, who was uh, my small town where I was brought up, they had a little amateur company and I did a few things for them and they were very helpful when I sort of said, yes, I'd like to, I think I'd like to be an actor and everybody in my family, which is an army family, they just uh, stopped. Not, not awfully. Nobody's ever been awful to me about being an actor, but you know, it wasn't what was expected. And then sort of uh, an extraordinary thing where a, an actor up the road who everybody knew because he was on television from time to time, and I knew his daughter. She was a beautiful, well, she still is, I think. God, that's been a long time. <laughs> but anyway, she was one of those girls that all the boys chased. Anyway, we went to talk to his father, her father, and he had a, a, a like a, you know, a book where people... Um, put all the professional things, you know, and agents and everybody's in this book. And he flicked through this book and said, look, you're going to have to get involved with all of this, but you're probably going to have to go to drama school. You, you can't just come out from the suburbs and get into that. So, but my father recognized a name there of a, of a, of a woman called Adza Vincent who'd come out to Burma when they were fighting there in the war and she'd sort of been part of an entertaining the troops thing. So he just rang her when we got home 
and said, what, you know, here I am, can I bring my son up and meet you and blah, blah. So I was 16. I went up to meet her. She really said, I can't, she couldn't help. But her assistant, a guy called David, was very sweet. He just said, oh, we'll see, you know, don't worry about it, blah, blah. He was very cash. And that was, it was lovely. It was very, sort of very sweet. And then about, I don't know, two or three months later, he said, oh, I've got you an audition with this um, company that, takes tours around schools so they're particularly supportive of young people obviously and they were actually drama teachers in their own right it's lucky isn't it things that happen to one that one doesn't realize at those stages in one's life and you get to go and work for these people I, I passed the audition luckily and I went to work for them for about a year and a half and they did sort of very sort of confronting things like massage or relaxation, relaxation techniques and all these things, which to me seemed like, whoa, it was almost as wicked as sex. You know what I mean? You thought, fuck, these people are touching each other and all they're doing is sort of like normal relaxation exercises that a drama school does every morning. So all of that was good, was good for me at that age. And they were very sweet with me and I ended up touring all over England, which is, you know, a great advantage when you come from the south of England, and then you see what the rest of England's going through, and that just went on, really. Then after them, I went to a repertory companies and variously tough so sort of setups where you, you, you're, you know, doing a sort of weekly repertoire of of Agatha Christie. <laughs> plays I think and having to load the truck and take the sets on to seaside resorts very exciting actually as a kid for me you uh, were doing a lot of plays and you even got on television when you were pretty young yes sort of you know like um, spear carriers and one liners into the distance sort of stuff so I did a fair bit of that and I actually joined the Royal Shakespeare Company doing that which was, again, fortunate, and it was sort of there. And at the time, you know, you were trying to get to the pub rather than concentrate on the on the work at hand. But hopeless, but all good. So how did you make it to Australia? I was in the Royal Shakespeare Company, and we were touring the world with a, a very prestigious production of Midsummer Night's Dream by a very famous at the time, well, he still is a bit, but uh, a chap called Peter Brook. So we were on a world tour, and Australia was the last date. There it is. It's the last date on a three-year tour that we've been doing on and off, and we'd run on Broadway for months, and we'd done it and done everything. We, we thought we were the bee's knees. Anyway, we got to Australia, had three dates, and, you know, they <laughs> Australia wasn't necessarily a looked-forward-to destination because it had a sort of redneck reputation about being a bit, you know, a bit like South Africa. You think, ooh, we're not sure what's it going to be like, blah, blah. And, of course, the first thing they do is to set aside one of the Indian boys in the company and, uh, you know, coming in at Darwin, and we all sat down then and said, no, fuck off, what's happening here? You know what I mean? And then they immediately, very quickly glossed over that because we had great advantage touring because we were part of a sort of British Council thing being with the Royal Shakespeare Company blah blah you know representative of in inverted commas English arts 
So yeah, we got a bit big-headed. Anyway, here in Sydney, I met this woman, uh, Christina Ferguson. My marriage had recently broken up and all of those sorts of things. So I took up with this person. I mean, both of us thinking, I think it was just going to be a, a week, and, you know, that was the end of it because we were off shortly. But here I still am. Here I still am, and I'm still with that woman who took me off the straight and narrow of decent theatre and brought me down here into the tropics. So you did it for love. That's amazing. I did do it for love, and I also did it for just seemed like the thing at the time because it was it's an extraordinary country this if you come from little england it's a bit like my first experience in america in the 68 touring there with other royal shakespeare stuff and that taught me a lot when i sort of los angeles san francisco in those times was whew, i'd never seen the like of it i did an episode on um Wake and Fright, and I remember talking to some of the people behind that, and they were saying, at that point, the Australian film industry really was kind of in its nascent stage. And what was your experience once you got to Australia, and I imagine you still wanted to continue to act? To come in as a Royal Shakespeare Company actor to a situation where there isn't a great history to acting, but there is. I mean, it's a, it's always been one of those places that's pretty much followed the English thing and then moved to the American thing a bit later. You know how American theatre is different from English theatre and film and all of those things are different. But Australia got, because sort of like rich people, you know, make their money doing something sort of frontier style, they then go and buy a cinema or go and, you know what I mean. So that's always happened here in Oz, which is very exciting. But it was... I was very lucky. I came in at a level where people wanted to talk to me. Even though I was a jumped-up walk-on, people were still interested because that was a very prestigious play and it worked and I'd been with that company a long time and done the bones a bit. So I'd been at it for 10 years then. So it was relatively easy for me. It was much easier for me here than it was when I started in England. You know what I mean? So then one's just doing that thing like networking and building business. And I was blown out by the joy of the film industry, which was just really re-emerging, having been kept down really by British Empire films and other vested interests who said, don't worry about local production. We will supply you with all you need. I've actually seen letters with that written on it. Because a friend of mine, Brian Trenchard-Smith, who was um, a, a film director, he still is, but he made, we made a film, he made the film, uh, Man from Hong Kong, which I was in, and that was a sort of Ozploitation, you know, one of the first of them. And that was put together with him having done journalist work, I think, with British Empire Films. And the chap who was an Australian who was working for them at the time had shown this letter to Brian, John Fraser, I think his name was. So they sort of colluded together, not criminally or anything, but they colluded to make an Australian film, you know, regardless. And they had to get into bed with some Hong Kong people who were trying to launch the next Bruce Lee because Bruce Lee had just gone down, I think. Yeah, I think that was right. So we're talking sort of mid-70s here. So that was really it. And then the theatre, I was offered good parts in the theatre here. And I 
I broke box office records with what now? Oh, Mice and Men, a play. And it was a lovely play. And there was a lovely Aussie actor who is a, a dear friend, Martin Vaughan. He, we were good. It was, it, it worked well. And so then I got to play Stanley Kowalski, which was just like ridiculous trying to get it all together. So American plays. So that all served me well. Who were you in, in Of Mice and Men? I was Lenny. The one who tended the rabbits. The one who tended the rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, I just recently rewatched The Man from Hong Kong, and uh-huh. I uh-huh. the chemistry that <laughs> you and Roger Ward have is fantastic. Isn't it? He's a lovely man. I just saw him at a Mad Max reunion, and I haven't seen him for too long, and... It was great fun just to sit with him for a bit. Was Stone your first feature film in Australia? Yes, and it really was my first feature film as anything other than a walk-on, really. So that was an extraordinary thing. And there, there's an interesting man, because he's a bit of a he's a tough guy, a guy called Sandy Harbert. He directed that and also produced it with another fellow who's gone now, David Hannay. And they were adventurous sort of outlaws. And I was, English film is very straight. You know, you've got people who've been in for a long time. Oz film, when I got here, was like, whoa, it was on. You know, everybody was going for it. And Harbert made that stone film at a time when nothing like that was happening. And I didn't know that, of course, because it's just, you don't really have any idea of a sort of, an environment when you become a migrant as such, you're just there. I mean, I knew it was pretty close because they were speaking the same language, but uh, you don't realize where things are. But there were, there was him, Harbert, and he was talking to um, Trenchard Smith, of course, because Trenchard Smith's film came absolutely on the back of stone, pretty much. And um, I wouldn't have got that film if it hadn't been for the fact that that um, Harbour did cast me in stone right up early. I mean, so that was an adventure because there I was learning about film and there were the people that were working on the film had mostly done adverts. And I think that's still the case where a lot of people really hone their skills and get to play with certain equipment, which they wouldn't get to play with otherwise. Um, you know, bits of camera equipment and stuff. So it was a very burgeoning thing. And the, and the Labour Party had just got in in Australia and they hadn't been in power for, I don't know, say a thousand years or something. And it became an absolute, um, there was a very clever politician, um, Gough Whitlam, and he was able to carry through like, you know, free medicine, uh, medi- medical stuff and all sorts of stuff he put in place. When you look back on it, it's quite a remarkable time, but a huge flourishing of the arts as such. So people started investing in film and that was all something that was interesting and off we went. Then we went into a sort of where they gave away tax credits for investing in film and I think they still do something like that. And it always, it feels to me like it always goes, um, the heavy hitters get more of that pie somehow than the little locals. And one forgets that things like Stone, Man from Hong Kong, Mad Max 1 were really low-budget 
sort of independence. They weren't, you know. So, so it, it's an interesting thing. So I, I sometimes mourn mourn the passing of that, but on the other hand, having done that Fury Road, which I found quite remarkable and really didn't expect it, thought this is going to be pushing shit uphill to try and, you know, bring all that together. And I was absolutely gobsmacked when I saw the first cut of that. I just... George Miller, fucking hell, I don't know how he does it. How does his head work, fuck? It's just amazing, the the tenacity, too, which is another thing I realized about film. You have to be incredibly tenacious to make them and to see them through. Before Stone, had you done much motorcycling? No. No, and I, and I, and I still didn't on Stone. There were some lovely fellows who did doubling and stuff for the horrible bits. But um, I've done a bit, but nothing. No, I don't like motorcycles. <laughs> and then there you are as toe cutter. Okay. Then there I am as toe cutter. Yes, absolutely. And that wasn't by chance. I think George saw me in Stone and all of that because there were a few other boys from Stone that went into Max. Um, Did you have to do much biking in that one? Sort of, yes, but the, but there again, everybody knew that we weren't bikies, or I wasn't anyway, and generally speaking, we showed off probably too much if you look at it really, but you know, there we were, we were young, younger, and you fucking feel bulletproof, don't you, when you're young, and it's, uh, he says now from great age, <laughs> but it's that sort of, but Vince Gill, who plays the Knight Rider in the opening thing of the stone, he can't drive. He doesn't drive, so there he is pretending to, I think, with Grant Page lying on the floor doing the pedal. How did you first meet George Miller, or did you first meet Byron Kennedy? I mean, what was that whole thing like? Interesting, because, of course, they're bright. They're very bright people, so I was intrigued. I was living in a house with a lot of people at the time, and a beautiful house on the edge of a lovely park in the middle of the city here. And... He just came round, George Miller, which I thought was a good thing. Um, I'm always interested when people want to meet you and aren't saying, oh, I want you to do this audition or that audition or anything. But, I mean, there he was starting out, and I'd got a bit of a track record because Stone had done very well by then. And he came round, and we chatted and talked. And to some degree, I thought I had the same political stuff as him but that wasn't quite right and you know all these things ones I don't know about all that stuff I tend to assume that people have got what I'm saying and of course they don't necessarily anyway that's actually beside the point just thought about it then but he came around was very sweet talked to me about some other people used the house to do a few meetings with other people but generally speaking we were absolutely on on the same page, and then he went up, and I honestly didn't think it was going to happen. You know, it seemed unlikely that they would make it. And then when they when it came, because he didn't come back, he came back, I don't know, a few months later, and I'm not sure how long, but it seemed a long time, and said, yes, we are going to do it, are you still on? And I was thinking, oh, yeah, sure. And, of course, said, yes, we'll do it. And then things sort of just 
didn't sort of go vastly quick to it. It sort of limped on a bit. And then it was clearly when we were on it and doing it, it was also had that sort of woo feel to it because it was incredibly low budget. There was, you know, maybe three of us in a room and God knows what else was going on and going to work on the bikes. And, you know, it was, it was a bit on the edge and it, when I was thinking, oh God, this is this going to be all right? And then anyway, sort of like finished it. And I I was on it for no time at all. I mean, maybe two weeks, and you know, it was all shot and cut and whatever. But anyway, then I thought, oh well, that's that, and didn't expect really to hear from them again. Thinking it was just going to go down the pan, really, and just got on with what else I was doing. And then out of the blue, it popped, and the next minute, there we are at the State Theatre, which is a huge and beautiful theatre here in Sydney. And on it, on it was there. And by God, that was one of those things I sat and thought, fuck, that, that, you know, I just didn't expect it. I didn't appreciate I mean, I did appreciate it when I saw it. I thought, wow, that is different. Well done all. You know what I mean? It was, it was great. And I felt that with Fury Road, too which was interesting. But, I mean, I didn't think Fury Road wasn't going to make it, but it was just how. Even though you were only, quote-unquote, only on that movie for two weeks, I mean, you went all out. I mean, can you tell me how you came up with the look, the toe-cutter look? I mean, the the white part of the hair, the shaved eyebrow. I mean, there's so many things. The shaved eyebrow was me, and that was because I'd been sitting with some proper bikies from stone and that was something they did to each other if they got so pissed that they couldn't stand up and were just lying on the ground and then what would happen is that (laughs) some of their companions would shave a fucking eyebrow off so it's a mark amongst those people anyway of somebody who has seriously sort of let themselves go (laughs) or so that's where that came from, for me, the eyebrow. And then the flash in the hair was um, must have been either John Dowding's idea or Meryn Kingsford Smith's idea. She did the costume, so I just climbed into the costume. I'd put a sort of gridiron padding, shoulder padding on underneath, and I had a... Because I, I thought, well, I don't think I'll be taking my clothes off for a couple of weeks because we just going to ride down. We rode down, camped, camped, just lay by the bikes on the side of the road and then got down there and generally sort of monstered about. But we're absolute horrible show-offs and not very pleasant. So we're giving people shit all the time and that just sort of, that led to the, to the madness. It emboldened my psychosis which I I was developing for that person. Yeah, I heard something about like leaving threatening messages possibly written in blood, possibly not. I mean, is there any Yes, all of that? that's all true. All true. Now, have you seen a documentary called The Madness of Max? I just did, yes. You did. Right. So I think that's the final word. Now, the chap who made that, Tim Ridge, and I are in business together, and we're in the business of autographs and whatever it is that one does on a uh, setting up a web page. Now, mm. I've never done this. I don't do it. Facebook. 
It's not a web page, it's a Facebook. So, um, we're, uh, what is that? <laughs> Dipping the toe into a, a whole new world for me because I don't actually have a mobile phone. Thank God Christina does. But, um, so I don't go there, but I am going there at the moment and I'm going around to these Conicom, not Conicom, but there's one here that I've forgotten the name of, uh, Supernova. You know, they do where you go signing and stuff. <laughs> Which is amazing. Well, I mean, you know, there's a chance. When were you approached to come back and work with George Miller? Because I know you had worked with him a little bit between Mad Max and uh, Fury Road. I know, like, with Chain Reaction, he was one of the associate producers, those kind of things. So you probably kept in touch with him over the years. Yes, but not as much as one might think. So what was the... uh, It was the... American superhero film that that looked like it was going to get up. Justice League. That's exactly right. Justice League. So that was that was for, I don't know a few months of chatting, mucking about, and then it didn't come off. So that was all right. So then George just phoned. I mean, I'd heard that they're making another Mad Max. I think I'd heard that, and I thought, ooh, fucking hell, and blah blah blah. But like with two, I went, hey. How come I wasn't on it? I mean, three. Hey, how come I wasn't on it? You know, like, we're actors. We have, we want free lunch and we want a job. No, he just phoned and said, you know, what do you reckon? But I mean, fucking, then it just went on and on. I mean, there again. If he hadn't been George Miller and all of that, you'd have thought, hey, this is not happening. Because he said, yeah, it's on. And then, I don't know, it felt like eons passed before it actually was on. And then it was on, and then Morion's passed, which was good because I had to. I got paid again. But you know what I mean. You're sitting there shitting yourself that you're going up the up the pipe again. But anyway, it was good, and wow, I have never enjoyed myself so much in all my life. That's not quite true, but it was close. It was just fantastic because there I was, an old man. Everybody thought I was dead, and the fact that I wasn't dead. Very good. People were going, fucking hell, all right, here we are. And I was a legend. I was a legend before I started. So, you know, just keeping the ego up on that level, was that was great for Morton Joe. He loved it. How do you get introduced to that character? Does he tell you about it? Do you see the storyboards, read the script? I mean, what what's that process like for you to get introduced to a Morton Joe and then become a Morton Joe? Well, I read the script, obviously. And then I come up with a an idea in my head, and woe betide anybody who gets in the way of that, really. It's horrible. It's just, you know, <laughs> no consultation at all. So I don't hear anybody else. It's just, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do, because I quite pride myself on saying, well, I'll see what happens on the morning. But I do spend hours and hours and hours just thinking. And sometimes that's quite difficult to come out of. It's a bit like sort of, post-traumatic stress but it's you know if you're just thinking bad and awful things all the time as one is as Martin Joe or whatever it is you just have to let that run because you never know when that's going to be useful at any moment in what's to come ahead you know what I mean I, f- I found personally with film if I plan too much I fuck up because it um, I have expectations of what should be happening and unless you're I mean, there's no point in having any expectations. So then that 
precludes rehearsal to some degree. Learning the lines in that situation is the most important for me. I just do them so I can, because of the moment and wanting to do other things at the time and all sorts of stuff, one, um, one, that's, that's what makes it adrenaline, I think. But I'm never sure. When you're approaching a character, how do you, do you, do you like write a backstory for the person or do you just kind of take them at a moment in time and then go from there? I do a bit of both and I go, um, sometimes I might go reading, sometimes I might just go dreaming and dream all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, waking dreams sort of, but thinking, 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 just going through endless scenarios and that sort of stuff, and then pulling in things which, because the script's there, that's a very strong and essential set of bones. And it's then, partially I see it as one's duty to to um, put the meat on the bone, really, and coming up with various bits of meat Sort of particularly in the, I think I'm, I think I've specialized in baddies throughout my life as an actor. So from 1964 to now, I've had a lot of bad thoughts. <laughs> but I like the way that you approach these characters. The, I've, I've heard you talk about a Morton Joe that he's just trying to bring order to disorder. And he does. And that's all he's trying to do. And these hopeless people don't realize. And look what they've done. They've broken the whole thing. Were you ever afraid with the, the the mask over you that you would ever get lost in there? I know some actors don't like to work with a lot of things on their face because they're afraid that you might not be able to tell even who it is. By the time I came to put the mask on, I was Immortan Joe. And when the mask went on, I wrote on the wall of the room which we were working in, Immortan Joe is a chick magnet and there is no one above the immortal so at that point i just knew everything was all right that it didn't didn't cross my mind that it might hide me or not or whatever all i could think was that it would add to me and i i, I feel it did and that was that you know what i mean they were just so skilled in producing that thing and the whole costume and everything and I've forgotten the, the woman's name, who was Jenny Davin's assistant. She came and stayed after. Remarkable. North Country English girl. Sarah was her name, and I can't remember her second name. But she was Sarah Young. She was just like a, you know, one of those people who's just there. And they say something, and it goes click. So it sort of like worked. And, and that was to do with decorating that um, car pace that I had that see-through thing. And we were working that and looking at it because to sit down in it was quite uncomfortable and she had to design one that uh, that turned, um, you know, the bottom of it opened up when you were sitting down and all sorts of things. And she just had an eye for it. She just had an eye for it. Remember hearing you say that you didn't actually drive the car, and I think that would probably be a really dumb thing to expect your actors to act and to drive at the same time. But what was it like to be able to sit behind the wheel of such an awesome machine? It was awesome. <laughs> I had to sit there and rev the engine, and that was two V8 engines locked together. So it's 
Uh, lovely. Very lovely. A great enjoyment. A great enjoyment. And all of that stuff was mind-bogglingly crafts work. You know what I mean? The whole thing, all that machinery, all that world that fucking Colin Gibson and those boys that all put all that together. Quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. So you're there at the beginning of George Miller's career, and then almost 40 years later, you're with him again, and you've changed, he's changed, but did his style as as far as directing, how did that change over the years? It didn't really for both of us. We've always had a sort of, I think there's a, there's a mutual respect, something I can't uh, mention other than that. I've actually sort of fallen back in love with him during the Fury Road process. I was prickly with him because he did a version, well, he didn't do it, but uh, whoever he sold Mad Max 1 to went, um, put American voices on it. Now, I'm not saying American voices couldn't do it, but hey, they couldn't do what I did. And that was, I, I got really pissed off with that. I thought that was rude. So I sort of blamed him a bit about that, but it really wasn't his, it was nothing to do with him. I think the big hand came down and said, this is what we're doing with this little whatever it is. And they did it. And I still cringe. I had a meeting with the Writer Guild of America lawyer who was a friend of a friend and he was the sweetest of men you could imagine and he invited my partner Christina and I round to his flat in New York which I think was in that Dakota building but anyway it was a fucking flash do to sit down and watch Mad Max 1 with him and um, you know have a little meeting around that and it was the American version unbelievable I, I, I didn't know what to say <laughs> I didn't know what to do. So you've got the the mask on during the shooting. So are you doing mm -hmm. all of your lines, uh, the, doing ADR for a Morton show after the shooting is done? Yes, yes. But I did all the lines. I did all the lines on the day into the mask. Genius, his name's gone straight out of my head. But this the sound guy, he would just be constantly searching for the sound. So he just. Um, Every time, so on goes the mask, and then he's doing all the radio mic stuff, and then we're off. So all of that was all of that was mic'd. It was all good, and we chopped in when they built the sound, or when they built my soundtrack, they chopped between all sorts of stuff because I came up with a little sort of humming song, sitting waiting at some point. And we used the original of that, even though I redid it in ADR. That's an American, we call it dubbing, do we? No, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, the ADR, yeah, I know what you mean. Additional dialogue replacement, is it? Looping, yes, looping, that's another word, isn't it? Right, you Americans, you control everything. <laughs> well, I agree with you that the American version of Mad Max is rubbish. That is... Yes, thank you. And that was the only version I saw for the longest time, so I was just like, oh, I know, this is not that, good. That, yeah, that's what... That hurts. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure it happens all the time, and all sorts of things. I mean, you don't complain, that's racism, is it? You don't complain about a German doing it, or a French person doing it, or... But sometimes they do. Uh, I, I think the best is subtitles, isn't it, really? Because then you get to hear the original 
So, you know, if you're subtitling the words, you don't like subtitling in America, do you? I, I watch I everything with subtitles on. Yes, but but generally speaking, I gather that's an issue there. People say, I don't want to read and try to watch stuff at the same time. <laughs> that's right. No, no, I know the feeling myself, actually. But, but yeah, but I think uh, ultimately it's a better way to do it. Well, yeah, for me it helped because there's a couple of slang words that are in Mad Max where I'm just like, uh, what is a, a hooner? You know, I'm just like, what is that? Yes. So <laughs> I had to go to Australian almost- friends and ask, ask them. I'm like, okay, you got to tell me what this word means, what this word means. So it sounds like you are very busy still going out and doing these conventions. You've got your Facebook page No, no, I'm not actually going. very busy. But this is – no, I, I spend a lot of time feeding birds and fiddling about with my garden. And I love to do that and also hosting loads of various local people who come swimming on the pool and all of that sort of stuff. So I'm not so busy now and I'm sort of enjoying that. I'm on the Australian pension, which means that's the first that's the first steady money I've ever had in my life. And it's really quite a quite an interesting perspective when money's not actually just constantly going out of the stash. You know, not that the pension's easy, it's not. It's not much. It's not really enough to live on. I'd be lucky I'd be lucky to make, you know, with little bits and bobs on the side, forty thousand dollars a year. So the environment here is pretty good. I think our basic wage is better than yours. I think lots of things we get, like government paid for stuff, is pretty good here. It's a bit more like the English or the European compared to the American. Everything's pretty good. It's sort of an extraordinary time. Like I said, here I am sort of considering that whole thing of the of the Facebook page and what that means and opening up and all of that. and But still, I'm not sort of like busy, 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 which is really good for me. I don't do busy very well. Do you have any acting gigs coming up? I don't at the moment. I'm, of course, hoping for a sequel to Mad Max. Yeah, Wasteland or, you know. What is it? Wasteland or Furiosa? I think there's two... Uh, I've read the script on Furiosa, so it's all sitting there, and you think, "Oh!" But I think it's—I think it's past. But I don't, how, how does one know? Got no idea, absolutely no idea. I don't know who has, but somebody will have somewhere, and then the phone call will come, or it won't, or something will happen, and off we all. Hugh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you.
All right, we are back and we were discussing the Mad Max series. So I just wanted to ask you guys before I break one more time for a preview, any final thoughts on the series? Like uh, I mentioned at the beginning that my parents wouldn't let me watch the first one. And uh, it's interesting that you know I did see it in the reverse order of Thunderdome, Robo-Warrior, Mad Max, because it does do this really gradual slide into being child-friendly. And like when the first one came out, it was like it, it got an R18 rating here. It was very controversial. People were writing it up as being, you know, the, the most violent film ever produced in Australia, which it may well have been. Um, but you know, the violence in it, watching it again, it, it reminds me of a lot of the way that Hooper uses violence in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like it's a lot more implied and for that reason has a lot more impact. But it's like this, this, this slide into childishness. It just, it really did it do it any favors in the end. So it's so great that they managed to pull it out of that in the end while still managing to keep that kind of rambunctious joy that the second film had. And I think that's part of the reason why it has like lasted so long and why it is such a favorite because like even at its darkest and its nastiest, it's still like a weirdly rambunctious series and it's, it's, you know, you feel like even the, the, the bad guys of Fury Road, like you feel the joyous energy that their culture has poured into these creations and, you know, you feel the exhilaration of the cars and you feel the hope for like overcoming the bad guys and, and it's just, it really just, there's so much that these films offer up and uh, it's, you know, and it's super proud to, to, to be an Australian and, uh, you know, call these home. They were always the, the truest example of how you couldn't, <laughs> in, in the house I grew up in, movies were for the most part, some were like, were dismissed. Like my, my, my father would always say that movie, he didn't, he didn't feel that movies could be art. And for me, these were the movies that more than anything, prove that that just wasn't true that you could easily have somebody look at these movies and just say oh it's just a standard action movie and like yeah but when you watch it you will realize hopefully (laughs) that it is that it is giving you so much more than all of that like this is giving you character and theme and just it was more than anything else that i had than i had experienced leading up to that point from a movie that i felt like fell so easily into this one genre it was, and that's why I, it resonated so much for me. Like I used to say, this was before Fury Road and this was when I was far more forgiving or rather in denial probably about Thunderdome. <laughs> but I would say like, yes, all my friends, for them, it was the Star Wars trilogy. But for me, it was that trilogy that, that really defined my childhood. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's having someone like Dr. George Miller at the helm where you've got that person of multiple worlds, he can bring multiple elements to it, you know, coming from a doctor's background of someone who is has a better understanding of the damage that can be caused against bodies, which allows the film to feel like it has that impact, but also has that hope of being able to heal and overcome the trauma of the damage. It's like when you bring those two elements together into the action film, it's like, oh, this is what's been missing in all those other action films. It's like there, you know, like there's so many amazing action films out there, but there's just there's not many that manage to bring those kind of, you know, that, that those different elements together and and just really make movie magic. Like these films, they're just 
they're just magic. Like there's, you know, you, like I said, you go back and watch, like there's so many things in it that are just in the first film that were just, you know, accidents, little accidents where they thought they'd almost killed their own crew, but they just come out and they like, they walked away fine with a couple of scratches. And what you get on screen is like things you never, ever forget. And it's just like, yeah, that's magic. That is like, that's the stuff we haven't seen since, you know, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd doing themselves god awful damage and mischief on sets. And it's just like, this is, this is where we started. This is how our cinema dream started. And we, you know, the Bad Max films, third one, not included, but you know, something like Fury Road is like, oh yeah. We can still do that. It's like we can do it without hugely damaging the people involved. We can create these incredible works of art that just make us like just bring out awe. And it's just, oh, it's so refreshing. So good. <laughs> I think that it was really crucial that Miller step away from the franchise for a good long while in order to come at it from a fresh perspective and that he managed to learn so much in between i mean doing things like lorenzo's oil and witches of eastwick i know that he had a horrible time in witches of eastwick being able to have two fairly successful other franchises between babe and happy feet and it's just like who can go from happy feet 2 to fury road this guy can you know he had that you were talking about the doctor background but he also now has this you know doing things in a completely digital realm with these movies with uh, the happy feet movies and a lot with the babe movies and i have uh, a friend who swears to me that babe 2 pig in the city is one of the best films that was ever made i still have yet to see it and i think that he shames me every single time that i see him Luke Buckmaster didn't bring up Babe too big in the city when you interviewed him? He brought it up in the book, but not when we were talking. That honestly surprised me. Luke's a friend of mine, and um, I personally know that he has a serious problem that he needs to see help, uh, I think he gets help about over his Babe 2 Pig in the City memorabilia addiction. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's sad when it happens, but... There's, 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 there's people out there who do suffer from Babe 2, Big in the City addiction, and it cripples their lives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only half joking here. I I remember Luke setting pictures one night of him on eBay buying some giant Babe 2, Big in the City standee, and it's just like, Luke, you have a problem. <laughs> Babe 2, for me, I haven't is, seen the it one, I is, seen is, it. is the one thing that – he recreate uh, this will spoil part of it, but there is a recreation of Thunderdome in Babe Two, which is which I thought was wonderful. I really need to see it because everything I've heard seems to be like this sounds amazing. And I think there are parallels too, in terms of the Mad Max movies, especially considering the first Babe, the focus is on Farmer Hoggett, the 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 male. But the second movie is his wife's adventure, <laughs> which I think can easily parallel like, okay, you were Max in the first one, and now you're Max in the second one. You need to take a backseat because your wife is Furiosa. The wife uh, is played by Magda Zabanski, who's like an Australian legend. She's incredible. She used to do – she got started doing you know, um, skit co- sketch comedy, and, and she's well worth looking into as, as a performer and a person. She is absolutely rad. So, yeah, another reason to see the film. But like even the Happy Feet films, like I haven't – again, I haven't seen Happy Feet 2, but I've seen Happy Feet 1. But it's like they're, they're, the, pre- they're, the, they're the films for the kids to say – 
don't let the world of Mad Max happen. <laughs> so in his filmography, they still make sense. They're not like outliers. It's still just it's still him making films about what we might do if we don't sort our shit out. All right, guys, we're going to take one final break and play a trailer for next week's show. The Countess Elizabeth Batory has a thing for young girls. Immortality. They sleep by day and appear only at night. They shrink from running water and crosses. They cast no reflection and live on a very strict liquid diet. Outside of that, they're normal, healthy, sensuous women. Daughters of Darkness from Gemini Marin Films. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without a parent. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Harry Kumel's Daughters of Darkness. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ben and Mike. Mike, what has been keeping you busy lately? Reading, writing, and getting older. No arithmetic? No, no, I'm done with that. And Ben, what's up down under? Uh, well, I was just uh, helping a friend make a micro-budget horror film called Apparitions. and I was doing the Mad Max thing of being seven different roles at once on the set. Uh, unfortunately, my rest of my life got in the way and I had to step down from the seven different roles, but the uh, hopefully we'll get to talk about apparitions one day in the not-too-distant future because what we'd shot was looking pretty damn rad. Uh, and I'm working on the Environmental Film Festival Australia as a features programmer, so if you're in Melbourne and you're interested in the environment, it's been such a week i've been alternating between watching fiction films about the end of the world and fact films about the end of the world <laughs> so my mental health is super great right now uh, <laughs> um, that's, that's why I'm, I'm going to go back and watch some russian doll just to finish myself off um, and other than that i've been doing some work on a bit of post-production rushes on preacher which was pretty cool and they're shooting in melbourne at the moment and uh, cannot wait till that lands and it's looking pretty wild. So, yeah, it's been a hell of a busy year so far. <laughs> and it's only April. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to our website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.